Greetings from the Seventh Circle. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the Seventh Circle of Film. I'm your host, Kieran, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Stefan. Doing good, man? Yeah, I'm good, mate. You? Yeah, not bad. Not bad at all. I'll say that. Lost in the rugby, Six Nations. Curse of King Tut. Striking hard. Striking true. So, fifth episode, doing something a little bit different today. We're going to be, rather than watching a whole series, because there are about fucking 15 of them, we're going to be going through the major Mummy releases, everything called The Mummy, from 1932 to the 2017 release. Uh, a little trip through time. See how stuff's changed. Because on this show, we kind of want to try to get encompass the entirety of a genre, the entirety of a film series. And I think this is the best way of doing it. I'm happy we've done this, at least for this one so far, because not everyone's going to have watched the old 19... 19- 39 one not everyone's probably a lot of people probably haven't watched 2017's one let's let's put it fair so at least not that i recommend you do oh i recommend it if you like slow torture like every episode of this has been so far except for dead snow that was good yeah at, at least this way if you haven't watched it you can get a feel for what it is and if you'd be interested in it or if you'd be like hmm I'm okay with just listening to it. So, yeah, I've watched a couple of the others, the sequels, the spin-offs, Albert and Costello versus the Mummy, which is a real exercise in patience. That one. Yeah, unfortunately, my mum likes uh, a lot of Albert, Albert and Costello, so uh, I've had to watch that one myself too. But yeah, we'll jump straight into it. So, starting off with the original, the Boris Karloff version, 1932, directed by. Carl, oh bloody hell, Carl Freund, friend. Carl Freund? Fuck it, that's what we're going to go with, Carl Freund. Yeah, who's an Austrian cinematographer, worked on Bela Lugosi's Dracula, Mad Love, Last Laugh, won shitload of awards, here, there and everywhere. I think the most impressive thing he did was on the show I Love Lucy, classic sitcom, Uh, pioneered the free camera setup, which still used today, really prevalent. Uh, Friends, Frasier, Cheers, uh, MASH, I believe, used it. It's where you've got three cameras all set up, uh, keeping an eye on the scene. You get the entire scene in frame. Uh, So writer is John L. Balderston, American playwright, worked on, again, a shitload of golden era horror stuff. A Bride of Frankenstein, Frankenstein, a theatre version of Dracula, as well as the film Dracula's Daughter, which is great. Uh, he was also journalist for the New York Times and present at the unveiling of King Tut's grave as a reporter. And he uh, did die uh, after seeing King Tut's grave curse coming true. He died about 30 years later. Which means there pretty much is no curse on any tomb. It's literally everyone dies. They just like to attribute it to something, so... Why not the curse? You never know. It could be just the shittest curse of all time. <laughs> you don't know how much of your life it actually takes away. I'm going to give you a heart attack at old age. That's what I'm going to do. What is it, a sausage? It's going to take eight minutes off your life. It's worth about five sausages. <laughs> We've got uh, Iconic, for sure. 
I'd like to use that with Andrew Dervov, but this time I'm pretty confident saying iconic of Boris Karlov. Real name, William Henry Pratt. You can see why I changed his name is Boris Karlov. That's a pretty fucking badass name. Yeah, but who wouldn't Known. want to watch Willy Pratt, you know what I mean? <laughs> Known, of course, uh, Frankenstein and its beloved sequels. Uh, I'm not going to go too much into him because we're definitely going to do the Frankenstein stuff at some point, and I'd rather do him his justice then. He plays Imhotep, which he plays a version of Imhotep that's far more amicable with the cast, far more talkative, does a very good job. They've used Boris Karlov in the right kind of way. Uh, so, otherwise, uh, Zeta Johan, who plays Helen Gross uh filmed The Sin of Nora Moran, Moran, go Moran, and Tiger Shark, a couple other things as well, has been around and her stuff. Edward Van Sloan, who plays Dr. Muller, who was in Dracula, Frankenstein, Death Kiss, alongside uh, co-star in all those films, David Manners, who plays Frank Wemple. You find a lot of the old Universal actors have been in a lot of the same films. Tend to be called upon. And then Arthur Byron, who plays Frank Wemple's dad, David Manners' dad, uh, Joseph Wemple, who was in film The Whole Town's Talking, Mayor of Hell, which does sound a lot of fun. And a couple of things. It's classic golden era. Actors uh, really got around, especially the B-movie actors. They're in just a plethora of things. Went on and on and on. See, I think it's fair to say this film's tone's a lot different than the latter ones. It's, at least when it concerns the mummy, slightly less, slightly less outwardly horrific. Slightly less physical, to some extent. Yeah. I don't know if it was... In this one, it seems like... I wouldn't say playful, but it was like he had a mind of his own. So he's like, all right, like he plays tricks on certain people in the film uh, to kind of get his own way, to kind of like force his will onto others kind of thing. Whereas some of the other ones are just like, no, nah, I'm just going to throw you about a room. Yeah, the I mean, more to the fault of the 1959 version where he just walks at a steady pace and strangle people. Yeah, like this one's got a, he's got his own mind he's got his own plans he's got his own goals sort of thing whereas pretty much all the other ones are just like a mindless creature or not a mindless creature but just stupid. Yeah, yeah I'd say stupid at least that big bad evil raw hear me scream kind of thing so Going through scene by scene, beginning uh, with little narration about the mummy. Starting off, I think it was, was it 1911? I think it was. Oh, 1921. Yeah. Starts off uh, British archaeology expedition with all the uh, perfectly apt British archaeology gear. Uh, so the mummy's already sitting in the background. They've already excavated everything. I sent this by Professor of Archaeology from H-Uni. Uh, said it was all pretty damn good. All generally, for the time. Uh, they have a load of pottery and stuff, a load of other artefacts sitting about. There's a younger guy uh, who doesn't stick around for very long. And then there's 
Dr. Muller and Joseph Wemple. A younger guy, a bit more interested in the mummy itself and in the more colourful artefacts. Uh, Joseph Wemple, he seems to be the expert, more interested in the pottery and the history of stuff. And then Dr. Muller is... Um, Dr. Muller, who's the occult liaison, occult liaison, occult expert. Yeah, occult expert. He's more interested in keeping them from looking at anything. Yeah, he's more the one that kind of believes in all the curses and kind of like, yeah, I wouldn't touch that if I were you. I wouldn't open this chest. Yeah, they get to one of the chests, which has, you know, your standard, don't open this box, uh, ye who all will perish very shortly. Dr. Muller refuses to open it, says we shouldn't go anywhere near it. Uh, Joseph and the younger archaeologist, both very curious, want to get it open. Eventually, Dr. Muller decides to take Joseph Wemple aside and discuss with him, look, it's a really bad idea, you shouldn't open this. Wemple, to be fair, pretty much says, no, it's for science, I'm going to have to open it. Uh, But they leave the inquisitive newbie, who's been just messing with artefacts the whole time. They just say, oh, don't open it. Scout's fucking honour. And the guy sits there and immediately opens it. Of course he does. Yeah, obviously, why would you listen to professionals and your seniors in a in a very professional environment where a very ancient artifact that could be very heavily damaged if you open said thing? Why would you listen to anyone? Just open it. Go ahead. I don't know who I blame more, him or Wemple, for being such an idiot and leaving him. Yep. I'd go more at, right, can you come out as well, mate? So I know you don't open anything. Yeah, I'd be like, okay, let's everyone clear the room while we have this conversation because it needs to be under, like, constant supervision if that fucking moron is here. Yeah, he opens it up and starts reading from the scroll. Uh, That's quite nice, actually. In reality, I reckon a lot of this stuff would have rotted. The scroll made of papyrus, I presume. That'd be gone. The box it was in, the wooden box, would be gone, but eh. Preservatives. Who knows? Embalmed chests? Yeah, I mean, I'll let it go because it's a film, but let's face it, it would have decayed at some point, even if it was. Even if it was, like, magically protected. It'd probably solve all their problems, to be fair, if it had just decayed. Yeah. <laughs> be a very short film. Can't open shit now, can you? <laughs> oh, we found this tomb. Ah, it's empty. There's just an old guy's bones. Oh, well. Scene. Yeah, uh, he reads a scroll and ends up awakening the mummy, who has some, he's got some bitch-ass ninja skills, sneaks up on the guy and starts taking stuff off the table without him noticing at all. This decrepit, presumably just bones and flesh, about, what, 3,000 years old yeah, mummy? Yeah, I want to say two things. Firstly... I'm sure you probably smelled him. He is decaying corpse, literally walking up right behind you. He's been sealed in a fucking casket for God knows how long. Sarcophagus, there we go. That's the right word. For God knows how many years, you smell him. I'm imagining a kind of great-great-nan's old attic kind of smell. Yeah. Just a smell of death and decay. 
he smells like the inside of someone's colon at this point. But, and secondly, he does spot him only when the uh, mummy overtly reaches pretty much right in front of his face to grab the scroll that he's reading. I almost <laughs> expected a kind of tap on the shoulder. And uh, Frank, not Frank, the young Oxford archaeologist, uh, after this, breaks down laughing hysterically, uh, which uh, I think was a quite nice touch, actually. It's different from the usual kind of screaming and stuff. It's uh, a reaction. It's an addition to the curse instead of just like, oh, yeah, we're going to outright kill you. I'm going to make you mad instead. Can you imagine that as well? Laughing for three years straight. Bet his voice box was fucked at the end of it. I imagine you'd be like bleeding out, laughing as little bits of blood, making no sound, just having this little liquid gurgle. Yes. I think it says in the film he died like three months or something after that. Three years, I think it was. Oh, three years, that was it. Yeah, I don't think I could manically laugh for three years straight, so... Uh, yeah, it says off screen. I think he died three years later because we cut to 11 years later, 1932, when the film set. Uh, for ease of filming and the like. Said so that every other film following this takes about a 40 year uh, jump back. I think at least the 1959 one set about 1895. I think the 1999 one set sometime around here as well. A little bit back. Mm hmm. Oh, and obviously the 2017 one's set in 2017 because they have no imagination. So we cut to 11 years later. Uh, the the Oxford student's been dead for some time now. Cut to Frank Wemple, Joseph Wemple's son, who's an archaeologist within Egypt, who's been working for some time with a partner of his. Uh, they haven't found much say something about how it was a lot easier for his dad back in the day. Less competition, that kind of thing. They found some pottery and stuff, which I'd be really excited about. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's ancient pottery and stuff from the old. I've been more interested in that than some gold, fucking um, plated thing. I suppose less money, but it's far more. It's just gold, isn't it? An idle thing. If you get an actual pottery, you get a piece of history. You get something. Maybe that's just the historian in me. Yeah, we get to see the mummy now. Uh, very quickly in, who played obviously by Boris Karlov, a lot more uh, involved in this film than he is in the others. We said he's a lot more um, psychological and uh, calculating than in the latter films. Uh, he's in a disguised fez and looks dreadful. I don't mean dreadful as in um, he looks bad as the mummy, he just looks like shit. Yeah, in the actual film, he's he's decrepit. He looks like he's decaying a little. He's got um, lines around his mouth and his head. Basically, he looks like a mummy. What you expect a mummy to look like, like outside of its wrappings and stuff. But people are like, yep, he's walking, moving around. He's a good guy. He looks embalmed, more or less. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Look very good as the actual mummy as well. Now you said yeah. earlier, yeah. as he was being wrapped up, he actually looked like a mummy. Yeah, he he looked like he was actually wrapped in bandages, whereas like the later films are like, oh, he's in a giant onesie with a zip up the back that's kind of covered by Velcro. 
So I'm not quite sure why they decided to move forward 11 years uh, because Boris obviously now comes to Frank Wemple and says, oh, I know where my ex-lover, he doesn't say his ex-lover obviously, but he knows where she's buried. He knows where some of this stuff's buried. Not quite sure why he did it now and didn't do it 11 years ago. Thought maybe he couldn't get any other pussy. He just went out in the town. Tried to get on with girls, couldn't get anyone, and thought, oh, fuck it, I'll go for my old one, my old flame. Hey, he did it for love, alright? That's what I'm going to go That's my problem. If he did it for love, why didn't he do it 11 fucking years ago? See, for me, it, it seems like either, again, this curse has specifically targeted these people that opened the, the chest, so maybe he's targeting that family. And he's waiting for one of them to come back and obviously go, hey, dig up here and then we can further this curse along sort of thing maybe. But yeah, I I have no idea. Love it. He brings in a piece of pottery to kind of wet their whistle a little and to uh, catch them for them to start digging there. They ask him, why the hell haven't you dug this up then? And he says, oh, it's my ancient people. I'm not allowed to dig them up. It's sacrilege. Right, so you've managed to find this ancient piece of pottery without digging shit. You find out later that this tomb's about two days down. How the fuck did you get it? How do you know it's there? Why do you know it's there? There'd be so many questions just immediately. But yeah, they do end up digging. They have the massive Egyptian borderline slaves in these films, these Egyptian diggers, poor pricks. <laughs> end up being cannon fodder later on and all sorts of stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. they're basically manual labour. They're props. Poor guys. I mean, it saves them spending money on taking everyone from their dig site over to Egypt, I guess. They can just hire yeah, people. Yeah, I'm not saying it's uh, unrealistic. I'm sure that's exactly how they do it. I just feel a bit sorry for them. Yeah. They do get to the temple, dig through it, and stay there for a bit because of that. I imagine just selling some stuff off, dealing stuff with museums. They have a deal with the local uh, Egyptian museum, Museum of Cairo, to give stuff to them rather than sending it to the British Museum. I've had some funding issues, which they complain about, which is just stunningly British. Why can't we take their artefacts for us? Belongs to us. Their heritage should be in our museums. As it happens, uh, in the British Museum at the moment, there's, uh, I think it's actually King Tut. He's in his sarcophagus. Looks really nice. Went there a couple years ago. Load of Egyptian stuff. So, eventually we won. and Managed to get all the Egyptian uh, artefacts <laughs> over. So yeah, there, Frank Wemple and uh, his partner, who kind of just leaves the story. He's never really mentioned again. Uh, Joseph Wemple and Dr. Muller come back in. Uh, they discuss the hoard and they start bringing stuff out bit by bit. Find the body of... Uh, I can't remember the name now. Anuk Sun and Moon? I remember it was something A Sun and Moon or something like that. So it was Anuk Sun and Moon, I think. Yeah, we get uh, an eye on our female lead a lot earlier than we do in the uh, later ones. I know in the in the 1959 version, you do see the female lead, 
I think about 20 minutes in, but I barely even noticed her. Yeah, in this one, Helen introduced far sooner, which is to the film's benefit, certainly. Uh, Evelyn, as well, in the 1999 version, Rachel Weisz, is introduced sooner. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the problems with the second film revolve around the issue of Chekhov's gun and the whole introducing stuff in the first act to have it pay off in the third act. They do it quite well in this, and in the 1999 one, all the plot points are fairly well set up to be uh, tackled later on. Uh, I can't remember if they actually show that Helen looks sort of... I don't think she has to look similar to the original. No, I I, I don't think there's any kind of like mention to it. Uh, he starts doing the summon, and it's just like, oh, for some reason it's her. Yeah, I think it's more just same with Rachel Wise in the 1999 one. She's more a vessel. Yeah. She's a woman, and that that's good enough for him. Actress who plays Helen, Zeta Johanna's terrified when I saw her. She's the most bug-eyed, dead-inside person imaginable when you first see her. Her eyes, like the size of her head. She gets better, though. She's uh, perfectly serviceable for 1932, very 1930s. It's a bit dated, yeah, I will say that the only reason I don't like watching like older films is because I tend to not be as immersed. Into yeah, it. immersed. That's the word. Because I don't know the the acting seems all kind of stunted. Like obviously, like you've said, obviously acting's changed over the years. But back then, it kind of it doesn't seem like a real conversation. It just seemed like oh, we're just actors. We're playing out a play. That's it. I suppose it's the it's where they're taking it from. There's, obviously, it's 1932. One of the earliest films we're ever going to do. Not going to say the earliest, because Nosferatu, obviously, mm-hmm. further back. But uh, yeah, it's it's where the origin of the film came from, and it's all I've really got to reference at this point. Yeah, you've got silent films before this, which were very much theatre-based, theatrical. Because you had to show a lot more emotion than you can in a speaking film. You had to convey a lot more, which evolved later on and is far more realistic nowadays. So yeah, the mummy uh, goes to the museum, meets with uh, Joseph and Frank Wemple, says that he found you know, all the hoard, gave them the details for it. They offer him to come round to their place. He refuses, obviously. Uh, and they say they're going to keep the museum open for him for the whole night in his honour. That kind of thing. Yeah. Let him just wander around, let him have a look at some stuff. Uh, he acts like a complete weirdo. Uh, I'm not going to you know, disparage that. He is a mummy <laughs> from 3000 BC. He's quite socially reclusive through most of this he uh doesn't shake hands that kind of thing he stays out which are for a man who he's a high priest for one so you know elevated nobility and all that shit uh and he is a three thousand year old decrepit money yeah i mean if i felt like powdered chalk i don't think i'd offer to shake people's hand so yeah he uh goes to find the one of the pages i think it was the original script that the Oxford student got out and read earlier and he starts chanting his ex-lover's name which currently vesseled in Helen 
I think he said it reincarnated over the years and it happened to have picked Helen now. Uh, so he starts chanting away her name as Helen starts chanting his name where she is and starts making her way towards the museum. Uh, she gets a coat, gets in a car, starts driving away from some party. She gets to the museum. Frank and Joseph Wemple are just leaving. She goes up to the door and starts banging on it, shouting his name. Uh, the mummy at no point thought, you know what, I should probably open the door for her. That might be useful. And she starts banging like a crack addict against this door, yelling his name out. Yeah, and that's when um, the youngest son, uh, Frank Wemple, kind of runs up, grabs the woman, and kind of like, yeah, it's closed. And then instead of her saying anything, I think she just collapses. And Yeah, she falls into his arms and he grabs her out, uh, which begins... I think the worst trope of the 1930s films, which is the love at first sight. Not even first sight, just I love you, true love. See, for me, it's it's not even that. It's the fact that it's more like, obviously, times have changed and people are a bit more comfortable with their gender and sexuality and stuff now. It's it's Back then, it was like, oh, you're a woman, you've fallen unconscious, I'm going to take you back to my place. Not, I'm going to take you to the hospital and see you're fucking okay. I'm just going to put you on our couch and you'll be fine. Yeah, it's... uh... (laughs) (laughs) Looking back at it from today's morals, doesn't look great for the guy. That's probably a lawsuit waiting to happen. So yeah, the mummy's continuing chanting. Uh, He's looking at this piece of paper, he's got a little candle out. The guard comes into the museum, sees the candle on, and starts creeping around like a vaudeville villain, like an extra from Cats. As he has his hands outstretched, his legs is slightly hunched back. You can almost hear the little piano music going as he's walking along, two little notes. Killed by the mummy, off screen, given a heart attack, which is the mummy's main main offensive capability. Most of the people through this film given heart attacks here there. I think uh, Joseph later is. Frank, they attempt to. Which is fine for the time. You've not really got the budget something like this to uh, properly... Yeah, do you you know how old Boris Karloff was when he filmed this? Because it it seemed like he was an older gentleman, so I don't think they were like, yeah, let's have an extended fight scene here. I think 1987. Oh, come on. You know how to do math. So it would have been... 45. Yeah, I... That's not... It's not... Not hugely old. It's not hugely old, but it's not like, yeah, I want you to be throwing this guy around kind of age. I mean... Uh, He wasn't built like they are now. Yeah. As well. Boris Karloff was very much a character actor. Yeah. He wasn't a physical guy. I think he was quite tall. Quite... It's certainly intimidating. But not in that kind of sense. He's not muscular at all. Yeah, it's 75 minutes. Perfect. Yeah. 75 minutes for this kind of film. I should say, when I take notes, I go scene by scene. Occasionally, I'll skip 10, 15-minute segments that just have nothing, and I'll write pointless. Yeah. Professionalism for you. I did that a lot for Wishmaster 3. <laughs> uh, with these ones, I've pretty much gone entirely scene by scene for the first three films, and then the 2017 one. 
it's a lot more segmented because it was so much filler in that in all three of these perfectly timed exactly how long it needed to be for the kind of film it was which is what i love about the older films they don't need to be about three fucking hours long did you ever watch that batman film uh the dark knight with bane dark knight rises yeah yeah that went on for fucking ever or superman versus batman jesus christ yeah uh yeah so boris Karloff killed the vaudeville uh guard with a heart attack you find out that out later oh it cut to helen and frank wemple helen's lying down on a couch she gets up looks very confused doesn't know where she is uh, asks what she was doing at the museum it's a bit of a conversation she ends up uh asking you know why was i there and frank starts saying well you were and then she responds with let's not talk about it let's let's leave it personally i'd want to know why the fuck i went unconscious yeah when you ask a question you don't you don't go i'm going to ask a question as you're telling me no 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 don't tell me especially in a situation like this i mean maybe it was rhetorical because personally if i was unconscious at a museum I didn't know where I was for some time and ended up on a couch next to some guy. I'd be thinking, what was I doing at the museum while you went, no, no, you don't need to answer. You're hypnotic me. Yeah, exactly. The last memory you have is you're at a party dancing with a dude. Then you wake up on a couch like surrounded by three elderly-ish gentlemen. I'd think, which one of you put your penis inside my asshole first? It doesn't look good for anyone. No. It looks really bad. Uh, but yeah, she uh, falls in love with the guy instead. I think the guy falls in love with her first. Then she grows on him over the span of about five minutes. Yeah, in in real life time, she's like, oh, we're having this conversation. At the end of this conversation, I'll kiss you. And there's a, a line that's not quite finished where the guy starts talking about uh, the dead body of... Um, was it Anasunan? Anasunan? Anuxunamunia. Anuxunamun. Nice. Yeah, he uh, starts talking about her to Helen. Says we unwrap the body and when I saw her face, you'll think me silly. Yeah. And starts, kind of, slightly compares her, slightly compares it to her and starts talking slightly about how pretty it was later. For one, this thing's still wrapped in, yeah, this thing's still wrapped in bandages. God knows what you fell in love with. And for two, it's a corpse. For Christ's sake, why do we keep picking films with necrophiliacs in? I th- First was Dead Snow 2, now this shit. I think necrophiliacs and Nick Cage is our speciality, apparently, so... At least it's alliterative. Hmm. Fucking someone needs to start a little club. Cary Grant, Alistair Crowley and these twats. <laughs> Get something going. It's not a compliment, by the way. Uh, this dating advice we have this as well. Every it's not a compliment to call a girl similar to a three thousand year old mummy. It's like going up to a woman. You look like Michael Jackson. After he died, I think before he died, there was so much plastic in him. They were asking IKEA for fucking discounts. So much plastic in him, they just used him as the coffin. <laughs> <laughs> he was biodegradable. So yeah, uh, we cut back and forth between Helen and Frank who fall in love insanely fast uh, Joseph and Dr. Muller notice this and oh 
shit, they're in love. Yay. Uh, they go in to start talking about the curse of the mummy back and forth. Uh, they find the guard in the museum. They're informed of it. Guard dead of shock. So natural causes kind of thing. Obviously, he was killed by the mummy. One of the professors, for some reason, smiling a little bit. Uh, Dr. Muller seems to be happy that this poor git has had a heart attack. Christ knows why. But there you go. Yeah, and when they go back to look at the guard's corpse, they find like the manuscript or the, the, the ritual that the mummy was using. I don't know why the mummy didn't just go, I'll pick that up and take it with me as I'm leaving anyway. Oh, these films have a habit of leaving ancient relics behind. Yeah, even though they're integral to the character, we'll leave it behind. But yeah, so... The mummy leaves the scroll with the dead corpse of the guard. And obviously when they all turn up, they're like, Hey, good guy dead. That's great. I'm going to just pick up this scroll and take it home with me. Even though it's in the museum where it should be, we'll just take it home. Yeah, they start to kind of cotton on a little bit here and start talking about the mummy and the likes. And for some reason say um, that the curse has controlled their son as well, has gained their son, which is why at first I thought that the whole love at first sight thing might have been part of the curse, but no it isn't, they just love each other, and that is what reels him in, that is properly true love, after what, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, almost impressive, fucking life of a mayfly these people, and that's uh, what gets... Joseph Wemple actually uh, involved properly. Doesn't seem to care about his own life so much as his son's, which is admirable to some extent. Too lazy to bother with your own, but actually care about someone else. It's something I can certainly relate to. The mummy uh, does go back to Joseph and Frank Wemple and Dr. Muller to talk to them. Uh, It should be said, again, pretty fucking intimidating. Boris Karlov, really creepy. Yeah. Designer said really well. And the acting is really great, subdued, very reserved. What you'd expect, again, a mummy to be like. It's uh, very deliberate with a lot of its dialogue. And it's very slow. Not, I mean, physically, but with its speaking. Yeah, he turns up at the house and kind of. Firstly, he meets. Helen. Helen. He meets Helen and starts kind of eye-banging her kind of instantly and he's like oh yeah you're you're an ox and the moon yep we're gonna bang later you're gonna take this dried wrinkled dick um and then when the you think if a handshake terrifies him god knows what would happen if he stuck his dick anywhere hey she's already wet (laughs) (laughs) i'd be worried it'd be like paper mache Obviously, when the three gentlemen come back into the room, there's kind of like a heated confrontation. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say if heated. It's more like a kind of ambiguous kind of nothing at at this point. I think it's done better in the 1959 version. Uh, the scenes that you get in films, which I absolutely love, I think my favourite uh, type of scene in any film where the protagonist and antagonist, they meet each other, start talking, neither attacks each other, and both know 
everything about the other, or at least enough to know that they're talking to someone dangerous that wants yeah. them dead. They're talking to their enemy, basically, but they're trying to cut on to like, how much the other knows and how much the other was willing to give in return sort of thing. I like that kind of conversation myself. I think the mummy Imhotep obviously says, um, I know the scrolls here, I think. I think he says that he knows that it's here and he wants it. Not only that, he says he knows it's here and he says he owns it. Yeah, and then I can't remember what they say to kind of make him leave without the scroll. I don't think it was far off just to fuck off. <laughs> Probably. Not quite in those words, but... Uh... Whatever a 1930s gentleman would equate to fuck off. Tell you how you old rotter. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, then there's a like a kind of small discussion between the um, Joseph... Wemple. Wemple, that's it. Joseph Wemple and Dr. Muller kind of have a small discussion where um, Muller kind of encourages and persuades uh, Wemple to kind of destroy the scroll in the fire. And obviously, for some reason, instead of burning it that instant, they wait for every he waits for everyone to leave, waits for the mummy to go back to his hidey hole in the museum, and then goes to burn the scroll, which at then point at that point he is given a heart attack because the uh, Imhotep is kind of looking through like a... I have no, like, uh, word for it, so I'm just going to use the D&D term. that He uses his, like, seeing eye. He's, he uses, like, the uh, a TV screen and, like, a mirror. I don't know. But he basically watches the... Um, he watches Wemple kind of go to put it in the fire gives him a heart attack at just as just before he be- is about to do it and as he's done that he's sent his kind of servant to go pick up the real scroll and instead burn like just i just i don't know just plain papyrus into the throw that into the fire to make it look like he's burnt it i think it was just newspaper oh there you go He's burnt newspaper. I don't know if newspaper... Because that's how they know... Uh, no, that's exactly how they know that it isn't the papyrus, because it's just newspaper. Oh, right, because I, I thought they were convinced, and then later on it's like, oh, no, it is newspaper. Yeah, at, at the start they're convinced, but then they actually have a look over it, driving in the car, and they find oh, out, right. oh, you know what, actually, it's just newspaper. Joseph... When he's killed, killed by another heart attack. Slightly later on, uh, Dr. Muller gives Frank Wemple a... What's it? An ibis? Little symbol? Yeah. To put around his neck, an ibis necklace uh, of the god with the little... Um, oh, it might be Horus, the uh, wolf head. Passed it to him and says this will protect him from the mummy's uh, attacks, which it does. Keeps him alive from a heart attack. Me, personally, I'd have given that to Joseph a bit sooner. I'd have had that on my priorities list, number one. Hi, give them the medallion that won't kill him. Yeah, if you're burning this scroll later tonight, here's this so you don't die mysteriously from a heart attack. Not something that slipped my mind. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, when they come back and find Frank's dead body, 
when they come back and find Joseph's dead body, Frank gets over his dead dad fairly quickly. Not really much of a mourning period, more interested in bonking Helen. Boners outpowers literally every other emotion, so... Penis is stronger than the mind. <laughs> I suppose when you've got 75 minutes, you've got to cut corners and grieving over your dead dad. Certainly not one of the more interesting or important scenes to uh, quickly siphon over. You could have at least Elon it to just 80 minutes, just have five minutes of the guy, or a minute of the guy looking sad. Yeah, just anything. Have him in a bar later, in, or, or like just after this scene, have him in a bar drinking. Like, okay, yeah, he went out and got drunk for his dad's fucking death or something. So, yeah, Helen herself gets summoned again. Helen gets summoned again to the mummy's hideaway with his uh, little kind of premonition water-esque thing, kind of fortune tellers, uh, water pool that you can see the past in and that you can see the present as well, apparently. Helen makes her way there. Uh, the dog's terrified of, I think, the mummy, not the cat. But the dog runs off and is looked after. And is it killed? Helen's dog. Yep. There's something about it screaming out. I don't know why it was killed. Yeah, dog's slaughtered. Mm. Helen is given uh, a magical sedative kind of goes hypnosis style in and out of consciousness half asleep half not and the mummy says that he's going to provide her with memories that she won't recognize as her own initially but she will remember to some extent obviously past life kind of thing uh, showing uh, the mummy's old lover from 3000 odd years ago Another annoying thing about 1930s films is the music. Up to, up to about 1970, the music in these things is obnoxious. It's booming. It's kind of orchestral. No subtlety to it. In this case, he, he's showing uh, in the pool of water Helen's ex-life, where she grew up as this princess of Egypt and died shortly following uh, and was to be buried in a secret tomb. Yeah, because she's a priestess to one of the other gods, and he's a priest to, like, the god of death or something. He'd fallen in love with her. The feeling probably wasn't mutual. From... Oh, you get that intention later. I think at the time it was. I think he's just... 3,000 years calls a relationship off quite a lot. Yeah, probably. Okay, yeah, so they're both priests and priestesses from different religions sort of thing, or to different gods, not religions. But, um, and that's why she's she's basically the head priestess of her goddess, and she's being taken to this secret tomb to be buried where literally... Everyone that knows of this location is just slaughtered. Yeah, you got to give it to the loyalty of these people. First the slaves are murdered, Yeah. then the soldiers are killed. Uh, knowing that they're going to be killed, that that's loyalty. Uh, yeah, the mummy's mummified during all this. There's, you know, back and forth uh, betrayals and all sorts of history going on. 
resurrections and that like it's quite quick and over and done with in this version i think the scene's only about two minutes long two and a half minutes long yeah. it's elongated out far more in the later ones uh, kept at the start in most in the more recent ones which i think was probably a good idea to keep the story flowing a lot better in the 1999 version it was entirely at the start didn't skip a beat and i just think yeah certainly the better way of doing it because here it kind of felt like a block in the story i didn't really care it felt more expository than anything uh, helen she's been in a kind of trance during this whole time and now she's let out and he lets her go the time being to come back to her later frank confesses his love once again been a fucking day she says she'd rather die than lose frank actually helen at one point remind her again it's been a fucking day <laughs> calm yourself she kind of comes back and then she's like oh i went somewhere i don't need to tell no man no nothing none of my business where's your dog um dead uh what you don't want to ask more questions about the dead dog no just just it's dead so this is when frank and dr muller kind of go all right she's staying in bed we're gonna hire people to literally just supervise her constantly and then yeah it's her basically coming in in and out of like this lucid state kind of like oh but i want to see frank but I just need to go, but I kind of want to see Frank, but I kind of just want to go. And then that happens for a bit, and then she manages to escape with Imhotep's aid by giving Frank, or giving the Frank the start of a heart attack, which I think the start of a heart attack would probably still kill him, even if he grabbed the idol. Especially in like 1920. 1932. Yeah. It is. You're fairly fucked. Uh, and yeah, he, he does grab the idol and it saves him. At the moment, seemingly killed by the heart attack. Helen uh, cuts to her at Imhotep's, I think it's a chamber or something, one of the burial chambers that they unveiled everything in. Uh, she's dolled up like a proper priestess, possessed in part by Imhotep's lover, though her own personality is still concurrent with her. Imhotep starts talking about it's like a moment of pain for an eternity of love basically going to kill her uh, and then make her immortal and she starts complaining about this being unlawful about this being against the laws of Egypt I, you're possessing a body of some poor girl you've already you know sort of come into this pact when you actually died you're already in love with a priest unlawfully for god's sake it's only a little step over. I suppose he doesn't want to. She doesn't want to die, but hey ho. Yeah. Right. So, what I got from this film is, no matter what, even just attempting to get into this woman's body was an unlaw- an unlawful kind of thing that's happened. And at this point, she's like, "Yeah, I'm willing to go along with this." And then, as soon as he's like, "Oh." I need to kill you and make you an undead mummy. She's like, no, 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 no. I'm okay with killing someone else and taking over their body and their life. But no, no, you can't kill me. 
Don't know why you'd want an undead mummy anyway. She she looks pretty fucking sweet. Pretty nice. I'd take that. I suppose it's true love and all that shit, but Yeah, um, just every, every she, couple of like and maybe every like eighty years or so, just put her into a new body. There you go. I wouldn't say eighty years, that's going like kid for kid. That that starts to get weird. Yeah, that's that's um, why I'm saying eighty, so like when the last one's on its way out, just be like, okay, I'll go for another woman that's in her twenties. There you go. Yeah, she uh, starts fighting back, so she doesn't want to be killed. Uh, I say fighting back. She fights back in that 1930s female style that they had. The uh, style of the dead mongoose. Yeah. Oh, don't hit me, she... sort of thing. Yeah. She kind of leans into being captured. It's all a little... I'm damsel in distress, woe is me. I cannot fight these burly, burly men. Gets captured. Uh, Frank ends up coming and stopping the whole thing. Boris kind of turns around. You get this a lot during all the films where for some reason, partway through the ritual, the big bad who could quite easily just lower a dagger and win decides to stop because someone enters the room. Why they do that, I've got no idea, but they do. And Helen manages to get out. Bit of a scuffle back and forth. Eventually, the priestess inside of her starts to beg for the aid of a god and starts recanting some incantations uh, to destroy the soul of the other mummy, one played by Boris Karlov. Uh, She succeeds in this. Boris Karlov ends up... It can't be CGI, of course, but uh, I think it's supposed to be stop motion. Yeah, it's kind of that fade-out kind of turn-to-dust thing that they used to do quite a lot, where it was like, we're going to, like, fade two films together where one's like of Boris Karloff himself and one's just like of a a a pile of ash somewhat in the shape of a body and it's like kind of superimposes them both out sort of thing. Yeah, and he ends up dying about as well done as you'd expect for a nineteen thirty two film. Yeah. It's not particularly amazing, not um a huge spectacle, but does the job. Yeah, I will say that this had more kind of nuance than some of the later films had. At least the it, it wasn't much, but the woman kind of fought back and she was able to do certain things. And like, yeah, she didn't help herself all that much, but a Nooks and a Moon helped. As it ends, talking about Nooks and a Moon, I don't think she was ever unpossessed. At any point, I didn't mention that. Which is going to make Helen waking up very fucking awkward for Frank. Yeah, I w- As he's now dating what pretty much would be a schizophrenic. Yeah, uh, I will say that this... I think this and the next film ended very abruptly. It was literally like, oh, dead. Let's roll credits. Because there was no mention of what happened to Helen after that. No, nothing. I think at least with the second film, with the 1959 one, uh, there were no real loose ends to tie up. Yeah, no. It had all been quite nicely finished for this one. Yeah, I kind of want to know what happens to the poor girl who's now got another person in her own head battling for for consciousness. It's a bit of a shit situation to end up in and to finish on, to not mention anything about 
But hey, there you go. Uh, so overall, yeah, not bad. Yeah. Pretty good for a 1932 film. Like I said, I was not outright angry that I had to watch this film, so I actually I would say that this was a good film. Always surprises me. There's old 1932. Nosferatu especially is absolutely amazing, still holds up to this day. A lot of them hold up better than some of the later ones. Arguably, it holds up a little better than the 1959 version in some ways. Mm-hmm. Not acting, certainly, but some of the little plot points, some of the little story elements. I think it just holds more to the original script, uh, to the uh, to some of the original drafts they had and some of the original source materials inspiration. doesn't get that complicated either. stays fairly strict, succinct. 75 minutes. God, I loved it when films were short. God, I don't think you can get under two and a half hours at a cinema now. Mummy 1959 ups the runtime to a pretty solid 90 minutes. Pretty nice. Yeah. Time. Yeah. At least for the latter <clears throat> two. <laughs> Fucking ever. See, for me, this, again, didn't overstay its welcome, was kind of kind of exactly what it needed to be. I will, again, it does have its shortcomings, like, not many, and it's not massively... um, We touched... Well, we brought it up. It was a just very abrupt ending, but other than that, I kind of enjoyed this one too, so... Obviously, uh, Hammer House Horror, uh, one of the classic production studios... Absolute mm. one of the best production studios made Dracula, made Wolfman, uh, Creature from the Swamp. It has such a shitload of amazing films. Frankenstein, of course, can't forget that. And with that, actually, of course, we get to the director, which is one of the mainstays of Gothic horror and of Hammer House, Terence Fisher. He really one of the first to put Gothic horror in full colour. Uh, which is one hell of an achievement for a lot of this stuff, really innovating the genre. I don't usually say much for technicals, but going from black and white to colour, there really is quite a jump. So he did Curse of Frankenstein, uh, Dracula, of course, writer uh, Jimmy Sangster, I'm going to say, I didn't Google that one, in Curse of Frankenstein, wrote, uh, wrote Dracula, and wrote a film called Taste of Fear, also very good. A lot of other credits for both of them. So acting-wise, star-studded. Probably more so than any of the other films. Some of my favourite actors from... Of some of my favourite actors of all time. So starting off with Peter Cushing, who plays John Banning, who's legendary. I can't say anything lower than that. Uh, of course, in Dracula, uh, where he played... Um, Van Helsing also in Curse of Frankenstein also in Hand of the Baskervilles where he plays Sherlock Holmes beautifully and I hate to say it but probably my favourite role of his is Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars A New Hope where he plays someone absolutely terrifying which has kind of stained my uh, perspective on the guy ever since that I can't look at him and not be a little intimidated and slightly terrified I don't know quite what it is but otherwise we've got another legend Christopher Lee, who plays Karis and the Mummy, uh, very unfortunately gets in blackface during this film. But hey, those are the times. I have to sit with the moral ambiguity of that. So Dracula, of course, played Dracula. 
perfectly. Uh, Hand of the Baskervilles as well played uh, Lord it was Lord Henry Baskerville. Can't remember the exact name of the character now. Uh, it was also in The Wicker Man, uh, Lord of the Rings, of course, Saruman the White, and uh, film Howling 2, Your Sister's a Werewolf, uh, otherwise affectionately known as Sturber, Werewolf Bitch, which I have <laughs> seen twice now, I think. Uh, didn't get any better, and has a scene at the end, end credit scene, with Sybil Danning getting her tits out to a beat 20 times. The same shot. It's It's... One you really have to see. One we're probably going to do at some point. If own uh, Ferdow, who's a French actress, uh, plays Isabel Banning, Princess, and Princess Anarka. She's in a load of French films. Uh, La Dolce Vita, Repulsion, I Am Semiramis. Classics from what I've been told. Uh, and then, finishing off the cast, who manages to go toe-to-toe acting-wise with the big greats here, Christopher Lee and uh, Peter Cushing's, directly with Peter Cushing's actually, across from him in the same kind of scene with the uh, antagonist-protagonist battling back and forth, uh, is George, or I found it could be Nino, apparently, on uh, his page that said they don't quite know what his real name is, which find his birth certificate, anything, but George or Nino Pastel uh, plays Mohammed Bay, the... Uh, Egyptian guardian of the tomb. It's in film from Russia with love. Uh, Strange Bombay. In recognise him from episode of Doctor Who, one of the old Cybermen episodes. Absolute classic. Great in all of them. Uh, so moving on to a little bit of trivia. So films, to some extent, cursed. Apparently, there are a lot of injuries through both the 1959 one and the 20, 2017 one and the 1999 one, certainly the 1999 one, but here, Christopher Lee basically had the shit kicked out of him. He'd been better off going for five rounds with Bruce Lee in a cage match. So Christopher Lee, the squibs used when he shot, you know, the shotgun and the pistol and stuff. Yeah. Uh, they left burn marks for weeks. Apparently really fucking hurt. He threw out his back while carrying Yvonne, uh, which really did him in. Dislocated his shoulder while barging through a door. The shot of him barging through the door they actually kept in Peter Cushing's mansion, I believe. Uh, and in the swamp set, so it was made artificially, the swamp set. Yeah. And they had a load of pipes drilling in water, and he constantly banged his legs on the pipes. Frankly, it really <laughs> fucking hurt. Uh, and I've read that his... Uh, his stance and his walk for the mummy, which is quite iconic. It's a kind of um, dead man walking style. He drags his feet along a bit. He's very deliberate in his movements, very static, staccato-esque. Apparently it wasn't all acting. Apparently he just really fucking hurt his legs. (laughs) And he was doing that constantly through the film because he was trying to keep it from hurting more. I mean, that's fair. I mean, if I fucked my legs into a load of pipes every now and again, I think I'd be trying to uh, avoid as much pain as I could while I'm filming. Certainly dedication to the craft. Yeah. Christopher Lee, obviously, a uh, very dedicated man. don't know if you know, he was actually in the uh, OSS, the original uh, intelligence corps for the British back in World War Two. Obviously, you know, he fought in World War Two. Fought for the Finnish as well against the Russians. Uh, and I 
pretty sure he stabbed a guy in the back during World War Two and killed him with a knife. There's uh, a little thing, I think I found it on YouTube, between him and director of Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson. Yeah. Peter Jackson. Yeah. There's a little scene on YouTube between him and Peter Jackson uh, where... Where yeah, when Saruman's stabbed in the back during the two towers and killed by Grima Wormtongue, played by Brad Dwarf, he yeah, he was originally directed by Peter Jackson to kind of scream out in pain, and then he said to Peter Jackson, "No, no, that's not what you sound like. It kind of pierces your lungs, and you have a little intake of breath, kind of thing, like a." <gasps> and Peter Jackson went, "Oh, is that what happens?" And he went, "Yes, I know for a fact that's what happens. Okay, we'll leave it like that. We'll leave it there. I don't need to ask any more questions." <laughs> So, going scene by scene, starting, I said, a little bit further back this time, 1895. Uh, music far more annoying in this one than it's ever been. In the 1932 one, I can almost live with it because going out of silent films, music was very prevalent. In this one, you've got no excuse, and the music is still quite orchestral and unnecessary. Uh, a lot of these scenes you could just leave on their own, all with kind of atmospheric music. You know, the kind of... Um, I don't want to say Egyptian music, but uh, little... No, yeah, like desert music that you get. It just works a lot better for a lot of this stuff. Yeah, it sounds like someone's using a flute a lot. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing, rather than this big orchestral stuff. Uh, so we cut to, again, a British expedition in a tomb of Ananka. Ananka, that's it. Ananka, yeah. Yeah. Start off a British expedition that's currently uh, uncovering the tomb of Ananka. Peter Cushing plays John Banning, who's the youngest, their son of uh, the main archaeologist, and his uncle's there as well, dealing with stuff. I got the feeling that he wasn't an archaeologist, the uncle, possibly some sort of funder or the like, or just there for company. Uh, so John has. Uh, damaged his leg at some point, broke it and he's continuing to stay there to keep an eye on the expedition he's uh, really invested in seeing it all come out together and seeing it dug up with his own two eyes uh, his uncle does say it went set right and it doesn't eventually, spoilers he doesn't bother going to a doctor because his dad is a bit of a wet noodle and doesn't bother uh, commanding him to go down which, yeah, you get people like this that don't really have the uh, cojones to order their son to not fuck up his leg for the rest of his life. Yeah. I suppose to some extent, you know, it's it's fine of a lifetime. Would you give up seeing that for the first time for a little leg problem? Probably, to be fair, because you can always come and see it after. Yeah, for me, there's no, like, oh, my eyes need to be the first things... Uh, first ones that see this thing. I'm speculating that they did this uh, just so the mummy would actually be a threat. So as you feel that the mummy in this play by Christopher Lee uh, very well, uh, it's kind of walking, I say quite statically, doesn't pose much of a threat, kind of like a walking zombie, that's from The Walking Dead, doesn't pose much of a threat to any able-bodied man who could just walk at a steady pace away from the thing, jog. Yeah. Uh, he ends up sneaking up on the uncle and kills the dad uh, as he bends some bars. The dad's trapped, eventually, in a kind of asylum situation, so he can't get out. But by the time that he gets to uh, John Banning, 
Peter Cushing's character. Peter Cushing already knows that the mummy's going around killing people, and obviously any other reasonable person just start running away. Uh, Peter Cushing can't because of his leg, and I think that's why they did it, to try to up stakes a little bit and make it seem like yeah. he actually has an issue. It makes sense. I mean, there's a bit where they're in his like house and he's kind of like rolling over the tables and stuff. So Yeah, yeah. it's a little inconsistent, the leg, through the yeah. film. It, it, at the start of the film, I feel like you put a lot more emphasis on its damage than later on. It seems to be working a lot better. At the start, he's got a walking stick and he's damaged badly. And this is still years later, uh, a few scenes on when he's got the walking stick. And then after that, he seems a lot better. But yeah, so uh, they cut to about five days later when the tomb's actually being opened. John Banning's still sitting around there in his bed still bedridden which i mean i think emphasizes even further that he should have fucked off because he can't even see it with his own two eyes yeah he's stuck in bed uh so his dad and uncle go in to check out the tomb itself uh mehemet played by uh george pastel Mehmet bay tries to stop them with a pretty piss poor speech has to be said, just on a load of remember that those who empty the tombs of the Egyptians will be killed, this, that, and I don't have any permits to stop you. We could have made up something on part of the Egyptian government. We're telling you to stop for a bit. At the very least, I think eventually, when it's your god and it's being desecrated, shooting the guy, I think comes to mind. I don't know if it was more... uh, if I shoot him now, there'll be more people coming anyway and I'll be dead and I can't stop anything. That might have been it. But if he's that desperate to stop them, I feel like there were more effective methods of dealing with it. Yeah, there's there's a lot of ways that could have handled that situation better than just, oh, no, 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 don't go in, please. So the door, you later find out it was sealed so no one could enter, sealed with a wooden rope, wooden rope, sealed with a rope, which seems a bit shit. Could they not done a metal chain? Anything? Yeah, it's like ancient Egyptian, like their sarcophaguses have like giant golden fucking goatees and shit. A bit of like a golden seal that's like on the door or something, like a, a, a chain seal or something. The rope would have rotted to shit, of course. Yes. Uh, but yeah, why why rope? Uh, it's cut fucking easy. It's not exactly a protector, is it? It feels more like they didn't want to get dust in the room and fucked up installing the doors and he did something to keep them shut than I want to keep people out. Yeah, it the was... rope's cut away uh, and wooden doors opened also would have rotted, but again, film stuff. They have a look through... Mostly the dad of Banning. The uncle goes out to John to tell him the news that you know they've uh, found the tomb. It's actually filled with stuff. So the ghost goes, uh, goes to tell them that there's um, a sarcophagus of possibly one of the priestesses, and kind of update update John basically of what's inside the tomb. And while that happens, you don't see him instantly. There's just a large scream, if I remember correctly. 
So, yeah, the dad goes around, kind of starts reading some stuff on the sarcophagus, goes around inspecting stuff, finds, um, I don't know what it was, like a box or just something that's keeping some sand from falling down in a bit of a hatch in the wall, a bit of a hole, uh, which he removes from the place, and then sand starts falling down, and the door that's containing the mummy in that tomb immediately starts opening. Bollocks would it open that quickly. It's a little bit of sand falling down. There's not that much weight stopping this door from shutting. He pulls like a ornamental kind of... Um, not like a chest, but it's like a small box out of like a, like an in-cut bit of the wall. He pulls that out and the sand starts falling. This is what the the scroll thing is in that they use later in the film. Yeah, I think it's contained within that. Yeah. Uh, this film, the mummies here, I think just to protect the body of the woman, which is certainly more realistic than in the later films where they give the mummy immortality for no good reason. Mm-hmm. In this one, at least, there's a purpose for doing everything, and he's not really being given rewards. It does seem like a pretty shit fate. So, uh, the scene itself, the tomb, other than a couple of bits of wood here and there, and yeah, a little bit of the rope, and of course, uh, it looks quite good. There's a cow head which I looked up quickly. Goddess of love, woman, goddess of love, women, fertility. As about right for this kind of priestess. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mummy's door filled with hieroglyphics. Had a quick look. Apparently they all check out. It's always quite nice to have that little bit of. Uh... It's always nice when they do it correctly. Yeah. It doesn't take that much effort, and they put it in here. So uh, the mummy comes out of the open compartment. She's been standing forthright for three thousand odd years. Poor twat. I like to give in by then. I just snapped in half. Just comes out from a little lying position. Oh fuck! Fuck! Is it my two? My cue? Yeah, right, I'm good. I'm good. Oh shit! The doors are open. Let's get back into position. I can't wait. You find just a myriad of games of noughts and crosses on the other side of the door. <laughs> He's playing hangman with himself. He could do that. Literally, to be fair, just wrap a little bit of uh, a bandage <laughs> around his own neck. But yeah, the door opens up. The mummy comes out. Scares the shit out of John's dad, turns him insane. Rather than hysterical laughter this time, it's uh, more standard screaming. And he cowers into a corner. Uh, the timing on this, I know the, from the time the mummy gets out to the time John's dad starts screaming, I think it takes about 15 seconds for the uncle to get in and to deal with the situation. Yeah. He's obviously a screaming man. You go and check on it immediately. The scene showed back again where you actually see the mummy come out and you see Mohammed Bay uh, grabbing the mummy's uh, stuff, his little box with his scroll in and everything else. In that scene, it takes him about a minute, 30 seconds to get and find John's dad. It takes yeah. his time, starts meandering around. It just annoyed me a little, the inconsistency there. Uh, talking about timing problems, Mohammed Bay uh, swears that they will all die. It takes a fucking while, as three years pass. Sets up some shit in England. Again, I think a revolver going there would have dealt with the issue perfectly fine. You could have done that in a week. Probably wouldn't get a prison, given how shit the police are here. 
So yeah, uh, after Mehmet Bey cut quickly to Peter Cushing and his uncle in Egypt still, they talk about the dad who deteriorated very quickly, uh, went insane. He's in a mental institution. It's not talking about the Egyptians, and I fuck all about mental medicine, which I found quite funny. Classic uh, English bravado. Eventually, yeah, he ends up in a British men's institution uh, and has various memory problems and the like. They blow the entrance of the tomb up with dynamite, which seems a little excessive, a little much. I'd have thought maybe get archaeologists in to keep an eye on that, but they blow the entrance in and yeah. shut it for all ages. I didn't actually ask if that was standard procedure. I'll have to look that one up. Uh, after that, though, after seeing that as well, of course, John Banning's leg is really fucked up at the moment. Uh, it seems to get better when he gets back to Britain. Is at the moment he's like, limping around it like jelly. It's wobbling everywhere. So we go back to Britain. Uh, cut to Pete Cushing and his wife Isabel sitting in a psychiatrist's office, an asylum. Uh, so. His wife, uh, Isabel Banning, uh, one thing that really annoyed me within this that is certainly made a lot better in the first film and done better as well in the third film. Yeah. Uh, Chekhov's Gun. You know Chekhov's Gun? Yeah, whole first act thing. Uh, in this film, as I said, she, you see her, not much of her. She, I think she has like five lines uh, before you actually get to know that, oh, she was... She looks vaguely like the priest's uh, lover. Uh, and it's, it's not set up until about halfway through the second act, going into the third act. And it's the main driving force of what ends up being the mummy's downfall, her looking quite like his ex-lover. It's something that really needs to have been set up at the start. Uh, just a passing comment of, oh, you look quite yeah. like this woman. It's how you need to do it. Chekhov's going to applies to props as well as plot points. You need some everything set up in the first act. But yeah, they're in a psychiatrist's office in this asylum. Their dad, it's been about three years, deteriorated very fast, the dad. Uh, has memory problems still because uh, Peter Cushing, John Banning, he is sent in to see his dad uh, and he when walking up to his dad, walks with a little bit of a limp. You can't really see it as the audience. It's certainly a lot, I said, less pronounced than it was in Egypt. Uh, the dad doesn't remember how it was broken and says, oh, you should have seen a doctor after he uh, didn't advise that John head off. Yeah. So clearly still has some memory problems. I feel like this is more a lapse in uh, reason, lapse in his ability to think through stuff. Uh, He's more found clarity in the mummy and a singular a singular danger that's kind of put his mind on edge. That's the only thing he can kind of focus on, which is why he knows a bit more than he did before, why he's got a bit more of his memory back. He knows John Banning, because John Banning is uh, cursed by the mummy and may well die. He, he starts going about the mummy and how the mummy's going to kill everyone. A uh, little persecution complex is what the head of the asylum puts it down to uh, kind of dismiss it which is not how you do medicine might to be fair have been how they did medicine back then they weren't uh, the best 
I suppose if you say you're going to be killed by a mummy, that's you, yeah. you're going to be put down. It's nuts. I think at some point that's when they pull out the electroshock treatment and uh, give you a few volts to the cranium. Blood leeches and everything. Pull out all nine yards. Uh, yeah, so John Banning is quite put off by his father, but says he'll do his best to help. Realises there's still something quite off about him. And they don't know whether this is just a sudden slight lapse into reason that's going to be followed by more bouts of insanity or whether this is actual recovery. Uh, which, yeah, again, it's back then. They're not going to have any fucking clue. And he's insane because of a giant mummy. I can't imagine there's much case study prior to this about mummy insanity. They move over to a uh, pub. Uh, with truly a respectable depiction of working-class society, with two individuals. One uh, looks up, he's from Yorkshire. He plays a lot of... I can't remember the guy's name now. plays a lot of uh, soldiers, privates, and working-class individuals. Uh, and the other, I think he's from vaguely the same area, Manchester, I think it was. Same kind of deal with him. Both very prolific actors from what I could see, but uh, not really yeah. given the best material during this. So two gentlemen start talking about how they've been given a job by Mehmet Bey's character to transport some Egyptian material. Uh, they have, I think, just one beer. They sit down with one drink. They've not got any glasses by them, so I can't assume <laughs> they're taking anything else. And they get really drunk. What the fuck was in that drink? Yeah, they, they down it in one. Which I've, I've downed. Stop. I'm drinking now. And I can still talk coherently. Uh, they just step outside. And immediately as they cross the boundary between pub door and outside, they start wobbling everywhere. They're kind of at the same level as those uh, drunkards in Groundhog Day. A lot of the third day where they're you know bashing into everything. They start talking about how a horse is man's best friend and arguing. Just pissed out their minds. God knows what they put in that drink. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna go with pure ethanol. Lighter fluid. Just... I think that's the only way of seeing about it. It must have been drugs to get them that pissed that quickly. It must have been something drug wise. Uh, yeah, they start driving off down a very bumpy road with the mummy's case, which you find out it is uh, is bashing around quite violently it's hitting out of its case quite a bit mm -hmm. it's threatening to fall off basically and as they drive past what is an old people's insane asylum uh, they hear a window being smashed as john banning's dad uh, can sense innately that the mummy is being driven past and goes hysterical bashes a window in his room starts screaming out you won't kill me the mummy is coming here to kill me yeah you know that kind of stuff and uh, these two men sober up pretty much immediately and uh, begin to run away from the incredible threat from a geriatric lunatic. They uh, they do end up dropping the box into uh, so the artificially made swamp. I uh, mentioned earlier that Christopher Lee is bane of his leg's existence. Uh, and yeah, this box falling in, it just sinks towards the bottom with the mummy inside. Poor fucking guy. Looks terrible and must weigh a ton after this. That's one porter. It's yeah. got to get into the bandages and stuff, weighing the guy down. So massively miserable. He's already been killed and stood up right. Cuts the following day. 
and the local police chief, this kind of fat little English Bobby, uh, stands at the base of the swamp. These two guys have clearly gone over and said, I dropped something in the swamp. Uh, it was a bit of an accident. And the uh, police chief, it doesn't really scold them, just takes their information, asks who it is. Mehemet Bay, whose package it was, the uh, guardian of the tomb, comes over and says that it was some Egyptian relics. Seems fairly laissez-faire about the whole situation, not at all bothered that the mummy's at the bottom of the swamp. And I reckon regardless, I know that he knows the mummy can get out. In fact, I'm not quite sure why or where he found the two gentlemen to uh, deliver his mummy if he went round to the local pub. To be fair, he looks like he's doing fairly well for himself. He's got himself like a large house and all that. He could have literally hired an armed escort. Literally anything. But he's like, nah, these two idiots that are drunk in the bar. Yeah, you meet the one uh, English police officer in the entire area. He is. They've mentioned like there's a detective that comes involved and the detective says that, oh, we've got a few people for a mob together to protect you and it's one police officer. But yeah, the mummy's resurrected. I said, walks like the personification of staccato music. Pretty nice, to be fair. You can actually see Christopher Leo watch back over it and he bangs his feet against stuff as he's going, you can tell. As he like holds his legs back, poor guy. Uh, Mummy also suffers from what I call Michael Myers syndrome, where he walks everywhere at a very slow pace, meandering. Works in some stuff, the kind of stalky films, and this to some extent. He's more an ambush predator than a uh, actual physical confrontation, you know, running after you like a leather face kind of thing. Uh, though I feel like the Egyptians, guardians of their tomb, could they have not done better? Could they not have made something that ran? Is this really the best your magic can produce to protect the most important priestess in history? A fucking a walking bandaged fucking leper. Cut to Banning, uh, who's been locked in a loony bin, solitary cell, I think, solitary confinement. You can see the uh, kind of cushioned walls on the side. Uh, he's got one door, the reinforced steel. Well, you can't you can't hear anything through it. They make a point of saying that the uh, porter there, as Banning's father's asleep, says to him, "Oh, to get our attention, you need to ring a bell. You can't bang on the door; he won't hear you." And doesn't bother checking if he's heard that or understood that. Dickhead just leaves. It's a giant red button on the side of the wall. I've got a feeling if they're in a mental mental institution, they are literally, or, or at least I'm not even a men, I'm not even a mental patient. But if I saw a big red button that was like, oh, this just gets everyone's attention, I'd be pressing that motherfucker constantly, just to see who comes in acting annoyed, and they're like, why the fuck did we put a button in here? Maybe that's why I couldn't get anyone's attention. They disconnected the button because they're fucking fed up of it. They just pretend it works. They tell you, oh, there's a button here that we'll get our attention. It fucking won't. Yeah. It's literally just to keep your attention for like 10, 20 minutes a day. <laughs> Which apparently would work for me, so never mind. <laughs> yeah, other than those things, there's a uh, window in top corner which has iron bars 
on the outside portion of it and glass on the inside. Uh, it's a bit too high for him to reach, that's fair enough. Uh, the mummy comes to the iron barred window, uh, manages to take off the iron bars with his own hands. The dad at this point doesn't seem to give a shit. It's only when the mummy actually breaks the glass that he seems to actually care and starts running around panicking, banging on the door. Yeah. I think, yeah, breaking iron bars in half, that, that would get me panicking more than some guy in bandages that broke glass. Yeah, I will say his dad, even though uh, he wasn't awake during this, he's slamming on the door until the window is smashed. And then he's like, oh, when the, the mummy's inside the room, that's when I'll go for the button. Did he go for the button? I thought he just slammed on the door over and over again. Yeah, no, no, he slams on the door, the mummy enters the room... He runs to the button, the mummy grabs him and then obviously chokes him out. And I was like, if he knew about the button, just go to the button. As he's pulling the iron bars off. Yeah, this is uh, this film's version of the heart attack. The mummy tends to strangle people. It's its way of killing stuff. Uh, which is far more effective than the 1999 and 2017 version where the mummy just throws people around and doesn't really hurt them. Uh, and this one he does kill people. It's a lot more horror-centred, these first two films. The 1999 version, Action Adventure, and is great for it. 2017 version is mopey, Action Adventure, and is terrible for it. Uh, but these, far more on the side of horror, you get strangles, heart attacks. It's uh, less, I don't know, not comedic, but less goofy. Uh, so, he's dead. We cut to John Banning. Peter Cushing, sitting in a room with a number of other individuals, including his wife and what looks like a chief detective. And yeah, I've wrote down this quote from the film. Uh, I'm gonna, I've got a few scenarios just to point out quite how ridiculous it is. So the police detective, chief detective, there starts talking about the circumstances of the dad's death says that he was killed in the loony bin, the outside window was broken, and says, if it were not for the evidence of forced entry, I would have no hesitation in telling the doctor of the nursing home to look amongst his own inmates. Now, translation of that, I should put it, more or less, I'm a lazy idiot. Now, yeah, put this for you, Steph. So, pretend you have a wife. You're sitting at home. Yep. The wife, uh, she's been stabbed to death. Huge knife in the back. Door's been broken open. And you go to the police detective. It's initial kind of findings. And he looks towards you. Says, if it were not for the evidence of forced entry or the knife in her back, I'd have no hesitation telling the doctor of the home that she had a heart attack. That's more or less the fucking equivalent here. Or that yeah. she tripped on her own clothes. Why would you say this to anyone? Yeah. Why would you say that if it were not for obvious evidence of entry, I would be wrong about my estimation and how she died? <laughs> it's like going, okay, if it wasn't for this very clear evidence, I'd be happy just pinning this like murder on something. At no point as well is 
Peter Cushing accused of possibly murdering his dad. And later, when his uncle's killed, uh, and he claims a mummy killed both of them, at no point do they go, you know what, we're going to arrest you for possibly killing your dad and uncle and blaming a mummy, you crazy bastard. Is uh, In most murder cases, I think it's something ridiculous, like 60% of murder cases, the uh, victim knew the murderer. And I think Peter Cushing would be fucking yeah, yeah. suspect number one. Immediately, look, he died in your house. There's no evidence of anyone else. You're going to fucking jail. Yeah. Especially, oh, your father died after you've just met him privately. You could have been about anything, about, I don't know, life insurance or fucking anything like that. He died the day after you've met him. And then, as your uncle is staying at your house, you're the only witness to see him being murdered by what you say is a giant walking corpse wrapped in cloth. That's what you're telling me. Would you please put out your hand so I can please put the Please just put your head on? in this noose. We're just going to cut to right. the chase. But they are useless, so they'll do that. Uh, Peter Cushing and his uncle, no, John Banning, his uncle. Uh, it, it's really hard not to say Peter Cushing because he is that iconic. And I don't think you can really remove Peter Cushing from the actual roles he's in. I'm not saying he's one note. Certainly he's different from like Grand Moff Tarkin. But uh, it's just got such a presence on mm-hmm. screen all the time. It's, it's just got that look about him. Very distinct. And very... Uh, distinct way of talking as well it's really hard to to remove him not a bad thing certainly Mm -hmm. he's just a a legend uh so yeah john banning and his uncle start trying to think through who would have murdered the dad who wanted him dead uh and john banning starts coming up with a story he's already on the kind of theory that a mummy killed the dad he talks about uh and uh, is it Imhotep in this one? I'm trying to remember. Oh, Karis. And this is this movie's uh, version of the backstory. All three of them have this. In the first one, obviously, it was about the same time as this. In the 1999 version, it's right to start, which I think is still the better way of doing it. Uh, it's narrated by Peter Cushing all the way through. Uh, Christopher Lee... Poor, poor Christopher Lee goes in blackface. Uh, white hand of Saruman. Missing him there, obviously. More the black hand of Sauron. And the black hand of unfortunate 1950s media. It's part of the times. Yeah. As I think does um, the girl uh, who plays Anunka and Isabel Banning. It's the same actress in this one. Yvonne Ferro. In the later ones, they change the actress up or have it be someone of the uh, ethnicity in the 2017 version, which is certainly the better way of doing it. But as I said, part of the times. So, yeah, he goes over the story, uh, but more or less what happened. Anonka and uh, Karis, Christopher Lee's character, were in love. It's forbidden and all that stuff. Uh, Anonka ends up dying. Christopher Lee uh, starts performing funerary rites. He's like the head priest kind of thing. And she was quite important as well uh, in that tomb that she was placed within. Uh, The funeral rites take about five days. 
and then once again the servants are murdered. I don't think the soldiers are killed this time. Slightly less um, harsh. Is it loyalty of these people? Yeah. I'd be squirming. I'd be kicking and screaming. Yeah, I'd be like, oh, uh, I left my ritualistic robes outside. Let me go get them. And then as soon as I'm outside the door, I'm fucking running. Similar to the first film as well, the uh, actual procession, there's a funeral procession, Egyptian. Looks really good. They've got uh, cows like pulling across sarcophagi. They've got, um, like, not floral floats, but the, the kind of thing, yeah, it's like a parade. All the costumes are really nice, yeah. really neat. Uh, it's just generally quite well done. And Lee, after giving the funeral rites thing over the five days, the tomb is secured, uh, very, very secured with uh, a bit of shitty rope that can be cut off with a dagger very easily. Christopher Lee immediately breaks back in to the temple uh, in secret, which he shouldn't be doing. And I never got why he didn't just have some backup, something, or a sword on him. Just because he knows if he's caught, he's fucked. And when he was breaking in, there were people outside the tomb. Could he not take a few minutes and just go, oh, lads, I think I saw a thief on that other side of the hill. You should go check that out. I'll keep secure in the tomb. Another quote I want to put. But now Anonka was dead when he sees the dead. Obviously, he was talking about forbidden love before this, yeah. But now Anonka is dead. And the vows were no longer binding. Might just be my perverted mind, but I genuinely thought he was going to fuck the corpse for a moment. Wank all over her. It might be just me. Probably just me. So, yeah, the uh, priest is found and captured before he can complete any rituals or anything that he wants to do. Remarkably compliant, again, with his captors. His tongue's cut out... Uh, Originally, I believe that scene was left in, where his tongue was removed entirely, and you could see the blood and spurts and everything. But the uh, the British censors back in the day notoriously difficult to get something past, and they told them to remove it. I think there was something else as well, some bloody scene later on that they uh, removed. Yeah, British censors terrible back then. It was it was really well done. Uh, I think it's somewhere on YouTube. The original. And yet he ends up getting mummified and he's left as a guardian of the tomb. Uh, quite happily just walks into the uh, the compartment that you find him in later. As I said, very compliant. Doesn't kick up a fuss. Me personally, I'd be kicking, screaming, harming as many people as I could. I'd want to die before getting in there. He's been stuck for 3,000 years. It's not anything. It's more of like a, a peeve. For me personally, uh, it it was as he's getting basically he's being wrapped in the the bandages now, and basically they're just about to pick him up and put him into the sarcophagus. One of the dudes almost drops him on his head. I don't know if you've if you caught it or not, but one of them, the one that's picking him up by his legs, just literally literally picks him up by the legs, holding him steady. The guy that's got him, like, by the shoulders and head, like, picks him up, kind of almost drops him, kind of throws him up a bit and kind of, like, half holds him. And then they 
like kind of shuffle over to the sarcophagus and kind of dump him. I'll just in. put that down to incompetence of the actual actors and uh, yeah. real characters. Yeah, I, I, that's fair. Jesus, he, he like that almost could have been another thing to go to uh, his trivia of Christopher Lee injuries. <laughs> I'd rather not go over a Christopher Lee has brain damage. And the mummy! Yeah. Mummy, 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 mummy. <laughs> mummy! Uh, so, yeah, so the priest ends up within the compartment and Cushing ends the story there. His uncle, at this point, tells him to not believe in mythology and to not go into any of that, to not um, take any heed of that sort of stuff. Mummy once again sat out to kill by Mohammed Bay. He walk, walking down these roads, uh, quite uh, nice forested areas actually, quite creepy looking. Spotted by a local drunk, just wandering and limping around. Again, I'm kind of asking, is this the best the Egyptian gods could really do? Yeah. Uh, the drunk runs off, goes to a pub to start kind of shouting about, oh, there's a mummy, there's a mummy. Sits down on the table, and maybe this is just me being an alcoholic. He sits against the stall. It really annoyed me that he says, oh, get me a whiskey, make it a large one. And the guy pours him the smallest fucking shot, probably less than a unit. To be fair, the the owner of the pub was probably like, you don't have the money for a large one. Fuck it, I'm going to give you that the Or he's using the same kind of alcohol that the poor twats at the start of the film had, I suppose. And just a large one here, it might yeah. kill you if we go any more, mate. Uh, yeah, he starts ranting and raving about the mummy. Uh, meanwhile, the mummy itself breaks down the door of Peter Cushing's home, John Manning's home, breaking, not breaking shoulder, dislocating his shoulder in the process. Christopher Lee, that is. Kills the uncle by strangling yeah. him. Uh, John Banning takes his time to get the guns out. Yeah, I think he watches him completely strangle out his uncle. Then he's like, okay, now I'm going to go unlock the gun cabinet while the mummy's walking out the door. Now I'm going to go run and shoot him in the back. I guess he was too wrapped up in the situation. I was going to clap for that one, but I decided They're getting to. worse, I think. Yeah, I think they are. <laughs> mummy kills the uncle. John shoots it. I think it's really a revolver, isn't it? Gets him about like four times. Twice. Twice, is it? No, it, yeah, hits him in the back twice... And then literally every other shot is like wide or he's just firing off camera. They, uh, they do keep count of their shots during these films. So the detective uh, comes over and starts talking to John about death of the uncle and death of the father. Uh, he has no real leads at this point, obviously, except for John Banning, who clearly murdered his father and uncle dressed up as a mummy, Scooby-Doo style and is pretending that an actual mummy's going about. This is actually the plot of a Scooby-Doo story. You can quite easily shove this in. He was going after the inheritance of his dad and uncle, dressed up as a mummy, killed them, and uh, he's blaming an actual mummy. It's scene for scene. The detective uh, doesn't believe it's a mummy, and uh, instead starts going around detecting. He's pretty fucking useless, generally. Uh, meanwhile, he leaves... Peter Cushing, John Banning, and Isabel Banning in the house where the murder has already been with a broken door. Because that's safe. 
maybe take him to a police station. Yeah, not, like, not even advise him to stay in a hotel. He was just like, nah, this is your house, you stay here. When the, and I'm using air quotes, mummy comes back, he won't even know where you are. Fuck it. It's fine. That would genuinely be the end of the film if it had just pissed off to a hotel somewhere. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah, he stays there. Uh, this one he talks to Isabel Banning. Says to her, <laughs> I do love this, it's such a douchebag line that she looks a lot like an onker, which I said should have been covered much, much earlier. Uh, and she says, oh, who's an onker? And he says, oh, she was once the prettiest woman in the world. He says, oh, flatterer. He says, oh, Oh, don't worry about it. There weren't that many women around back then, yeah. mate. For fuck's yeah. sake, you were on a r- winning streak. Don't don't say that. If you shut up, if you shut up after that line, you would have been getting some, getting some tonight. But after you like, oh, don't worry. Fucking, there wasn't that many women around, and what there was, they were fucking ugly. You, it's not a fucking compliment after you've said all that. Yeah, she, does, she takes that relatively well, actually. Uh, I said earlier, honestly, I had no idea whether it was the daughter or the wife, Isabel Banning, before this, because she's barely in it. And I looked it up, because I was, I wanted to make sure that I was reasonable in my estimation, and there is a 15-year difference between the actor and actress. With all that going on, the detective, who very wisely left John uh, in his home... Uh, finds amazingly his plan falls apart as the mummy breaks back into the house that John's in and knows he was in Uh, John shoots two rounds from a hunting shotgun and this is the point as well where Christopher Lee the squibs that they used uh, to show the bullet holes burnt him and stayed for months yeah to be fair they were fucking huge they look fucking good as well like yeah like a large part of his shoulder had a, like a fucking large hole and like a bit of his stomach, I think it was. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of different shot points here, there, and everywhere. Uh, as well as that, he's stabbed by a poker, which is the last scene shot in the film. So when the poster was being mm-hmm. made, uh, don't know if you've seen the poster. Very famous. I think it, it's the actually no. second best-selling poster of all time. The poster from the 1932 version recently sold for, I think, 600 grand. And this one sold for, like, 500. Uh, it is a good poster. It has a like a beam of light shooting out of the mummy's chest, about the same place where he's impaled. Uh, and Peter Cushing himself looked over the poster and said, hang on, there's no point where, you know, he's poked through the chest or anything. What if I do that if we quickly shoot a scene like that? And, yeah, they shot it for that reason. Uh, oh, fair enough. Yeah, it's nice to see Cushing kind of keeping consistency up. He was always very good for that. Very good uh, writer. Once off everything else. Uh, yeah, the mummy uh, looks like he's going to kill Cushing. But then Anonka, uh, partially because she looks like Anonka, partially because she has the same hairstyle as Anonka, Isabel Banning, the mummy uh, looks towards her and she sends the mummy off. And then the detective comes back after uh, after the mummy's pissed off and starts saying that, you know, I believe you now that I've heard some madman in a pub say that he's seen a bandaged man walking around. 
that that was enough to confer that there is an actual ancient 3,000-year-old mummy walking around and yeah. not you as a madman dressed as a mummy. Yeah, I feel like at this point, if he's a good detective, he'd be like, okay, he saw him after I confronted him about not not believing him about a dude, a fucking six-foot dude walking around in fucking cloth. Maybe he's fucking put on a bit of cloth and started walking around the woods for a bit just to get some sightings and then fucked off back home. I can seriously see Fred and Shaggy unmasking the prick. Honest to God. (laughs) You can hear it now. Old man Bannings. Yeah, the detective believes him now. Detective comes back uh, and has an amazing plan. They're going to leave uh, Banning there as bait for the time being. And he's going to gather up a posse ready to pounce on the mummy. Uh, In a house with a broken window, I feel like, again, anything else than leaving him in a giant house by himself, no protection, and just a gun. It's, yeah, the door's unlocked as well. Later, you find out they left it unlocked for uh, Mehemet to just open and wander in from. Yeah. Because uh, during this conversation, they fight. Uh, well, the detective tells um, Banning that uh, there is an Egyptian guy literally like half a mile down the street. That's uh, that's gotta be a coincidence. So don't worry about it. Obviously, Banning's like, no, clearly it's not. I'm gonna, uh, uh, I'm not gonna go check on it. Wink, wink detective leaves to round up the villagers while Banning goes to talk to Mehemet Bey. Yeah, dresses up like a badass in kind of the old, uh, look, remind me of the exorcist priest kind of garb as he starts. Yeah, he kind of, it's that small kind of tartan cape sort of thing. It's like off the shoulder cape. Yeah, it's like a, like a fucking off the shoulder cape. It's small. And then just kind of walks up there with his fucking um, beagle cap and a cigarette in mouth. And he's like, oh, can I come in? I heard there was an Egyptian. I just recently came in. There's the whole, pretty much the same scene as what was in the first one. Basically just trying to size each other out and see how much each other know. Out of the four films, this is my favourite scene of the entirety of it. I, I absolutely love scenes like this, adore them where they're both trying to gauge as much information as possible, both know that they want the other dead. And it's it's uh, really, it lets the the actors do their best. It really lets them shine. And Peter Cushing, if you let Peter Cushing shine, then you get absolute beauty. And George Purcell, I can't you know undersell that. He's amazing. I don't really have anything to say beyond that, other than it's it's really great. Yeah, I will say that uh, Banning does absolutely everything he can to completely antagonise Pastel. Like, just like, yeah, you fucking god shit. You fucking... Your clothes are shit. Your fucking stupid hat shit. These these antiques, they're shit. And he's like, alright, I'm going to put my cigarette out on your table. I'm going to leave now, okay? Bye. <laughs> I'm going to be at my house for a while. And I did then... love how uh, Mehemet 
he uh, goes from, I'm a civilised man, I don't care about artefacts being destroyed, to, you're a cunt, leave. Yeah, pretty much. He was like, oh, you want to talk shit about my god, you get the fuck out of my house. You'll be seeing, seeing a mummy later, <laughs> pretty much. And then when he goes back to the house, the detective comes in. It's like, you went to his fucking house, didn't you? He's like, maybe. Okay, yeah, I did. But it's clearly him. It's We know it's him. I know it's him. So it's like, okay, we've got the villagers all around. There's like a perimeter. Basically, if anything happens, we'll know about it because there'll be shots fired. And then they do not know anything. (laughs) As um, Mehemet basically summons the mummy to kind of shamble over to... uh, Banning's house murder literally every policeman oh sorry the one policeman and the villagers that are around the house although you were technically right the first time literally every policeman the one guy later they somehow find a posse of people to shoot the mummy uh, who weren't available at this time apparently they were doing something they had uh, croquet and they didn't want to miss the game I don't know they weren't apparently. No, I assume they're all fucked up in that pub. There's <laughs> no fucking way they'd have hit the mummy with those drinks. They'd been pissed out of their mind. Ah, put scatter shot in your shotguns, you'll be fine. But um Yeah, so the the police and the, the other villagers they're all fucking decimated, except for the detective, because it looks like he's standing just on the fucking pavement that leads to his house. Yeah. So he's not hidden. He's literally just out in the open. Uh, Isabel as well has been hidden, taken with a detective. Said it's safer outside than inside. I think I would have left her in an upstairs room. Personally, I think that's probably the safest place to be. But uh, the detective knows his police work better than me, I suppose. Uh, The mummy gets in, regardless, because they left the door open. Again, the detective knows better than me, I suppose. Yeah, because after killing everyone that didn't fire a single shot, obviously the the fucking mummy's clearly not going to be able to walk into a just open house. No, yeah. Yes. Uh, rather, yeah, they just left the door open, Mehmet opens it up, mummy and him walk in. Uh, Peter Cushing, John Banning, goes to shoot the mummy. Uh, I think he misses, or he doesn't fire. Yeah, the mummy grabs it, learns his mistake, pulls it up in the air before Banning can get a shot off against him. Uh, at which point, uh, Isabel comes in. Her hair is in a little kind of ponytail thing style. Done up, rather than an Ankers. Uh, an Ankers style, which looks kind of like Leia's style from Return of the Jedi at the Ewok party. And because of this, the mummy doesn't recognise Isabel without her hair down. Uh, I thought, it's, it's the love of your life. Can you not see her without yeah. her hair down? I mean, from what we saw in the little clips earlier, she was wearing a fucking headdress. So you couldn't have seen her fucking hair anyway. But because the picture that was shown to us, like, oh, you clearly look like her. 
had her hair down in the picture. Yeah, so uh, she lets her hair down, tells the mummy to stop. Mehmet Bay uh, tells the mummy to kill the woman. And I think this again comes to how shit her Egyptian curses and stuff that the mummy can be compelled by this woman to any extent yeah if he has somewhat if they have somewhat of a look uh, same look as someone they knew in night life then your curse is fucked yeah i'd have rather gone for the kind of mindless zombie ghoul-esque thing i'd be on that three thousand years you're gonna fucking insane at that point aren't you you're not gonna remember yeah. what she looks like regardless you're not going to remember shit. But I suppose true love and all that. And the mummy uh, does take true love to heart as Mehmet Bey's back is uh, broken. While the mummy's kind of standing there refusing to kill her, Isabel, Mehmet Bey goes up to stab her in the chest, I assume. Gets caught by the mummy. Has his back broken. Which looks almost fucking cool. Like, grabs him yeah. by uh, the head twists him down at a 90 degree angle so his chest is flat and then kicks his back in. Uh, properly vicious. Mehmet Bay is dead. Vicious attack. Looks really good. Uh, proper like WWE style um, move there. Following which the mummy kidnaps Isabel and starts taking her from what Peter Cushing and the detective first assume is the Egyptian's house, and Mehmet Bay's house, uh, but turns out to be the swamp. Christ knows why he's taking her to a swamp. Because I don't think her uh, sarcophagus is there, but the swamp it is. No, not even his. No, yeah, they took the sarcophagus out and put it in um, Mehmet's home. So, <laughs> what do you know? Uh, but yeah, they travel along, and uh, Banning and the detective see that they're taking Isabel into the swamp. Uh, and then as the mummy is currently holding Isabel, kind of cradling her in his arms, the detective grabs out a shotgun, a proper like hunting shotgun. This thing with one hell of a kickback and a huge spread. Goes to shoot them until John Panning says, no, don't shoot them, you'll hit the girl, you moron. You'll kill my wife instantly with a spread like that. Uh, so instead they wait till they get into the swamp and John Banning says to Isabel, you know, wake up, wake up. She gets up, sees the situation, says, you know, tell her to put you down, tell him to put you down, tell him to put you down. She does so. The yeah. mummy, John Banning tells Isabel to tell the mummy to put her down and she does so as the mummy puts her down in this swamp. Uh, following which the mummy is blasted to Kingdom Come. There's about what, nine guys, all with guns, that fire off like mad, that were nowhere to be seen. Yeah, they fanned out like a fucking military precision attack, and they fucking circled the swamp and just fucking fired into this fucking single mummy. Which, by the way, at this point has had two shotgun shells and, like, two rounds into his back. I don't think at this point guns kill it. But... Yeah, and with saying this is how the film ends, it is that abrupt. I think we mentioned in the first film, he gets shot to shit, Cushing yeah, it, grabs it, his wife's hand out the swamp, and it ends. 
Yeah, it's literally that's the credits, which fucking threw me through a loop. So it's not quite as bad as the last one. No real loose ends to tie up. Uh, mummy sunk into the swamp. Monsters dead. Girls saved. That's that's the end of that, I suppose. It's how a lot of these films did end back in the day. You had um, obviously double features, where you had two films back to back, so they couldn't really uh, piss around for too mm-hmm. long. They had to finish them at a clean cut ninety minutes, otherwise people would yeah lose their shit. It's back in the day. Um, that's the whole Rocky Horror science fiction double feature. Uh, I think no, one right, thing we've got to mention, Christopher Lee's acting. The acting generally is really good. Peter Cushing's amazing. Mohammed Bay, I think, goes toe-to-toe with him. Uh, the rest, yeah, they're all right. They do the job fine. The uncle and the dad's actually really good. Uh, Christopher Lee acts pretty much entirely through his eyes yeah. in this and does a really good job through the entire thing. Uh does get across the emotion he needs to give across with still retaining that monstrous, wide-eyed look. Uh, not quite as intimidating, I think, as the Boris Karlov mummy. It doesn't quite have that same presence. It's more monstrous. It's less um, conniving, less... Yeah, this one was kind of like a mindless kind of... Cool slapstick, just moved if anything. But he still yeah. did a good job of what he had. The director and the writer also did pretty damn good job other than the couple things here and there but But enough with the old in with the new and by far and away my favourite of the four a film that I won't hesitate in calling borderline perfect I'll get straight into it so director and writer uh, both Stephen Summers uh, his own little baby he tends to write and direct a lot of his films. Has done a lot of really bad stuff, to be fair, including the latter Mummy sequels. The Mummy Returns is pretty good, the second Mummy. But the Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, remember that one? Mm-hmm. Uh, fair, you remember the CGI from uh, yeah, Mummy that. Returns with uh, The Rock? Poor fucking guy. With the... Uh... I uh, looked up the IMDb for... The Mummy, obviously, and how it's got um, the Mummy Two, the Mummy like the Mummy Returns, and the Mummy Tomb of uh, Dragon Emperor. Literally nowhere in the IMDb does it mention the Scorpion King in the second. Probably rightly so. It didn't look good. Just a f- it. It's literally mentioned at the start and at the end, and then that's it. So yeah, other films that Stephen Summers has done: uh, Van Helsing film. Which annoys me to say had one of the best werewolves of all time in film. Werewolves never done well in film. I think Dog Soldiers, American Wolf in London, both of them really good there. The Howling One, Howling Two, not so good. Ginger Snaps, not bad. But uh, Van Helsing, terrible film generally, but really good werewolves in it. As well as the G.I. Joe film, Cobra Kai and all that stuff. Never watched G.I. Joe when I was a kid. Yeah, I never, I never watched the cartoon. I knew it was a thing, but I've never seen it. But unfortunately, I watched the actual films. I never watched those either. I've been told they're terrible. Yeah. He also did a 1994 Jungle Book live-action film, which I didn't know existed until now, with uh, Lena Headey, uh, Cersei from Game of Thrones, or uh, Sarah Connor from the Sarah Connor Chronicles, uh, or um, the wife in The Purge. 
uh, and Sam Neill of uh, who's a great actor of Jurassic Park fame, of course. And um, so yeah, it's uh, it not he's not a bad director and writer. He's just done some shit films. Uh, acting wise, there's Brendan Fraser, who's one of my favourite actors of all time. Plays Rick O'Connell. Uh, he had one hell of a heyday in the nineties, George of the Jungle, which is it's it is good. Uh, Bedazzled, yeah. which I don't remember that one where he makes wishes with the devil. I actually watched this one a few days ago. I quite like it. Yeah. Uh, also in one of my favourite shows of all time, Scrubs, where he played uh, yeah. brother of uh, Jordan in one of the saddest scenes in Scrubs of all time. One of my favourite episodes as well. And he, he really made it. Uh, he's coming back, actually, into film. He's got a few roles lined up. Had a very unfortunate situation. A uh, bit of a Me Too situation, actually, where he got pretty much molested by a Hollywood executive and got shooed out the limelight. Uh, really glad to see he's back in action and doing yeah. horror, actually, as it happens. Obviously, he's a very good actor. Part of or another part of why he wasn't in film for a long time. That, as well as these films, health and safety wasn't really a, or that much of a huge thing back then. Might as well mention that now, actually. Uh, so the many injuries of Brendan Fraser, which kind of put Chris Felice to shame. In all of his films, he had the shit kicked out of him. Mm-hmm. He's had to have surgery for years after. The worst injury he had is in The Mummy where he uh, basically dead for 18 seconds. In the scene where he's hanged fairly soon into the film, he leant into the rope against his neck for a better shot and uh, ended up hanging himself. The rope luckily snapped uh, as it's cut off and he restarted his own heart as he fell onto it on the ground. Had to be resuscitated as well, uh, which, yeah, is insane apparently he blacked out on the rope and woke up on the ground wondering what the hell happened uh, which i believe is the shot they used yeah to be fair if i die during a shot and am resuscitated i'd want that shot fucking put in too i died for this shot so you fucking put it in yeah it could have been a proper crow situation which would have been a real tragedy but yeah luckily uh survived it obviously uh, other than Brendan Fraser, Rachel Wise, who another very, very talented actress. Uh, recent film she did, which I've seen, The Favourite, which is a Victorian style thing with Olivia Coleman and um, Olivia, uh, oh, the Doctor Who companion from a couple of years ago with uh, Peter Capaldi. Uh, very good film. Yeah, uh, My favourite by her personally, The Lobster which is a Colin Farrell film, really bizarre, about true love. And if you can't find true love in 30 days, you get turned into a lobster or an animal of your choice. Uh, and Colin Farrell picks a lobster. It's really, really weird, but really great. Uh, soon to be in the new Black Widow film. I think she plays a Russian villain or Russian hero. I saw a trailer at some point. Not too bothered, but uh, I'm sure she'd be great in it. Uh, otherwise, uh, Arnold uh, Vosloo. Really apologise for fuck that up. Uh, plays Imhotep in this. Does a pretty damn good job. Uh, not as good as Boris Karlov, I don't think. Plays a different type of Imhotep to Boris Karlov. A bit more physical. Yeah. Uh, he has been in a host of really terrible action films. 
don't know, did, did you recognise him from G.I. Joe? Yeah, he's one of the main bad guys in the first one. Right, well, there you go. Uh, also in Blood Diamond, which is a Leonardo DiCaprio film, and Darkman 2, uh, which reliably told is terrible as well. Uh, otherwise, other really big names, John Hanna, who plays Jonathan, you know, it's Jonathan Canrahan, uh, Rachel Weisz's brother, uh, was in a few Scottish films, is very Scottish, McCollum, the series, Rebus, another series, and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the uh, Marvel show, trained in, I think, Edinburgh. Uh, and then uh, Omid uh, Dajali, who's very famous British comedian, pretty damn good stand-up comedian, actually, as it happens, who was in Gladiator, of course, and uh, the Shaun the Sheep movie, which I'll fight people on this, is uh, actually really good. Very good cast. I don't think there was a single bad actor in the whole thing. Benny as well. Can't remember the guy actor's name now, but he does a really good job. You want to punch the guy in the face. At five minutes in. Benny. Kevin J. O'Connor. Hopefully went on to do some pretty good stuff. I don't think I've seen him in anything else, but... Uh... So, this one, starting off to go see my scene, starts off in Egypt, which... I still reckon the better way of doing it, starting in Egypt to allow the whole story to flow naturally rather than stopping and starting halfway through and adding in uh, an Egyptian scene like they're doing the first two films. And to be honest, in the 2017 film that for some fucking reason goes from modern day to Egypt in the first minute. So the film starts off in modern day Egypt. Far more action adventure than horror really. Uh, though I'd argue one of the best films to kind of uh, introduce horror to a little kid. Uh, along with, I always thought Coraline was really good at that sort of stuff. Uh, when this first came out, I was seven. And this yeah, scared the shit out of me when I was still a kid. I watched it a few days ago and I was like, yeah, I'm a grown up now, I'm good. But when you're still a kid, some of this can fucking be terrifying, so... For me, this is the scariest film we've ever done, likely will be the scariest film we ever do, uh, because I'm scared of really pathetic things that we'll get into when we get to them. I am going to be a dick, and I am going to search for a film that is specifically about this fear that you have. Yeah, starting off in Egypt uh, with the head priest Imhotep, he's with his... Was it like the wife of the uh, pharaoh? A virgin wife or virgin priestess? Yeah, it's something like that. It's like, um, I don't think she's a virgin, obviously, but I think it's like his like prized concubine, maybe. And no other man is allowed to touch her. And I remember that being a part of it, but. Yeah, it very quickly gets pointed out that someone touches Yeah, the her. priest lives in his own city. I think it was Thebes, which uh, used to be, I think, the religious capital of ancient Egypt. Does a very good job, the uh, mummy, during this, and the priest. He uh, retains. Mm-hmm. He's far more physical, as I said, but uh, he, he has that intimidating presence throughout it. Uh, he meets up with his lover, his uh, forbidden Lover, who played by uh, Patricia uh, Velasquez, who's got most of her costume uh, is painted on, 
body paint. There's a couple jewels here and there, but all that uh, gold and stuff, most of it was paint. Yeah, honestly, I was, well, I, yeah, I'm a dude. Uh, I'm a horn- I was a horny young boy, so I knew for a fact that when I first watched it, she was pretty much completely naked and in body paint. I I looked for jiggle physics, if you know well, what I mean. I'm just blind. Uh, so yeah, the priest. It said he's in his own city. He kind of rules over a little area, uh, and the pharaoh decides to give him a uh, secret inspection for some reason. The priest doesn't bother locking the door while doing something that you know could have him murdered uh, and undergo unimaginable torture and uh, neither does he have like, an appointment schedule with the king the king just turns up the pharaoh turns up and says oh howdy need this this and this at late night and then that's when he finds the uh, two forbidden lovers together so the woman Tells the mummy to run off. He's the only one who can resurrect her. And she's then killed. Uh, not off screen, kind of silhouetted. Stabbed with a spear. Cut across the back. All looks very nice. Puts a bit more of a fight. No. Uh, no, she stabs herself. Oh, she stabs herself. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's the pharaoh that's killed. He's stabbed in the back. And then Imhotep pulls out a sword and cuts him. Well, yeah, I know the Pharaoh's... Okay, Pharaoh killed then. She stabs herself in the stomach. Fair enough. Imhotep pisses off, takes her body, uh, leaves to uh, Hamanatra, the city of the dead, in an attempt to resurrect her. It says some you know, forbidden stuff and the like. Once again, fails to lock the door to Hamanatra as the Pharaoh's bodyguards come out the fucking woodworks to stab the prick and stop the ritual. Uh, and he gets about halfway. There's a big CGI ghost thing that comes up to try to go into the uh, lover's body. Fails to do so. And, yeah, the uh, the lover is, I presume, kind of mummified and put away somewhere. The priest himself undergoes a ritual, uh, which is meant to be absolutely horrific and torturous. The problem with the ritual comes up very quickly. The ritual, when done on the priest, if the priest is awoken, he uh, destroys the world. He's immortal. He, ba- it's basically like, oh, this curse is only given to like the the gravest of sinners in this this planet and whatnot. So the curse is basically immortality if awoken. Immortality unleashes ten plagues upon the earth. And basically a lot of bad shit goes down when he's awake. Yeah, you could do Which, this ritual. You could, but why the fuck would you? Yeah. What, just Yeah. As I think he said earlier, just chop his balls off, let him bleed out. Yeah. Dude's, dude's sleeping with the pharaoh's like concubine. Just cut off his dick, let him bleed out to death. That's probably enough. But no, nope, we're going to do this almighty cursed ritual that should never be done on fucking anyone but we'll do it on him and then we'll just hide the body and hope no one wakes him up it is apparently really painful maybe they thought well no one will wake him up in our lifetime so it's not our fucking problem yeah but like even like the descendants 
in in like that are com- that come up later on, they're like, oh yeah, we we push everyone away from the body. Just fucking just go in there, burn the body, and then be done with it. You don't fucking wake him up. You just fucking go in, burn the body, done. Oh, the whole Descendants thing's just levied with plot holes. Why they didn't get the Golden Book until now? Why they didn't deal with everything else? Why they didn't have... Yeah. Why they didn't kill just everyone who went near it? It's the end of the world if this happens. Don't be fucking merciful. But yeah, anyway, he's given this curse. He's placed in a sarcophagi with a load of scarabs that eat him. Uh, apparently very slowly because he's got time to write out stuff on the inside of the coffin yeah uh he writes death is only the beginning yeah yeah precisely that so clearly gets used to the scarabs at some point and just starts yeah wording it out (laughs) it's just like oh this is another day here we go so we cut to say modern day i think what was it 1925 i want to say Yes, it was 1926. Half by a year, not bad. So uh, this is isn't the earliest. It's mid middle of the pack between the 32 and 88. 19, 18, 98. There we go. Uh, we start off with uh, Benny, who's the resident coward, and Rick O'Connell, played by Brendan Fraser who are in Hamanaptra to start with, City of the Dead, uh, currently defending it off from a incoming horde, kind of Mongol crossed with Zulu-style thing, a load of cavalry uh, on horseback with rifles outstretched, while uh, Rick and Benny, with a load of other just Arabian soldiers, all have guns outplaced ready, in a really uh, Zulu reminiscent uh, showdown, yeah, you know, fight get down Napoleonic style fight. Which I always love uh, those kind of in cover firing off against an encroaching enemy. Always great. Uh, and the the leader just pisses off. At which point Benny says, "Rick, you've been promoted to commander." And then Benny runs off because he yeah, is a perpetual coward for the entirety of it, and it's just beautiful. And constantly gets a shit kicked out of him at every possible turn. Yeah, pretty much. Like, at one point, you're like, oh, he's clearly dead at this point, and then he's just there again. He's there to be a punching bag, more or less. Uh, Yeah, uh, action sitting its full flavour now. It's the best of the four films by far, the action. And it's done in that kind of really 90s goofy in a good way certainly uh, with Rick O'Connell barely dodging each shot he gets the gun out fires it from the hip shoots three guys you know swings on a rope kind of Indiana Jones style uh, less uh, is now the John Wick very slick very precise and uh, deliberate action where you know throws one knife it kills one guy then he does a handstand jumps over kills another Back then, I think it was more more casual with its action. Yeah, yeah. it's more uh, quippy and it's more um, not casual, more like flippant with it, maybe. Kind of just like, 
yeah, I'll kill like six people over here and then I'll spin around and kill six people over there and then I'll spin around to kill two more over there. It's it's a bit more um on mass. Yeah, I think that's a fair way of saying it, flippant. It's, it's it's still really good. I think there's a time and place for styles like this and this perfect place for it. I do like the John Wick stuff as well. Uh and it, unfortunately I think this nineties kind of action's died out now. I can't think of a recent film that's come anywhere close. Possibly the recent Jumanji film. If you've seen those with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, I think that might be the closest. I wouldn't even say that, maybe. Like, uh, it's close, but it's that's more like a... Again, it's more quippy and it's it's not killing anyone. It's more just like... I'm going to knock them out. Sort of oh, thing. yeah, people die in this. It's just fist fighting, isn't it? Shit load yeah. of people die. I always find it really funny, the rating system uh, that they have. The ESR, ESRB, I don't actually know how the UK system works, but in America at least, it's rated by, um, I think, like 500 people who watch the film and just decide arbitrarily what to put it at. You get so many fucks, so many shits, so many cunts in a film. You get to so show, you get to show so many breasts. Uh, if you show genitals, that's it. You're an 18. If you show blood, that's it. You're a 15. There are some hard and fast rules, but otherwise it's very arbitrary. And this film, I, I think they've really cut the border on it. They pushed as far as they fucking could with that PG-13 rating they got. Oh yeah, yeah. I was just the fire, the acid spray, everything. They really pushed hard and fast. Uh, still really good. But yeah, Rick. Uh, he's doing this classic adventure stuff. He's dodging bullets. He drops his gun as the gun's shot at. He continues running around. He ends up against. Uh, I think it's the statue of Horus. He ends up against the base of. He's back to the wall. Uh, as the horses, I don't think so much the guards as the horses begin to kind of sense the evil and just run off terrified as the guards also then horrified uh, start running off as the horses do as a uh, bit of sand that starts coming together into the shape of a mummy's face around Rick O'Connell who managed to roll out of the way and look at it I think I mentioned in I think it was Wishmaster how everyone after these films probably ends up becoming a monk a monk or a nun once they're all over. Uh, you reckon the cast of The Mummy ended up becoming stout Egyptians? I don't know what, I don't know what their term is. If they ended up worshipping uh, Horus and um, Isis. Ibis? Isis? It is Isis, isn't it? That's unfortunate. Ibis is the bird. But, uh, yeah, either way, he's attacked by the Mummy Sand, which Clearly indicates immediately that yes, this place is not haunted per se, but uh, demonic to some extent. So he ends up escaping as the the uh, battalion that attacked this place, the cavalry, for some reason just up and fucked off after beating the uh, other troops here. No idea where they went to, but lucky for him, I suppose. 
yeah, he just fucks off. Um, he looks back and sees a group of like seven like black cloaked or black robed people just sitting on horses on top of a large mountain. Yeah, Arabic descendants of yeah. uh, the I think the Pharaoh's guards. I think it was. They go all the way back there. And fairly useless, at least the leader is pretty useless. As the guy, uh, the leader, they ask him, should we go kill Rick O'Connell? And he responds with something along the lines of, uh, no, the desert will kill him. Mate, it's an immortal mummy. If it gets out, it's going to kill the world. Do you think he can be asked to at least just go down the cliff and stab the prick? Yeah, I mean, it's shown later that they have rifles and they know how to use them. Literally just a rifle shot off the top of the mountain would probably do it. Yeah, they could do that, but it's so hard. It takes so much effort. It can be bothered. Not only do they not kill Rick, should we say, they don't kill Benny, who pisses off as well at some point off screen. Yeah. Which... Yeah, that confuses me. Surprisingly too. merciful but, um, for guardians of an ancient evil that could end the world. Yeah, but Rick uh, leaves and he gets arrested off screen for trying to have a good time. It's left to your imagination what that is. Even the warden doesn't know precisely. I I think that he was just captured by the enemy soldiers. I was going to take a guess, but. Um, who knows? Yeah, there's there's a little comment that's like, yeah, we don't know why he's here, but when we asked, he said he was just looking for a good time. And then that's literally it. It's like, oh, it's to kind of solidify that Rick O'Connell's a quip shooting, rootin' tootin', revolver gunslinger dickhead sort of thing. Yeah, I'm happy to keep that up to imagination. Uh, so, move on to Rachel Wise's character. Jeez, I've just realised how badly I've spelt that in the notes. That's uh, staggering. Uh, so, Rachel Wise is a librarian. Very proud of that fact. Uh, brother to John Hannah's character, Jonathan. Uh, Canrahan, I think, the name, last name. Uh, she's currently filing away books uh, on a very tall ladder. Got to be about a story up, roughly, two stories up. Uh, And she decides it's a good idea to try to reach over to the other uh, stack of books in a shelf across from her and put one of the books away. I think it was like a tea book or something for a different uh, alphabetical section, at which point she manages to set the ladder into the middle of nowhere, kind of not leaning against anything to give her any uh, help, give her any uh, assistance in keeping her balance, panics, and then the ladder slams against one of the bookshelves and uh, proceeds to topple every single bookshelf in the library, uh, A to Z, in a kind of dominoes form, which done entirely in one take, in the first take. Bloody great it did. Uh, apparently it would have taken a couple of days to get everything back together and do another 
told there were sighs of relief after all that. Uh, so after she leaves the library in complete chaos, managed to roll out the way of a falling bookshelf, presumably, uh, the library uh, curator, is that the word? For a leader of a library? Yeah, curator comes in, who turns out to be uh, part of the guardians of Hamanaptra later on. He knows all about it, and that's part of the reason he's become the curator. He asks her what the hell happened here, and why the hell do I keep you around? Really nice speech about the great plagues of Egypt and how uh, Evelyn, Rachel Weiss's character, is even worse than any of those are. So yeah, asks, why do I keep you around? And she gives her credentials, says that she's the only librarian for a thousand miles, says that she can read ancient Egyptian uh, and ancient Arabic and translate it all. And then he responds with, no, no, I don't keep you around for that. It's because your mom paid in a load of money to the library, which is an excellent way of kind of jokingly giving exposition to say, oh, this is what this character can do. She can do all this stuff. Uh, while still keeping a, still keeping the story flowing, still keeping it entertaining. Obviously, the film's really, as you say, quippy, and it's uh, really fast on its feet. And you need to keep that pace up. You can't just expose it. And so that's what they do. They uh, kind of elevate it to entertainment by adding that little joke in. She's absolutely superb writing. Uh, so Evelyn leaves that location after being told that she needs to clean the whole place up not quite sure how she'd manage it yeah i don't even know if she does manage it i don't know if she's actually cleaned up or she's just gone fuck it i'm just gonna go into the uh i don't know if it's a tomb or like a secret like possibly a museum area underground tomb yeah it's some weird place they have in the library for some reason with Actual mummified corpses sitting around. Actual, not mummified, embalmed corpses. Yeah. Lit yeah. by torchlight as well. It's... Yeah, uh, which, as soon as a small ember falls off one of those torches, the entire fucking thing goes up. Is it just me or is it like. Okay, yeah, fair enough. You've got lanterns. Maybe use a lantern, maybe? Just to light the area, at least it's covered by fucking glass and it's not going to set everything on fire. So, uh, John Han is introduced. Now, his character called Jonathan, Jonathan Canahan, uh, introduces a drunkard. Far better than in the 1959 version. Reasonably drunk this time. People can actually drink without immediately falling into intoxication. He acquired the key to Imhotep's tomb from Brendan Fraser at some point before this, uh, as well as the map, which I think is contained in the key, remember rightly, uh, which is what you want to do when you uh, secure away ancient evils. You want to put the map and the key in the same place to tell them exactly how to open the ancient evil up uh, in case they want to unleash it on the world and destroy everything. Precisely how you do that. Uh, so they take the key and the map over to the librarian, uh, the curator, who 
obviously he's working with the guardians he burns the map off with the Hamanatron part uh, and doesn't take the key for some reason I always thought that if it if it's this could unleash an evil on the world at this point I'll go you know what I'm going to do I'm going to beat the crap out of John Hanna grab the key and run and throw it in the ocean just makes me yeah, I I wouldn't really leave a key to a possible world-ending thing to a drunkard and what is shown to be a very accident-prone librarian. I wouldn't leave it to anyone. If it were me, if I was the Egyptian guardians at the start, when I locked the tomb, I'd have took the key with me, passed it down generation to generation, made sure you know it's always in our possession, then eventually tossed it in the fucking ocean. So, uh, Jonathan starts telling Evelyn, Rachel character, where he got it. Says he got it from a digger, archaeologist. Kind of bigs it up a bit. Turns out to be Rick O'Connell, who's currently in prison. Uh, they visit the prison. Rachel Wise looks a little annoyed. Uh, tricking her. Uh, nice little bit of sibling rivalry that goes between them through the entire film. John Hanna, it's quite nice. He's never portrayed as an idiot. He's very competent through the film he can shoot a gun he knows how to read egyptian he's just a bit a bit dimmer than rachel wise's character maybe yeah he it, it seems like he's an amalgamation of both of the like it, rick and evie and it's just he's slightly worse at doing everything than they are at doing specific things like, yeah, he can fire a gun. He's not better than Rick. Yeah, he can read, read Egyptian. Yeah, he's not better than Evie. Like, he's a bit of a, a, a mixed character, which it works for the film, but usually these kind of characters are just written off in my book. It's usually like, oh, they're just fucking useless, just keep the other two people Yeah, he's around. got enough chemistry with both of them to retain that level of character that's necessary to be to have a point, to have a purpose uh, but yeah, they go to the prison uh, with the warden who says, he, as I said, he doesn't know why Rick O'Connell's in the prison says he's looking for a good time uh, and Rachel and John Hannah go up to uh, Rick O'Connell look at him, say oh, you know, uh, do you know this puzzle box you have. Where did you get it? Do you know where it comes from? And he starts talking about Hamanaptra. Says that he actually knows where it is. He uh, talks about having been there with his squadron. They're quite surprised. Uh, he talks about the golden book and stuff. He seems to know quite a bit about some of the history of the place, which I'd expect you to, to be fair, if you're actually going to be sent there. Uh, Rachel Why he's underestimating the standard adventurer and... Uh, Tomb Thief there. So he punches John Hanna in the face, which he probably deserved. I think John Hanna claims to be a missionary. Yeah, he claims to be a missionary, and then Rick remembers that he pickpocketed pickpocketed him a few days ago uh, before he was in prison. Punched him in the face, which he gets a whip for, probably justified. I'd, yeah, I'd have hit him in the face as well. 
Uh, steals a kiss from Rachel Wise as well and gets a shit kicked out of him for it. Also worth it. I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd do that. Uh, I, I do love that the warden doesn't know why, obviously, uh, throughout all of this. says so a good time. And the guy gets hanged. Great fucking paperwork they have. Yeah. Yeah, like, oh, this guy's been arrested because he wanted a good time. Yeah, let's hang him for that. What? I don't know if it's just because he kissed Rachel Wise. It seems a bit harsh. <laughs> 50 lashes. Uh, so, yeah, we cut to scene where he's being hanged. Uh, it says to the, uh, the guy who's hanging him, the guy asks, any last requests, Rick O'Connell? And he says, yeah, can you uh, loosen the knot and let me go? And the jail guard actually looks up to the warden and says, should we let him go? Warden, no, sod off. Uh, so, yeah, Rachel Wise starts bargaining with the warden. Starts offering money at first, $100, $200, and the warden basically says, I'd pay that much money to see him hang. Which, I mean, looking at this guy's punched a guy in the face, kissed another girl, yeah, he's probably done something to piss the warden off at some point. Uh, the neck luckily isn't broken during the exchange between Wise and the warden. Uh, British, uh, actually the experts in uh, not making it, I don't know if you know that, they uh, perfected the uh, immediate snap. There's a certain level. If you go too far, too long, then you decapitate the person. If you go too short, then strangle the guy. Just right, break the neck. Gone. Uh, this is the point where Fraser lost consciousness as well. Where it starts panning round to everyone. That's where he dropped to the ground, restarted his own heart. Uh, Evelyn ends up bargaining with the... Uh, warden and comes to talking about Hamanaptra bargains back and forth, the warden's a bit of an idiot can't remember what it was, is it 25% he ends up they they bargain as Brendan yeah. Fraser's being hanged, kind of a 10, yeah. 50 yeah he asks for 40, she says 30 he goes to 25 and then she's like deal, and then he's for some reason he was like okay yeah I'm a fucking idiot yeah, cut the rope. Uh, so, one of the uh, tropes of these action-adventure films, don't know if it started with Indiana Jones and Marion in the uh, Raise of the Lost Ark, it's definitely popularised in that, uh, is the strong female protagonist who absolutely hates the male protagonist, so they're definitely going to fall in love at some point. Which, uh, in a film like this, it's cheesy, it's the right tone, yeah, sure, go for it. In a film like 2017, Mummy, on the other hand, doesn't work at fucking all. Yeah, uh, these things happen. These kind of films, and it's, it's great, it's in a little love story. Punter through, and having them argue back and forth. Uh, so they get on a boat to start to sail towards Hamanaptra. This is where they find out some Americans are doing the same thing. They've managed to find Benny, who also survived the siege and made his way back. Uh, Rick shows off his arsenal as well. He's got a shitload of guns. For a guy who's just been in jail, Jesus Christ. Yeah, he basically f- like rolls out like a large sleeping roll full of just weapons. 
There's like knives, there's throwing knives, there's guns, there's like, yeah, it's not in this role, but he's got shotguns, he's got all this, like, and he's fully loading everything. And he is like a bit of expert, uh, exposition about um yeah i've been there there's something evil that's buried there this is for protection trust me we'll need it sort of thing you see with me i'd um, be willing to kind of go an indiana jones style yeah i'll raid a tomb with a load of tribals in they might kill me but if i bring enough firepower i'll be fine i wouldn't be willing to raid a tomb with something actually magical in it that's the cut-off point for me. If I see a sandy face come up and moan at me, that oh, I'm done. You fucking go there. I'm not going anywhere near it. But yeah, more adventurous fair. than I am. I'm not a. I'm not a superstitious person at all. I don't believe in any of that shit. But if I found out it was real, yeah. fuck me, I'd be doing hail marys every night. Yeah. I, again, it's the same thing for me. If Again, I don't believe in any of that shit, but if I saw a ghost walk into my room, turn off my TV and, like, fucking flip me off, I'd be like, yeah, ghosts are real, I'm... No, fuck that shit, I'm gonna buy every fucking EMP fucking, like, ghost warding device that I could fucking find. So, we get a couple scenes with Benny, who uh, Rick finds following uh, Jonathan, admitting that they know where Hamanaptra is. They're nearly admitting they know how. He's he is an idiot, but um fairly competent for all this. He's not completely useless. Benny has some of my favourite lines in the entire thing. First off, uh Rick O'Connell asks him, What, is your plan to just send the Americans off into the desert and leave with all the money? And Benny says something along the lines of, No, these Americans are smart, they only pay me half. Pretty much admitting that, yeah, that's what I was going to do. But they paid me half, so I can't leave them to starve in the desert. He really is a scumbag. Uh, And then Rick O'Connell grabs him uh, by the chest, says goodbye, Benny, throws him overboard after Benny says, think of my children. And then Rick says, you don't have any children. Someday I might. (laughs) That is just brilliant. Uh, So, yeah, Benny's currently in the water. He's going to be closely followed by everyone else. Spoilers in a moment. Uh, as Rachel Wise, Evelyn, is dealing with the map and the key in her room, looking over some stuff, the ship is attacked by the Guardians of the boat. I love the Guardians willing to... They're burned during this and they fight through being burnt, they're shot during this various other things, but they can't be fucked to get off a mountain to kill Rick earlier, which would have pretty much saved this entire situation. It seems like a bit of a inconsistency in laziness. And I reckon, right, so now it's just the normal lot that are running through and killing people, right? Leaders know it to be found. I reckon he's just a lazy cunt. And he can't be bothered to get off the mountain and deal with Rick and Benny. This entire, well, so far in this film, it seems like the main leader is literally just like, nah, something else will deal with that. Or, yeah, if you guys go off and deal with that, we'll stay here and just make sure the site is secure. 
Wink, wink. Even later, he uh, gives them a day to leave. Fucking why? Just say, no, we're going to kill you all now. Leave now. Or we'll kill yeah. you. We're literally, like, we're going to stay here, watch you pack up, and watch you fuck off. That's all. It's, it's ridiculous. It's the end of the world, mate. You put a bit more effort into it. But, uh, yeah, there's a fight scene that goes out on the boat. A few people are set on fire. As I said, it's apparently blood too far but people being set on fire a okay i mean later in the film someone has a scarab go into their hand and it gets popped out of their shoulder don't see any blood from that either rachel wise's shirt during the scene uh looks it up during uh the trivia and stuff that i keep an eye on turns out that it was see-through Obviously, in the show itself for the PG thirteen rating, it's white, and that's because it's been CGI'd white. I'm not quite sure why they couldn't just get a white dress for her, or if the director was a complete pervert, or if maybe this was payment for the cameraman and the boom mic guys. You get to see Rachel Wise naked, we won't pay you anything else. Uh, the rest of the scene plays out fairly. I don't want to say generic nineties action. It's very well done nineties action, but nineties action nonetheless. Action adventure stuff. Rick O'Connell, badass, kills a load of people. The Americans kill a load of people. Uh, John Hanna manages to get the key off of a burning man. And then they all jump into the water. Literally, it just cuts to the next scene where they're. Uh, it's daytime. They're um, at like an Egyptian bazaar. And they're trying to haggle for camels. How bizarre, how bizarre. I said earlier, this was the scariest film of the lot for me. And that's exclusively because of the camels. Any arachnophobes watching, I imagine you watched scenes with Shelob, scenes with uh, Aragog in Harry Potter, very much the same way I watch the scenes with camels. I am petrified of camels. Two times in my life they've broke my arm. Once when I was two years old in Safari Park and they uh, reached in past my dad, broke my arm while I was holding some feed and once when I was ten and I punched one in the face. (laughs) To be fair, I deserve that one. (laughs) Just a bit. But yeah, I really hate camels. I can feel my heart racing somewhat. They buy the camels and they leave. Beyond me as well, hating camels. Uh, the actor who played Benny, also hated by him apparently. I know later, far, far later in the film where he's getting the gold out and he tries to pull the camels towards the Hamanaptra, tries to put more gold in them and they refuse to move. Uh, that wasn't scripted. They were supposed to move with him. But the camels all fucking hated the guy for some inexplicable <laughs> reason and refused to do anything he said. Fair enough. So yeah, uh, they travel with the camels over uh, the desert. It takes a couple of days, I think. It shows fucking well done on uh, Rick O'Connell managed to survive all this. I think I reckon it probably was taken in by the enemy army, the enemy battalions. He'd have died in the desert otherwise. Uh, yeah, it would have made more sense if that's the case. Guardians of the tomb uh, still don't kill them even though they're clearly coming back. To be fair, there is a group of, like, I don't know, what, maybe 30, 40 people just running towards Hermanatra at this point, so 
I'd understand. Maybe you've got a small force, so you're probably waiting for him to go to rest and then attack. I suppose that is what they do. Maybe this is just up their recruitment drive, though. I wouldn't want to wait time for that. To be fair, how much would you be able to up the recruitment on that? Yeah. To say, oh, would you give your life to save the world? What do I get? What are the benefits? Nothing. You have to live in a fucking desert near a ruin. Yeah, nah, probably not. He's got to be the most inbred fucks of all time. I can't imagine <laughs> they get any new blood in. You never see any women, so... Maybe it's like a Hills of Ice situation. The women are back at camp. Uh, but yeah, Benny's group and the Americans, uh, who all... They're not arseholes. They are arseholes. They're likeable arseholes, the Americans. They're idiots, but um, understandably so. Not as hateable as Benny is. Not as fun to hate as Benny is, at least. They all meet up. Benny's group on horses. I think Benny's just on a camel for some reason. Uh, Meanwhile, Rick O'Connell's group all on camels. The four of them at this point with the warden having tagged along. Uh, They race with a $500 bet. The first one to Hamanaptra. Uh, which Rick's group end up winning after Benny gets thrown off his camel after whipping Rick O'Connell over and over again. This guy is the most hateable prick. Actually, it's like a cockroach. Just pops yeah. up everywhere. Unkillable, but fucking horrible. Like, a lot of what he does, it obviously it's intentional, like, you, you need to hate this guy. But... It's it's like an understandable kind of dickheadedness in kind of coming from him, if you know what I mean. Like, um, yeah, running away from a large, large fucking magical evil city. I'd probably do that. I probably wouldn't kill America, send them, kill Americans off by sending them off into a desert, but like. You understand where he's coming from, at least. Like, he's trying to save his own skin and try and be as well off as he can be. Yeah. Yeah, he's like a little mosquito in that sense. Uh, They all make it to Amanaptra with uh, Rick O'Connell's group winning. And they start setting up in different locations. The Americans setting up uh, beneath one of the entrances, I think where Benny escaped into earlier in the film. And left Rick O'Connell to die. He really is a dick. And uh, the group led by Evelyn all set off to one side where Evelyn knows that something's buried underneath. Uh, I think that they say at some point, do they know something we don't? And the guy says, oh, they're led by a woman. What would they know? Yeah. I don't know, mate. She's an archaeologist. And they've got Jonathan, even if you're going to take that route. And he's an archaeologist as well. They're going to know something. But yeah. yeah, I mean, one's a, I think one of the Americans is a doctor. The other one looks like a cowboy. The, it's a very hodgepodge group. Whereas O'Connell's group is like, no, we've got two archaeologists and we've got a dude that knows his way around a gun. And a fat man in affairs. Yeah, and a fat dude in affairs, yeah. So yeah, they uh, managed to break through Rick O'Connell's group and the Americans in their section. Uh, They use mirrors to light up 
uh, a room. So basically, they catch the light from a mirror on the top, and they send it down into the um, ruins. Catch it on other mirrors that have been set up down there, and then light up the entire room without need of torchlight. Mythbusters actually did an episode on it, and uh, yeah, it didn't work nearly as well as it would have. It did works. It you can definitely see it, but uh, nowhere near as good as it's shown in this film. But it's action adventure. Who cares? Uh, so everyone starts digging in their own little locales. The warden fucking off by himself. There's a few confrontations between the Americans and Rick O'Connell's group. A few guns pointed at each other. And a few back and forths. Uh, Rachel Wise's character ends up kind of carving everything down. <clears throat> yeah, she kind of figures that there's they're probably digging in the wrong place, the Americans are. So let's go find something better. Yeah, I mean, they're digging for different things as well, to some extent, so... Not too much of an issue. The Americans obviously digging for gold and treasure and stuff. Rachel Wise doesn't really care about that sort of stuff. Yeah. She's looking to get a uh, scholarship to some university. So yeah, Warden, having fucked off, starts to take Jules out, deal with him in a second. The Americans, uh, they find a small box. Yeah, the Americans find a large... Uh, would be sarcophagi, not quite a sarcophagi, chest. I think a stone chest. Yeah, they find like a a, a, a in um, inlay in like a statue, and they ask their diggers to kind of pop the like uh, the stone kind of top off, and uh, inside this like small like hidden compartment in the statue is a, a wooden chest. I think this is count two of the uh, this film shouldn't be PG-13. Yeah. As the diggers, who are already terrified of opening this box, uh, do show a surprising amount of loyalty, which I think I know why they put the scene in. We'll get to that in a sec. Uh, open up the uh, little statue uh, chest, and uh, yeah, shit kicks off. Yeah, the the diggers basically like pop this uh, stone kind of uh, plate off. That's when the acid trap goes off, horrifically burns the uh, the diggers, and then I think more diggers run up to pull the rest of the stone off, and then pull the chest out. Yeah, despite the fact that the acid trap would definitely have gone off by now. It is really fucking cool. And yeah, it's it's really well uh, make-uped on as well. They look really terrible. After they get this acid thrown at them, they die instantly. Uh, you can see the scabs kind of forming as they go down. No blood, of course, so it's PG-13, fine. Yeah, all the blisters and kind of like pus and stuff like that's coming off their face. So- looks good. Talking about PG-13, uh, the Warden finds all the Scarabazels, as we said. Uh, thinks it's blue gold. And 
starts taking some of them out of the wall to put in his backpack, drops one into the sand, which kind of wakes it up. Uh, and this little scarab beetle enters through his boot and goes into his foot, which would... I don't know how quickly it'd kill you, but it would fucking kill you before you managed to run around. Your muscles would be fucked up with a beetle that size going through your own body. Your uh, If it went past your chest, that'd be internal organs ripped asunder. There's no way they'd be looking as good as they do. He does kill him, to be fair, or he slams his head against a wall. Yeah, he basically just sprints headlong into a wall and kind of kills himself, I think. I think he was going to die anyway. Yeah. I think it was more that because it's PG-13 they can't show a scarab beetle killing the poor twat. So in the actual tomb, Rachel Wise's group happen upon the body of Imhotep. uh, Happen upon his coffin. Yeah, after they see the guy slam his head against something, everyone ends up leaving the tomb. Then it cuts to... Them finding, uh, uh, no, sorry, Rick trying to like pull, uh, and dig something from above. The sarcophagus falls out of the fl- uh, the roof above, hits the ground. That's when they find the corpse. Then, uh, they find his body, the the uh, Imhotep's body. Then they hear a scream go out to find out what it was the warden runs past him into a wall and then that's when it cuts to night time where they're like uh, after this it cuts to night with them all in their tents uh, sitting around they have a look through the warden's possessions find a bottle of I think it was Glenvillet whiskey uh, 12 years old which is good, damn good whiskey gotta give it to mm-hmm. the guy he, uh, he knows his whiskeys and as they're discussing stuff back and forth the guardians uh once again, prove to be pretty damn shit at their job. Attack the location. There's an action scene that kicks off. A number of them are killed. Jonathan shows that he knows how to shoot. Uh, I think Rachel Wise's character kills one with a shotgun. The recoil just sends her flying back. Yeah, if I remember correctly, yeah. And Rick O'Connell kills a fuckload of them. She goes shooting around like a madman. Uh, eventually, yeah. The Americans doing their own job as well. The Guardians led, uh, the Guardians leader stands up with his horse, looks down at all of them, uh, tells them, and Christ knows why he does, as we said earlier, why he didn't just oversee them leaving and pissing off from the desert. Uh, says he gives them a day to leave or he'll kill them. So the uh, desert people uh, leave after giving them the warning. An American asks Rick O'Connell if he's willing to join up with the others, because he is that much of a badass. An American says uh, something on the lines of, I'm sort of glad they attacked. It kind of proves that there's actual gold down here. There's something worthwhile to take down here. And Rick O'Connell replies with, these men are a desert people. They value water, not gold. Which reminds me of that scene in uh, The Simpsons with Homer getting a $20 note beneath the couch and says that he wanted a peanut. And then his brain tells him money can be used to buy lots of peanuts. Explain how. Money can be exchanged for goods and services. <laughs> I kind of thought, well, yeah, the gold can buy water, you fucking idiot. Yeah. You get enough gold, 
you can get water. Of course they value gold. Who doesn't value gold? Uh, following that, there's more flirting between Rachel Wise and Brendan Fraser. Uh, Rachel Wise gets really drunk on whiskey. They do some fight choreography back and forth. Uh, it's all, all very uh, tasteful. All very nice stuff. So, cutting to the following night where they're continuing their excavation. Uh, they find a chest, the Americans. It's got a curse on it. That will says something like that will kill anyone who opens it. So uh, I reckon that's why they did the acid trap earlier. And that's why they kind of left it at night because with the acid trap, obviously people died. The uh, Arabic workers were three of them horrifically killed, and the rest of the workers stayed there regardless. But this is kind of the upper limit for them. Yeah, this is too horrible to. Uh, stay around I think yeah it's kind of a build up and kind of letting you know that yeah Imhotep is the real deal he's fucking horrible and these guys would rather be burnt with sulfuric acid than be uh, set on Imhotep's wrath before we carry on should be mentioned the set's really nicely done really yeah claustrophobic yeah literally every part of this film feels tight um very well yeah like you said claustrophobic like very very dark and dingy like um well like a tomb i suppose (laughs) the best way to describe it the statue they opened that was trapped but the box that contains the book that could unleash all hell on the world isn't trapped that's fine. Yeah, there's there's a when they open the top, it's there's a bit of a light breeze, but that's about it. Benny's ran off as well at this point. Yeah, uh, there's a bit of exposition about Imhotep. Evelyn knows about the torture that he went through. Uh, sees that the symbols to protect him from the dead have been warded off, so his soul can be breathed. By something, I know the uh, Egyptian afterlife has that um, oh scales thing where you have to put your good deeds against your evil deeds, or you can be taken yeah. by the great crocodile. I imagine that just lets him his soul be destroyed. But obviously, the curse also allows him to become immortal and destroy the world. So, well done, Egyptians! You've uh, killed us all. Genius there. Uh, they take the body up to the surface in the coffin. I think that's an off joke by an American who says that um, it can sell the mummy for firewood if they dry it up. It's, it's a really nice little quip throughout the entirety of this. It keeps it rolling constantly. It's uh, like a Marvel film, but not annoying. It's great. Yeah, they they find they found like uh, let me find oh there we go canopic jars. Uh, they found the canopic jars that basically hold. Um, Anuxanamun's preserved preserved organs and all like um Evie and everything have found is obviously Imhotep's corpse. Which obviously the Americans are taking the piss out of, but In reality it'd be worth far more than any yeah. kind of picture. Yeah. I I <laughs> if you've got a corpse of who you believe to be like an ancient 
you don't know he's a, a, a priest or anything, but you know he's a, a very bad person from the uh, curse that's been placed on, uh, onto him. I think you'd get more for his corpse plus sarcophagus than you would for literally anything else. So the book of the it's the book of the dead they have at the minute, and it needs a key to get into. As did the sarcophagus, the same keys needed to get into both the book and the sarcophagus. Which um, why why not use yeah, a separate I, key? I don't know that myself. I'm trying to figure out. The Book of the Dead, in in this world's canon and whatnot, was made thousands of years before this point in time, right? So why would you go, okay, the same key that made that I need to open the Book of the Dead, I'll use as the kind of key for the the, the main bad thing that happens if someone reads from the book of the dead so if you have one you basically have the other brought to you from the same guardians who didn't bother to take the key with them the most useless pricks those guardians must have been there for generations not one of them looked and gone hey here's the book of the dead let's just take that and hide it Let's just bury it in a completely different area. Let's get let's go like three hundred miles that way and just bury it. And then come back and then we'll take his sarcophagus and go six hundred miles in the opposite direction and bury that. Go for the Mariana fucking trench, just toss it. Watch it yeah. sink. Good fucking luck's ending the world from the bottom of the fucking ocean, mate. But they didn't. And so the film continues. Uh, go back to the campsite. Still not been chased off by the Guardians. Evelyn ends up stealing the book from the sleeping... Um, kind of like an Arabic liaison they've got to tell them about all the uh, occult stuff. The Americans. Who's grabbed the book. And the Americans grabbed all the canopic jars because they're idiots. They don't understand what's worth in archaeology. Yeah, Evelyn grabs the book, uh, takes it over to her side of the camp. Brendan Fraser's awake at this point, says something like, you know, that's stealing. And she responds with, oh, Quincy and my brother, it's borrowing. And Brendan Fraser, at no point, having seen that the mummy is very much a real thing from the sand magic earlier, stops her from uh, reading the book. No point. When... There's got to have been a part of him that said, you know what, this might end the world. Because this mummy's real. Well, unfortunately for him, it doesn't quite work out that way. And yeah. uh, the mummy is released onto the world, along with a swarm of locusts that don't kill anyone. As we see later, the uh, Arabic liaison for the Americans is still alive and well. He's just covered in locusts. Yeah. What a fucking I was... dick. I was thinking that, to be fair. I was like, oh, okay, so I assume this is where he dies. I'm like, like even when I was a kid, I was like, okay, he doesn't... Because you... Uh, oh, yeah, you do. Sorry. I was like, okay, he's gone. He's done. 
guy's dead. And then about 10 minutes later, he shows up again, or 20 minutes later, he shows up again, and I'm like, uh... Unless, to be fair, given he was one of the ones that opened the book up, his skin is needed to regenerate the mummy, and the mummy has to kill him specifically. Now I think about it, that makes some sense. It does, but, I mean, technically the the mummy is the one that's delivering all the locusts out, so technically he's killing him. Now he needs to uh, suck the flesh off, doesn't he? Yeah, he needs to do something specific. Yeah, uh, fair enough. Everyone takes cover within the ruins themselves. The Americans and Brendan Fraser alike. Uh, as they're travelling down, you know, they get separated one by one. There's uh, scarabs that attack them. And Brendan Fraser, I believe he like twisted his ankle jumping onto one of the platforms during that scene. Just more injuries. He did his own stunts. Yeah. Poor fucking guy. Uh, I believe Rachel Wise and John Hannity didn't do their own stunts. Yeah. I think they had stuntmen and stuff, but Brendan Fraser's a fucking madman. Uh, the American, one of them, who has glasses in that classic, where are my glasses? Where are my glasses? My glasses! Scene. As they're broken and Benny steps on them, seemingly purposefully. What a cunt! Yeah, it's like he um, it's like he stepped on them just to kind of make sure that he's not the last person through <laughs> to get kind of caught. I wouldn't put it past him. Yeah. Uh, and the American, looking around, uh, finds they're broken, gets up, and's in a very claustrophobic corridor again. Reminded me a little bit. You ever seen the Crystal Maze? First level of that. Yeah. The TV show. I don't know the the aesthetics of it. Obviously, yeah, it's a lot yeah. lighter than the Crystal Maze, but that kind of thing. Uh, it, does, it does look really good. I don't want to uh, slag it off. The mummy attacks the American, uh, rips his eyes and tongue out. You don't see that until later, which is, I think, the biggest how the fuck is this PG-13 moment in the whole thing. Reminded me of Coraline, actually, a lot with the button stuff. That's the other kids' film that scared the shit out of me. Yeah, and the American kind of stumbling about at this point. Rick O'Connell and uh, Jonathan have jumped onto a platform to get out of the way of Scarabs. Rachel jumped onto a different platform and uh, ended up twisting round in the ruins in a little kind of trapdoor-esque thing ends up bumping into the American who has had his eyes and tongue taken away at this point and he's got very reminiscent actually of the Wishmaster film where his eyes were turned inside out uh, if you remember that where Andrew Dervov took off the uh, medical student's eyes yeah, yeah and so yeah the American blustering about I think the mummy was going to finish off the job, but then sees Evelyn. And I believe it's because Evelyn resurrected him that she's being used as a sacrifice, not just because, oh, you have a pussy, I can use you to... Yeah, I, 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 from what I believe, from my interpretation, should I say, is, yeah, because she's basically the first words that he's heard. So, if Brendan Fraser had... Um read the words. Would that have meant he was going to be dressed up in a little dress and he'd have had to have kissed the mummy? Maybe? Brendan Fraser. 
I mean, there's some people out there that would obviously want to kiss Brendan Fraser, but he's a damn good-looking guy. Yeah, Evelyn ends up being the sacrifice, uh, which I think, yeah, the whole thing where she's the first one to uh, read the words and being used as a sacrifice rather than just kind of the um, the body thing, uh, looking like uh, his long lost lover. It makes a lot more sense than that. And uh, saves Rachel Wise from having to wear blackface, which is um, a good thing. Don't know if I have to qualify that, but yeah, it's a good thing. In the second one, there's little cutscenes to where she is technically back in Egypt. Like her specifically. And like this version of her is a reincarnation of the old ancient Egypt, uh, Egyptian one. I think she's in the second one, she's like the daughter of the pharaoh that was killed. Oh, so the priest was getting it on Jiggy with uh, multiple people. Possibly. Oh shit, you're the pharaoh's daughter, I'm really sorry. Clearly yeah. I've been resurrected into the same time I'm in. It's either that, or it's kind of slightly retconned in the, the second one that both Anuks and Amun and... Like Rachel Wise's character in is they're both the Pharaoh's daughters, if I remember. Like it's been years since I watched the second one, but yeah, that continues on. Uh, the group eventually managed to get out. The Americans, all the main characters, basically uh, make their way to the top, except for Benny, who's still lost in the catacombs. Uh, following, yeah, Rick O'Connell shooting the mummy in the face with a shotgun and thinking he's dealt with it. They're confronted by the Guardians, who neither know how to kill the mummy and take none of the blame, which I think really they deserve almost all of at this point for not stopping this situation when it came about. I think that yeah. that, that annoys me more, though, that they don't know how to kill the mummy at all. That they couldn't just go, oh, yeah, there's the book of the Golden One that's below that statue. We've been around for 3,000 years, so we clearly know all this stuff. And they let the group just leave again. They don't go, I'm going to kill you. for being a complete contemptuous prick and setting all this stuff off. Which, if you didn't before, you should fucking now. Yeah, they have every right. If literally they're like, okay, you've you've clearly fucked up and let the fucking mummy loose. You're going to fucking die now. At least... Go okay. The who who opened the fucking chest? You four. Okay, you you four die. If you four die, he cannot fucking regenerate because you're dead. Yeah, you four die. And we can just use cats to scare the shit around the world for the rest of the yeah. time. It's just fucking put cats at each entrance that he's at, at to his fucking tomb, and then he's fucking locked in there. I, does it matter if it's a real cat? If it's just a statue of a cat? Does that fucking freak him out? That's got to be a real cat, surely. It can't like I can't get my nan who likes to post cat pictures on Facebook. That can't possibly work. That would be fucking genius. Just be like, you know what? I'm gonna fucking ruin you with fucking Facebook. Facebook hey, cat look videos. A picture of my cat. YouTube from 2009. The bane of this thing's existence. No, that that's pathetic. Onto something pathetic, actually, uh, on that note. Benny, who's going through the tomb, uh, bumps into the mummy, 
and the mummy uh, starts going to attack him. And he goes through some religious symbols. Starts off with, I think it's the Catholic cross. And goes through some, uh, you know, Oh Father, protect me. Mm-hmm. Goes to, I think it was the Buddha symbol. And obviously I watched these things in subtitles, as I said before. It just says, speaks gibberish. <laughs> wow. Eventually he gets out, I think it's the, the Jewish symbol, isn't it? I think so, yeah. Symbol of the slaves and everything. Uh, and the mummy says, oh, you know what? I actually have use for you. Here's some rewards if you help me out. Uh, which... Yeah, and he says, my prince or some shit like that. Probably quite lucky. Might yeah. have been lost otherwise. Thank fuck that this dude is a massive douchebag that has every fucking religious symbol tied around his neck. Oh, that's great. That's a really beautiful touch and everything. Yeah, I do not believe in anything, but I will use everything to my advantage just to fucking survive. Everyone else, uh, apart from Benny, is trying to leave and accept Evelyn. Said, yeah. uh, Brendan Fraser included in that. He starts packing up. And Evelyn starts taking his stuff out the suitcase, which is um, insane. I'd, yeah, I'd like, leave. Basically, they've they've torn up the camp. They've moved to like a, a hotel that's uh, not close, but you know it's somewhere in Egypt. And. As they're like, okay, we're packing up, we're catching a boat, we're going back to fucking England, or we're going back to fucking America, or wherever the fuck they're going. And everyone's like, yep, fucking we're leaving. Like, Rick O'Connell's like packing Evelyn's bag, like, yeah, we're fucking leaving. Told you not to read from that fucking book. Uh, Yeah, and they're all getting ready to leave. Eventually, I think they do sort of pack up and they just go to drink as the boat's uh, waiting to leave. Uh, Captain Winston is introduced. Uh, really nice sub-character. Mentioned in notes here, Chekhov's gun. Captain Winston, plot point introduced brightly in Act 2 to be used in Act 3 to finish everything off. Cool, good writing. Some films could learn a two thing from that. And then we cut to the glasses-wearing American who's in his own room. Uh, looks really pathetic. Said he's got his eyes torn out, his tongue out, so he, he kind of talks with a a jarble. It's all uh, a bit wishy-washy. I can't remember exactly what uh, stuff you can't make. I think diphthongs and stuff you can't do without tongue, triphthongs, all phonetics and stuff. But yeah, yeah speak, speaks weirdly. Can't really do it right. Yeah, he's 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 dribbling, he's got like He's got like covers to go over his eyes, well, where his eyes used to be, and he goes to like reach for like a tea cup and kind of knocks it over. And Benny's being his typical douchebag self, and he's kind of like, "Oh, it's a shame that you can't see," you know, <laughs> kind of thing, like Benny would do, and then. For some reason, fair enough, you've been through a traumatic experience, you've had your eyes and tongue ripped out, so you're probably not thinking clearly. But when 
the dude that everyone hates says, hey, I bought this prince to kind of um, come visit you, you probably know something's up. Or you should. Especially seeing as you've not heard the prince speak. You've not heard the prince probably come into the room. You literally just heard, heard one person's footsteps, probably, and one person's voice. Yeah, from Benny here. And you've never been introduced to the prince. Presumably didn't know he existed. Uh, yeah. But for some reason, the prince is visiting you today. That's... Uh... And instead of... Uh, like, to be fair, if you went to meet a prince, you'd probably dress up in your like best... He's wearing his pajamas, and if I was, if someone was like, "Oh, a prince is coming to see, uh, coming to see you, Stefan," I'd be like, "Fuck, okay, uh, mom, dad, fucking bro, uh, whoever I'm fucking with, a prince is coming to fucking see me. What the fuck's going on?" So he doesn't tell anyone that a fucking prince is coming to see him. None of his American friends, nothing. But yeah, carry on. Sorry. Yeah, the uh, prince obviously turns out to be the priest in Hotep. Drains, drains the American of life. The American turns into like, an emaciated corpse, pretty much. Uh, looks like he's been dehydrated for years. Uh, kind of like um, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade. What they look like when they drink the wrong grail. That kind of thing. Aged hugely. Very, very dead. Uh, following which, obviously, the mummy at every point gets a little bit more skin. He looks about the same now as he did before, to be honest. Yeah, there's not much extra added to him after that bit. Uh, some stuff happens, though. The uh, blood, uh, whiskey everyone's drinking, the water everyone's drinking turns to blood. As the mummy comes round, there are some meteor strikes... It's the uh, Ten Plagues of Egypt. Uh, don't know if it's uh, reminiscent of the Christian uh, version of the story with Moses and the Prince of Egypt and everything. Doubt it. It's the whole uh, every yeah. young firstborn boy and animal, I think, firstborn animal dies. And the balls and um, other things are different. It's very nice though, the the blood thing's quite interesting. The meteors look a bit shit to be honest, but that's fine. Later on there's an eclipse yeah. as well. All of this stuff seems to just dissipate at some point and never comes up again. It just comes into the story, leaves, and no one brings it up. Because it is sunny later. I know, uh, with the eclipsed sun. That happens yeah. in a scene. When they yeah. go to see Winston uh, it's notably sunny still. And is it just he's got about five minutes of an eclipse time and then the moon continues on its route again? Or it's just a coincidence the moon happened to come across the sun? Especially when... Yeah, okay, flaming balls from the sky isn't really that interesting. Turning water into the blood... Okay, yeah, that's... That could be that could be used in like some weird ways or um, the locusts. That that's fine. That was a start of the thing anyway, so that's fine. But literally any of the other plagues that 
because he unleashed he's supposed to unleash ten plagues and you see like four. Uh, I'm trying to think. Maybe? So there's locust, there's boils and stuff. Uh Eclipse Sun, I presume that's one. Blood Rain. Yeah. Uh the actual blood rain, not the film. Which is a plague on itself. And no, that's about it. Yeah, so so that uh the the balls from the sky, the eclipse, the boils, the water into blood and the other one. What was that, sorry? About four of them. Yeah. Four or five. Yeah, it's a bit of a waste of an opportunity. Uh, I suppose I've only got so much time. And this film, it tries to be as succinct as possible. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Could have done some stuff with it, but otherwise it'd have hit like two and a half hours and no one wants to watch two and a half hours of action. Uh, so yeah, all this sort of stuff starts kicking off. Uh, the uh, Brendan Fraser and the others come across the mummy who's currently reforming himself after taking out the emaciated corpse of the glasses-wearing American. A cat comes along and the uh, mummy flees because of it. Uh, cats are used twice, I think, in the film as a uh, foil to the mummy. They only work when he's still undead. There's a yeah, uh, the old theory that cats were the guardians of the underworld and the like. Best I could find is it comes from uh, Bastet. A goddess of protection against evil spirits and disease and women. Has it happened in supple nipples? I don't know if it's that specifically just supple nipples, but the site I found said that. <laughs> okay. But yeah, the basically the cat kind of walks across the piano, setting that off, which draws the attention of the mummy, obviously. And that kind of freaks it out, and it, like, dissipates into sand and fucks off out the window cats are shit guardians I mean they're, they're rubbish can yeah. you imagine having a gu- how many guard cats do you know yeah none like well I mean there's that classic a dog will starve with the dead owner a cat will eat you in the first couple of days yeah the cat won't wait till you're fucking dead they're terrible the Egyptian underworld must be a kind of Kratos style. Everyone leaves every five fucking minutes. Uh, so the mummy flees into a storm of sand. At which point they come up with a plan which is frankly terrible. Uh, they lock Evelyn away into a room, bedroom to the side. Uh, shut the door and all that. And they leave the Americans, both of them, to guard... Evelyn, as I believe that Rick and uh, Jonathan are looking for the last member of the Americans' uh, yeah. coterie. Yeah, they're looking for the professor or the doctor or whatever he was. They're looking for him while they leave the two people that they know for a fact that the mummy is looking for. They leave them to guard Evelyn. Without any cats. Yeah, no. So, for me, 
at least I thought maybe the Americans would be the ones that would want to try and find their friend. But they're like, nope, fuck it, not leaving this room. I'm like, well, fuck you guys. Uh, So Rick O'Connell and Jonathan do eventually come across the fourth member of that little band uh, who is killed summarily by the mummy. Uh, Mummy looks a bit more fleshy now after he sucks the life force from the uh, Arabic liaison. Looks kind of like one of the monsters, vampires from uh, I Am Legend, if you've seen that. Yeah. A pale, fleshy. Uh, Discount Kirk Russell, one of the Americans, following that is killed by the mummy. Uh, slightly off screen, he screams as he's lifted into the air and also emaciated. Uh, yeah. And now the mummy looks a, li- a lot more like the actor, except he's got two really disgusting openings in his skin. Yeah, which a scarab kind of crawls from one to the other. Um, I will say just before the mummy goes on to kill those two, they find Benny in the professor's kind of study area sort of thing. And pretty much instantly, like, they fucking, uh, they throw a chair at him. It makes like a sickening crack sound. Like, um, they start questioning him. Like he starts saying he doesn't know things, and then they put his face up to a fan, and he's like, "Yeah, no, I'll tell you everything." And then just as they're like bringing him back down to his feet, that he's like, "Yes, but seriously, I don't know." They put him back up. He starts spilling more, like whatever. And then that's when they hear the um, the mummy basically kill those other two. That gives. Benny, like, the time to kind of kick him in the dick and then fuck off out the window. And then, yeah, basically, uh, Discount Kurt Russell's killed. Uh, the mummy kind of turns himself into sand to get through the door because it's locked. And then once all of Saint sand granules are through, he kind of reconstitutes himself and... Um, Walks up to Evie's bed and just, yeah, like a fucking weirdo makes out with her. As his mouth contorts into the horrible, decrepit mummy-ness. Yeah. Uh, presumably of his own volition. <laughs> what a prick. The only reason I think that's happened is because literally the next bit is when they burst into the room with the cat and he... He does the uh, white O face kind of scream. The mummy does. And I thought that was just to give it so they didn't have to do like a skin kind of texture. They just had to do like the mummy kind of. Uh, But either way, the mummy kisses her as uh, Rick O'Connell breaks the door open along with Jonathan and has a cat in hand which poor Kirk Russell didn't have to his name before this and was summarily killed for it Uh, the mummy runs off as the cat hisses at him it's a little uh, demeaning to have your villain run off from cats not so much as in the 2017 film where the uh, 
fucking mummy has the shit kicked out of her every opportunity. This mummy is at least physically intimidating. No one can beat him in a fist fight. But hey. Uh the the mummy ends up fleeing and comes up with plan B, more or less, which is to enslave as many people as possible with these horrible looking boils. This is uh during the time that Rick O'Connell, Jonathan and uh, Evelyn go over to Evelyn's curator to ask him about all the uh, Hamanaptra stuff and to go over all the details of it where they find that the guardian of the tomb is in cahoots with this guy. And they kind of join forces at that point. Yeah, they... They uh, talk about how the uh, the Book of the Dead is still in Hamanaptra. They left it there for some reason. Whatever. Um, Book of the Dead there. Oh, no, sorry. The the Golden Book I can't remember. of the Living. Yeah, there we go. The Book of the Living is still in Hamanaptra. So they need to go back to kind of grab that. Um, and that's when basically the legion of boil slave victim people start walking towards the library and start trying to break down the doors and they're led by obviously the um the mummy um which kind of leads to a bit of hijinks where Jonathan pretends to be one of them one of the uh the legion by uh, chanting Imhotep yeah Imhotep to try and basically just he's trying to get to the car so he can bring it round so everyone can get in and they can drive away um, which uh, I mean more or less works yeah I mean it worked for the very short period of time that they had a car um yeah uh, yeah there's uh, they start driving the car as the mummy sees what they're doing, and he sends his hordes and hordes of uh, legions of boil-stricken, really disgusting-looking people, reminder this is PG-13, uh, minions to attack the car and the people within it. At which point, Jonathan stops in the middle of the street as he sees a load of people with boils and nasty stuff all over them standing in the middle of it and decides, you know what, I should stop, I shouldn't drive over them. And then Rick kicks his fucking foot just slams on the pedal and uh, slams into all of them which is the end of the world you prick a few people die boo fucking who uh, during which obviously it's an open top car and this is the 1920s I don't know the top speed I know there was the Ford Trans- not Ford Transit Ford that had an alright top speed P, and that was pr- maybe? yeah it was pretty cheap I think yeah uh, and clearly these guys can afford better than that. So they probably had an alright speed to it. Not great, I'd imagine. It's an open top, so it's quite easy to pick people out of it. Uh, and the American ends up being the one to get picked out, who is summarily killed after shooting every bullet in his revolver. I mentioned earlier in the 1959 one, they keep an eye on how many shots they fire. They do in this one as well. Uh, as the American fires all his shots and then a couple extra you can hear the six and then the eight 
it's quite nice. It's a neat little detail. Uh, me personally, I'd have saved one for myself, but I think he was more uh, American, gung-ho. Try to get out of this situation best I can. And he's killed. Uh, the car has to stop fairly quickly. I think it crashes into something, if I remember rightly. Something of the like, or at least it's, yeah, it's they, put to a halt. They drove into like a market area, I think, and they... Um... I think they hit like a uh, they hit the stall and it goes into like the uh, wall of one of the buildings that's close by. Yeah, either way, Imhotep uh, meets up with them and gives them a little deal. Says to Evelyn, "Look, you piss off with me, and I'll spare your friends." And he's got uh, two little cross fingers behind his back, the little cheeky devil. Yeah. Pretty much. And uh, as Evelyn leaves with him, he says, kill them all. Little scamp. Uh, and then the most pointless sacrifice in the entire series. So they, they find a uh, grating, a uh, sewer grate, start getting into it. And for some reason, the library the library creator uh, starts attacking people with a sword. He didn't need to. He could have quite easily just got in the sewer grate and they had time. Yeah, it's it's not even like the, the Legion of Boil Victims kind of shambles quickly towards where they are. It's very slow kind of half walk that they're doing that they could literally, all of them dr- jump into this sewer grate. I mean, one person isn't going to hold back a tide of like, what? maybe 150 people maybe yeah I, you, like, you're gonna kill ultimately fairly yeah. innocent people as well beyond that i mean he's twat. fairly quickly overrun and torn apart uh but yeah they managed to get out they managed to escape and end up going to winston the uh world war one pilot from earlier to Try to get back to Hamanaptra, rescue Evelyn. Uh, and Rick O'Connell says a line that I think surmises the film pretty perfectly. Rescue the damsel in distress, kill the bad guy, save the world. It's simple, pretty damn cheesy, but it's uh, it's nice. It, it's a beautiful little simple, straightforward plot. Just executed really well. Uh Winston, yeah, he's happy to fly to Hamanaptra. I think they they come up to him and say something. There was talk earlier in the film, like, oh, all my friends that were in the Air Corps kind of died during World War One and whatnot, but I somehow always made it out. And it kind of depresses him, and then he's given this kind of last mission, and he's like, "Yep, yeah, this might be my way to go. Noble mission and all that." Well, World War One, uh, I think it was the 20 minutes, the pilots were called. Yeah. As the average life expectancy of a World War One pilot from Britain. So Winston starts flying over with um, a biplane kind of thing with two little... I don't know what they're called. I know on the bike there are kind of little attached... Sidecars, yeah, yeah. That's the one. Sidecars. Yeah, but I I don't know what uh, yeah I don't know what you mean. They, they basically one uh, that right. So they've got the pilot in this one. You've got the backseat kind of gunner 
and then you've got basically one person kind of strapped to the wing uh, of this one, which you've got um, Ardet Bay and Jonathan strapped to the wing while uh, Rick's in the gunner seat and obviously Winston's flying. So basically uh, the mummy kind of does his teleport turn into sand kind of thing and um, teleports Evie and Benny into the air uh, into the area of Hermanatra. Um and just as they kind of turn up they see Winston's plane flying about and the mummy at this point kind of builds a giant wall of sand um, that kind of chases the plane makes a face in the sand again obviously and tries to swallow well swallows the plane um, the reason that they're a- able to escape is Evelyn uses well basically Evelyn kisses the uh, Imhotep uh, to kind of distract him from using the spell sort of thing and then just when she thinks that they've escaped the plane goes down and crashes into the sand and then that's well Imhotep's obviously like yeah okay job's done and I got a kiss out of it sweet let's go um, whereas I think literally anyone else would be like I'm going to go over there and make sure that they're dead he has a habit of doing that didn't bother to guard his tomb originally when he was alive doesn't bother to guard it initially later he has a habit of not bothering I think it is a level of arrogance to the guy you can see with the smiling and the uh, sand wall we need to write it off partially as that yeah hubris maybe yeah hubris perfect Winston's dead. Uh, the plane crashes still. And I give it props for not having a ridiculous explosion. None of the explosions in this are over the top. They're all contained to what it actually would be in real life. There's no like stupid fireball yeah. in the air at any point. It's just a plane falls into the ground. There's a little bit of smoke and sand gets shoved up. Uh, Winston's dead during it. Jonathan's upside down. And... Uh, Bay gets out of the plane by himself and rips off the uh, yeah the heavy machine gun, gun back mounted thing. Uh, the plane, along with Winston, gets swallowed up by quicksand. Uh, quicksand not usually found in deserts. Is it needs water? You need a difference yeah. in um, density, I believe, to get quicksand to happen. But that's a cool scene. The salute goes on for uh, Winston and then everyone makes their way towards Havanaptra uh, the mummy and Penny and Evelyn have already got there starting up the ritual uh, to sacrifice Evelyn in order to I don't know, is it just resurrect his what it seemed to me was Evelyn was basically and Nooks and a Moon's like skin absorb thing. Like he needed four, but apparently she only needed one, maybe. Because they put the soul of a Nooks and a Moon back into a mummified body. Yeah, I think that's the best way of thinking about it. Actually, she's like the uh, skin graft. 
Rick's sort of going, I suppose there's less of her than there is of the priest, or uh, as the priest went through a horrible ritual, that might be it. Because they gave the priest immortality for some fucking reason. <clears throat> uh, so Jonathan, Rick, and uh, Bay all get to the Hamadaptra ruins. Uh, fairly stealthily at this point, I'd imagine that the mummy doesn't know they're there yet until Jonathan gets attacked by a scarab of his own fault. Uh, he picks it up with his own volition and it jumps out, enters through his arm, I think. This one. Yeah, enters through the palm of his hand and kind of crawls up to where his shoulder is and Rick acting fast kind of notices, opens his shirt and pulls out a knife and kind of digs it out of his uh, shoulder. Uh, pops it out, it flies like 10 feet away. And as he's putting the knife away, he pulls out the revolver and shoots yeah, it. Yeah, and that kind of uh, alerts Imhotep to their location. I think in reality, that scarab would have just messed his arm up. Fuck it, you, it torn every single muscle, destroyed the ligaments. You wouldn't be able to use that fucking thing ever again. It'd be worthless. I mean, I, I, I don't know if it, I don't know if it crawls through the muscle or if it's like just it crawls just below the skin. Well, it's fucking big. Is a thing. It, it's not a small yeah. little like uh, worm or anything. It'd fuck you up. It, at least internal bleeding would be a fucking nightmare after that thing. It cut through some vessels at least. But yeah, uh, now that the uh, now that Imhotep's kind of onto the presence of like Rick and everyone, he awakens some of his old priests. Um, basically, awake awakens them and basically is like, yeah, go kill. Uh, go kill them and wake the others. They are shit because literally they are taken down in droves later right well literally in the next scene i love it they're absolutely shit and it's it's great the slapstick it's top notch there's stuff like there's at one point uh rick he drops his sword and one of the priest's hands it's been detached from the body goes to grab it and rick grabs that hand and chops off another's legs and it drops a sarcophagus head onto itself there's all sorts of stuff that happens some of them are crushed, some of them just have their heads chopped off as they start, you know, uh, that classic throwing the head about in their hands. Reminded me a lot of uh, The Black Pearl, which I think is another great action-adventure film of the kind of 90s era. I think it was 2000s, but hey. With the uh, pirate zombies, who were also pretty shit. Not quite as bad, to be fair, but yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Benny is slowly removing the vault of gold, little by little. Yeah, he's literally taking out like uh, saddlebags full of gold and stacking them up on like O'Connell's and Jonathan's camels. Like, yeah, I'm going to take all these camels with me as well. Load up as much as I can. He loads up one camel and then goes back in for them. He kind of... He's free. He's out. He could get away. 
but his kind of his greed kind of makes him go back in for a second like um pack and yeah. he keeps going back and forth i think he's, he's took out shit loads at this point i said the camels don't move for him uh not because it's scripted to just because they hated the actor so during the battle with the priests within the tomb the guardian uh bay ends up semi-sacrificing himself. He does survive it all at the end, but he uh, charges against a lot of priests that are coming in and kind of keeps them occupied as uh, Jonathan and Rick manages to get into the actual ritual chamber with Imhotep and everything going on. Yeah, uh, they've got dynamite sticks. They throw one into where Ardet Bay is fighting the priests and they throw another into like a little cubby hole and kind of hide from the blast and then as soon as the obviously wall's blown up they run in and that's where they get into the ritual chamber yeah at this point uh Anksu Namun has been semi-resurrected she's been put in her own body at least and she's squirming about a bit uh, which Evelyn none too pleased about Fair to say. Uh, it's fair. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan appears on the stairway. Uh, I think Rick's kind of going around to try to ambush or something. Yeah, I think basically Jonathan's acting as like a distraction for a small period of time while Rick runs up, grabs a sword and starts dealing with some of the uh, other priests that are hanging around the altar, the ritual altar. Uh, and the mummy, he has his dagger just above uh, Evelyn's body and decides not to go through with it immediately anyway. Because at this point he could just stab her down, I imagine, and that'd be it. He's immortal. His wife's back. Hey-ho, everyone's won. Yeah. Why not just... I mean, at this point he is immortal anyway, so I think it's literally like I could stab down and make sure that Anux on the Moon's sorted now. Or I could wait until these guys are finished with and then... Yeah, uh, he continues to show off his incompetence with that trope that you see a lot in... Uh, that trope you see a lot of in PG-13 films where the bad guy doesn't punch anyone, doesn't hurt anyone, just throws them about a bit without actually killing them. Grabs them by the neck kind of thing and just pushes them away. Kind of like a schoolyard bully. It's just a little pathetic. There's a lot of fighting back and forth. Uh, Jonathan gets a golden book and reads out incantation to resurrect some other guardians. I think it might have been the old um, Pharaoh guards or something like that, which guardians the vault or something. Uh, He resurrects the Pharaoh guards by accident. And then uh, Imhotep kind of takes advantage of that and tells them to uh, kill O'Connell, which he then runs away for about a minute and a half, maybe. Um, There's a little chase scene while uh, Imhotep's going after Jonathan and Anuks on the Moon's going after um, Evie. Jonathan asks for advice to decrypt the rest of the book so they can turn the incantation to where their 
guiding the uh, Pharaoh's guards. When that goes through, he sends them to kill Anux and Amun. Um, he drops the book, runs away. Rick comes over to distract uh, Imhotep again, while Evie and Jonathan can carry on. Which they find a ritual in the book that turns the mummy back to mortal. Um, basically, like a CGI chariot, horse and chariots come running past, run through him. What looks like a CGI version of him is pulled away, and yeah, it, it's very hint, very heavily hinted that obviously it's taken his soul back, um, and then he walks up to Rick to kind of throw him again, maybe, and then Rick stabs him with the sword, and he starts to die, and he fall he walks back into like a pit of souls yeah more or less just sits there to wither away looks a bit confused and then I think he says death is only the beginning again I don't think he was in any sequels yeah he's in the second one oh is he? yeah fair enough did he die like a bitch as well in that? yep pretty much death is only the beginning of my continual humiliation (laughs) The death is only the beginning again. Um, like a catchphrase for a more, <laughs> more depressed pharaoh. Uh, so, yeah, film doesn't quite finish. We have to, it's obviously it's a cheesy little action film in a giant temple. We have to have a self-destruct button. Yeah, and Benny sets it off. Where you said earlier for the uh, Guardian should have, you know, just moved the bricks out and dealt with it. They could have just clicked that. Yeah. That'd that, have been it. Yeah. Literally the work just like, alright, we sacrifice one person, but we do it for the good of the entire planet. So if one of you's just, I don't know, sit on this, like, rock that shifts, just stay there, and then... We're good. Well, I mean, Benny would have survived if he had have dropped all his shit immediately and ran. So it's not even a sacrifice. It's just we get someone who's really athletic. You fucking leg it. Yeah. And then, yeah, the world's saved. Huzzah. But yeah, Benny basically has a sack full of gold, gets really tired, leans it up against a lever, which pulls down and starts a self-destruct sequence. Yeah, basically the entire place uh, starts to fill up with sand and like other bits have like um, the best I can describe as like large concrete or large stone um, security doors. Yeah, they kind of start collapsing down. Yeah, it's okay. It's like that... uh, if anyone's ever played Resident Evil 1, when you get stuck in the room that where you're going to be a Jill sandwich, basically loads of them come down from the ceiling and basically just kind of seal off the area. What's that line from Barry? Lucky you're going to be a Jill sandwich. Just that terrible, terrible voice acting. Excuse me. 
it was one of the best voiced acting. I love that shit. No Dino Crisis. Oh yeah, there's no Dino Crisis. Uh, Stuff, yeah, it drops down. Uh, And Rick and the rest of the group, they do drop the Golden Book, which Evelyn sort of tries to go back to and then is pulled away. Idiot. Yep. And Uh, as they're running through the giant gold room, um, Jonathan does the same thing and they drag him. Uh, yeah, they do end up getting out, get to the exit. Benny, not so fortunate. He tries to drag a load of gold, which slows him down. His greed ends up being his own downfall. Yeah, and he's eaten to death by scarabs. I was just wondering, would you rather starve to death or be eaten by scarabs? Um, It's described in the film that they eat you very slowly. I think, um, well, starving to death isn't very fucking quick either, but, you know... I mean, more dehydrate, I suppose. Yeah. At least if you dehydrate, I think you start to, like... You start to see shit, right? I don't know, I've never dehydrated someone. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Yeah, but Benny, he gets his comeuppance, scarabs eat him to shit. Uh, and the rest of the group get out. The Guardian, uh, Bay, uh, survived on his camel, looking over. He gives off a bit of a speech to say thank you. In reality, if it were me, I'd go, fuck you, you started all this, now piss off. Yeah, thanks for fucking getting me involved in this shit, you fucking assholes. You got a load of my mates killed. I defended this fucking area for God knows how long and you fucked it. Thanks. You cocksuckers. Now fuck off. And they uh, end up leaving. They have all the treasure, of course, that Benny took out. Don't notice it yet. It reminded me quite a bit of the scene from uh, Last Crusade, Indiana Jones, where they're riding off on camelback after their next adventure kind of thing. Yeah. It's all a very nice, neat bow to a really, really good film that I'd forgotten how much I loved. Yeah, I did to be as well, to be fair. I haven't seen this film in years. And then as soon as we were like, oh, we're going to be watching the Mummy films. I was like, the Brandon Fraser one? Okay, I'll I'll watch that. And then I fucking loved it, so... Thanks. Yeah, and now for your comic retribution of the Mummy 2017. Oh, yeah. joy. Well, no sense waiting. Straight into it. Cast and crew... Uh, so, director Alex Kurtzman, and for both director and writer, I've put Tom Cruise is involved. Tom Cruise, notoriously through the entirety of this film, uh, redesigned the script and the directing. He took over a lot of it. It was kind of a personal project. Ruined it, I think, more than it was already. It's Alex Kurtzman directing and writing. How good could it have been anyway? Yeah, he, uh, he's a bit of a megno, megnomaniacal overlord. Moving people about and doing as he commanded Tom Cruise. He can do what the fuck he wants. Yeah, uh, Alex Kurtzman, uh, who I'd call infamous, but I think that I'd give him too much credit. He did Amazing Spider-Man 2, uh, Transformers, the Michael Bay film. He's a writer for that. 
Uh, he ruined Star Trek with Star Trek Into Darkness. He did a terrible Daniel Craig film, Cowboys and Aliens. Uh, Guy seems to be able to take the utmost pleasure in taking beloved nostalgia and just snuffing out any wit or fun. He's just a general fun vampire. A horrible director. And a terrible person. Yeah. And to think that they wanted this to be an entire universe, like they wanted um, like a Marvel Universe dark fucking... Yeah, it was a fucking mess. I, oh, I love that, don't. yeah. Let's start a universe. Who should we get to direct and write? Why don't we get the guy who ruined Star Trek and Spider-Man and Transformers? He seems like a good guy to kick off our universe with. Brilliant. I, I hope someone was fired. I hope an entire team was fired. The worst thing is, they were like, oh yeah, let's put Tom Cruise too. Let's let's put Tom Cruise in the director and write a fucking seat. So, with the writers talking about that, uh, I'm not going to give it any credit because there's seven of the fuckers, including <laughs> Kurtzman and Tom Cruise. If you don't put any passion or thought into the script, then I'm not going to put anything into talking about the actual writers. If if you've got about seven people, some doing the screenplay, some doing the actual uh, story, some doing this, some doing that, I don't give a shit anymore. It's not a writer. It's a cabal of corporate cronies who are putting forth this amalgamation of the most generic action schlock possible that's just boring. You can say all you want about a film like Hills of Ice 2 or Wishmaster 4 or something like The Room, or Birdemic, some of those classics. They're shit, yeah. They are just objectively terrible films. But they have passion. They're, it's like a Neil Breen film. There's passion behind it. There's an actual attempt at making something that they loved, that they thought was going to be good. And whether they fail or not doesn't take away from the fact that they actually tried to do something with their own ideas and that they wanted to do it, trying to create, start another cinematic fucking universe. Uh, Acting-wise, starring Tom Cruise, who plays Nick Morton, a.k.a. boring, generic Merc, uh, who, don't really need to say, has been in Mission Impossible, Jerry Maguire, Top Gun, personal favourite, Last Samurai, uh, horror-wise, it was in, obviously, he played Lestat in Interview of the Vampire. was very good in that. He's not a one-note actor. He's actually a very good actor. Incredibly good actor. But you need to put him in the right role. And this isn't it. Uh, for Universal Monsters, with the Universal franchise, you need to focus on the monsters first and the people second. Yeah. When you've got Tom Cruise in a film, you've got to focus on Tom Cruise. Yeah, and they heavily did that, and it just didn't work. I know they were like, oh, but he's the monster in the end, but, I mean, not really. Like, for this, they've they've done it, so I, I understand why they did it, if they were trying to start up their own dark universe and whatnot, but it doesn't work out well in a film if you're building up your main character to literally just fucking 
destroy your main antagonist straight away. Yeah, a main antagonist that gets bitch slapped at every fucking corner. Yeah. Uh, so, talking about main antagonist, uh, Sophia Butella, who's plays um, Armanet. Armanet, yeah, and she's a model. She's not an actress. She's just a model. In Atomic Blonde, uh, Charlie Charlie's Ferron film, Climax, Kingsman Two, actually a good film, Kingsman Two. Not as good as the first, but uh, yeah, she's a model. She's not an actress. You should have got someone who knows how to play monsters. Get Charlize Theron. She knows how to do that sort of stuff. They, they, I always hate it when they go for pretty over decent. And it's always with female monsters. They can never go, right, we'll have a semi-attractive woman who is really good in the fucking role. When it's guys, yeah, you can have a fucking ugly as sin prick. It can never go the other way. It does my head in. Uh, otherwise, Annabelle Wallace, who was actually requested by Tom Cruise, uh, who plays Jenny Halsey, aka Pretty and Academic Woman, another generic stereotype, who's fine, given nothing to do, and she's okay. She's in Peaky Blinders. I'm told she's good in that. I haven't seen it. Uh, and the Conjuring Universe film, Annabelle, uh, done by. Um, director, our Swedish guy who's actually did Shazam as well good director, just saddled with a lot of shit, did that Lights Out film 2014? Yeah it's pretty good, he does a YouTube channel uh, on filmmaking that's really good Uh, and then otherwise Russell Crowe, the other big one who plays Dr. Jekyll and obviously Mr. Hyde Uh, do I need to say anything? he's in Gladiator, Beautiful Mind uh, played Les Mis, uh, beautiful singing voice in that, infamous singing voice. And uh, you seen, <laughs> you seen Unhinged yet? No, the I haven't. Most seen recent that. film, really good. He plays. Um, I'll, I'll be fair. He runs an Australian rules football team. He more or less plays himself. Oh, he right, uh, goes around on a maniac killing spree because one woman beats with him in traffic. <laughs> <laughs> He has a bit of an anger issue in real life, apparently. Russell Crowe. Uh, great actor in The Right Thing. Uh, he's actually one of the few things I liked about this film. I think his version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I don't know, is that a controversial statement? Quite possibly, because it was probably the worst thing that I thought about this film. Not Not him as an actor. He's a great actor and whatnot, but it how it seemed to be, uh, how it seemed to be uh, me, is Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde. Obviously, Doctor Jekyll is supposed to be a genius when it comes to like, uh, like immunization and all that sort of thing, uh, all that sort of thing, like, um, like all medical matters, chemistry and shit. Yeah. yeah. Whereas mr hyde's supposed to be this larger than life like powerhouse of just rage and ferocity and whatnot and he got beaten by a human tom cruise dickhead boring muck you ever read the uh, original dr jekyll and mr hyde no very good book uh really interesting and dr jekyll and mr hyde it's less superpowered it's more 
Mr. Hyde is really a heinous fucking individual. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the original like source materials to a lot of these Universal monsters are kind of a Brothers Grimm level of terrifying. And uh, Mr. Hyde, he rapes people, he kills babies, he sucks the blood out of people. He's like the worst of the worst person. Invisible Man does the same stuff. He he really is a piece of shit. Yeah. Uh, great source material. And I, I think Russell Crowe, if given the right material, he'd be a really good Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde. I think that's it's more that. Uh, I did also like Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde in. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the film, terrible film, with uh, Sean Connery. Yeah. Uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah. Awful film, but I I like it. Yeah, me too. It's a very un- unpopular decision. Uh, uh, decision, but fuck yes. Uh, I actually really enjoy that film. Uh, so, a little bit trivia-wise, uh, I've meant to start the Dark Universe, lol. Uh, and a really funny trailer that was released. I think I sent it to you a couple months back. Yeah, yeah, it was literally they accidentally sent out the entire trailer without any kind of audio. It was literally just Oh, sorry, it wasn't any background music. So it, it, was, it was better than them. that. It was one track missing, the background music was gone, and so it was just them uh, making weird grunts. Yeah. As it went and around the plane. In the plane. Yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. And them screaming without any extra audio behind it. I sat through that entire scene laughing my ass off. So, with this one, uh, start the film, can't be asked with the narrator. They just give us some reading. I know one of those um, talk show hosts, was it Jimmy Fallon? I think it was one of the Americans. Uh, it was promoted on his show and Tom Cruise treated, uh, this is all in um, quotation marks, treated the audience to a private screening of the film before it was out. Yeah. And the audience apparently hated it. <laughs> and that's like a, a daily show audience. They, they'll fucking eat. They'll take anything. They'll laugh at anything. Yeah, they'll uh, they'll woo at anything as long as you've just turned up and you're going, yeah. So start off with the scene of uh, Crusaders, which isn't... Right. Um, basically, the Crusaders have gone to Egypt because they know that this dagger is like a, a cursed relic. They've separated it into two parts just to make it a bit harder to put them together and use to be fair, the uh, Guardians from the last film could have learned a thing or two. Exactly. Uh, I mean, not too much because they buried it with them, for fuck's sake. But, whatever. Um, so they basically put the dagger in one place. Uh, they've literally put it in like... Uh, they put it in like a porcelain... Um, headstone sort of thing in one coffin and they just wore the uh, one of the crusaders just wore the red ruby sort of around his neck and then was buried with it oh fair enough yeah so basically when you put when you put them together that basically when you stab someone with it or when you stab the one with it 
um, they become set in human form. There's your exposition for the day. The film uh, doesn't let up on it either. So, yeah, there's a minute of the Crusaders uh, news stories talking about it in a really dark tone for some reason. I think it was they're trying to set up the tone for the film, but no news story talking about, oh, we found a load of relics down below the streets of London. We'd be talking about London's built on graves. Sarcophagi below. We'd be talking about, we found treasure. We found a load of history. It's great. It's wonderful. Yeah. This is never be a bad story. I mean, we found a fucking Roman road in Birmingham city centre a few years ago, and no one would shut the fuck up about it. That's that Saxon horde. Yeah. That, that was with dead people. No one fucking had that in a bad light. It was all, oh shit, we found a Saxon horde. It's amazing. Look at all the gold. Look at all the dead bodies. This is great. We found a few bricks from Roman times. Isn't that grand? No. Apparently, the next film was meant to be Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, I know that uh, was going to be Angelina be Jolie. But, oh, fuck. Yeah. That'd be terrible. I suppose generic people they can pick from. No one interesting. Like Robert Downey Jr., interesting guy. He was fucking nobody before he became Iron Man. He was some coke addict, great actor. They picked him. At least they knew their shit. But, uh, yeah, no, I think they would have led up to a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen kind of thing with Tom Cruise at the helm. And it'd have been rubbish. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Crusaders and everything and news stories dealt with. Uh, Russell Crowe comes into a kind of crypts in uh, the London uh, underground with some of it's flooded by the Thames. It's very briefly said. Uh, Russell Crowe's introduced in a silhouette. You hear his voice. And he's shown immediately after in full light. If you do that, showing him a silhouette is just fucking silly. You wait an hour to reveal him after that. You, you take your time. Otherwise, just show him immediately. What do you need this fucking silhouette for? It's just him silhouetted as well. Everyone around him is in perfect light. But for some reason, this dark, evil, mysterious man, you aren't allowed to know his identity for the princely sum of five fucking seconds. Uh, he and his men start unearthing the tombs and uh, exposit about the mummy and everything. He starts talking about her. Uh, they're kind of like the shield of the universal world, or were meant to be, uh, if this kicked off. They're kind of like um, oh, the primeval lot that secured monsters and stuff. <laughs> Someone out there. Yeah, kind of like the shield lot. Of the universal world. Uh, and he, he knows his stuff. Over the years. Not done anything about it mind you. But knows his stuff. About the mummy and everything. Uh, so the mummy in this one. has I have no sympathy for her. In the other ones. I could at least get that kind of. Love story angle on it. As some. Yeah. I can relate to it a little bit. Uh, you know you really love a girl. You a bit stupid, Romeo and Juliet style, you try to make yourselves immortal and it fucks up. That's, that's yeah, fine. I could see why that would happen. But in this one, uh, the mummy... Right, so first things first, she's in line to the throne to be Pharaoh from her dad. Her dad as a baby boy. Uh, and that pisses her off. So because she can't be Pharaoh, 
she decides to unleash Endless Darkness, which seems very reasonable and proportionate. She, during this pact, makes a pact with Set uh, to say that I'll bring you into the world to destroy it if I can become the Pharaoh. Uh, and so Set gives her the power to have tattoos on her and make her really obviously evil so that everyone else can know she's evil and kill her. She doesn't seem to have any other power at the moment because she's easily dealt with. Uh, yeah, And she kills her brother and father with a knife, slits their throat, baby brother, which you killed a baby. I don't have any fucking sympathy for you for the rest of the thing. Yeah, I think that was their... Yeah, you don't have any kind of tension if 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 your bad guy is literally just this uncaring dick of a creature, you you don't get any sense of like, oh, will she succeed? Will she do this? Will if you've if they've got like some sympathetic kind of thing to them. I know it's a shit film, but uh, Spider-Man 3. Sandman in that is a great villain because, yeah, he's done bad things, but he has a sympathetic reason. He's trying to raise funds for his late uh, daughter who's got cancer or whatnot. Very sympathetic, kind of whatever. And then in the exact same film, you've got a complete dick that is Venom slash Eddie Brock, which you don't mind seeing dead at the end of it. This, it's like, okay, you've got you've got all your main villains and whatnot. If you were trying to build like a universe, you'd keep like what they did with the Avengers. You keep Loki alive. You don't kill one of your powerful like like enemies to just just well, especially with universal uh, with marvel at least you've got the heroes and stuff who are the mainstays they're the uh, reason to buy the ticket with universal it's the monsters that's why we're coming yeah don't kill them off and don't make them just random rah i'm scary monsters if you're going to go down this road they've got to have more depth to them they've got to have some humanity to them yeah, and if you, if you're trying to sell us on the fact that Johnny Depp, uh, sorry, not Johnny Depp, um, Tom Cruise, is this mommy, then it it just won't work, because literally nothing about him. He didn't die. He hasn't like uh, revived, and he's undead. It's none of that. He's literally just got a god in his body. That's it. Do you know that um, uh, Sandman was meant to be the only villain? For the third film, when Sam Raimi wrote it, yeah, corporate bullshit got in the way because they had about seven fucking writers jump on the bandwagon. Wonder if that relates to any films we're doing tonight. Right. Uh, yeah, she slits the throat of her dad and son, which I feel like she could have done without making the pact. You could have yeah. probably said, "Oh, a servant did it." It's not CSI fucking Egypt. This is three thousand odd BC. <laughs> At this point, she's got followers, so she's got like people that would take willingly take the blame if they knew, like, oh, Set's gonna come back and he's gonna like give us shit. Yeah, okay, I'll take the blame for this. I'll die. Just make sure Set resurrects me. 
Yeah, I'm sure you could get some nutter to do that. And the demon, as I said, it seems to give her nothing. She's just killed instantly when she tries to resurrect set. Instantly murdered just with a couple like spear shoves and other stuff and then wrapped in mummy stuff. Now, I will give the film some credit. At least this time the Egyptians don't curse themselves by giving her all the power in the world. At least this yeah. time it's her doing it. More proactive on her part and less stupid on their part. Uh, but yet, yeah, we... Uh, Seclude her off for a good portion of the film, probably about 30 minutes, I think. 30, 40 minutes before she comes back in. And we go to uh, Generic Mercenary 1, played by Tom Cruise, and Generic Mercenary 2, uh, called Vale. And dialogue, for the most part, I think for the first 20 minutes, is purely expository. Literally means nothing. Um... It, it, it's that kind of... Oh man, do you remember back when in uh, New York when you saved me from those bullies? Yeah, I do, man. Aren't we friends? Yeah, we're friends. But aren't we? Aren't we the? Aren't we? Aren't we the kind of friends that are like, ha ha ha? We'll take like little putt shots and jokes at each other. Mm, yeah, it's no, not really. And how it, many clicks were we away from the military that we were meant to call in from at the point we were meant to be at? Oh, we were 100 clicks away from that and the military are this far away precisely. Oh, that's good to know. That's normal dialogue someone would mention. Uh, yeah, they're 100 miles away and they'll, from the point they need to be uh, doing reconnaissance in for the military during, I think it's Iraq or Iran, that kind of thing, dealing with uh, infidels and the like. And Vale starts complaining that they should be a hundred miles in a different direction. I feel like if you were complaining about it, you wouldn't have gone a hundred fucking miles in a different direction. You would have gone in that direction. Yeah, no matter how, no matter how friendly you are, I if if say me and my best friend ever in the planet was in the military, and he was like, hey. I'm going to go this way. Do you want to come along? I'll be like, okay, I'll come along. If he's going a hundred miles, I'd be like, yeah, at some point I'm going back because I ain't dealing with your shit and I ain't getting a fucking court-martial. And uh, all and all get killed by the local yeah. infidels that hate you. I probably wouldn't even have got there. I would have just been like, okay, I'm ten miles away from where we're supposed to be. Yeah, I'm going back. This is going to take too long. Fuck that shit. So yeah, uh, Tom Cruise destroys Vale's water bottle to force him to go into the village, which is filled with people that want them dead. Filled to the fucking brim. Uh, which they find out very quickly as we get into a like terrible version of Black Hawk Down, where they're attacked by uh, in an urban environment by other infidels and the like by insurgents fired at uh, and Tom Cruise looks towards Val constantly and Val says oh should we call it an airstrike Tom Cruise says no no we can handle this there's only about fucking 80 of the pricks and two of us I'm sure we'll be fine at no point do you think maybe we should call for reinforcements or we'll be dead uh, explosions in this as well frag grenade goes off a couple other things go off they look ridiculous Fragmentation grenades don't blow up into an explosion like that. 
they they don't make a little fireball. They uh, fragment, kind of in the name, lads. Yeah. Uh, so, Vale ends up calling in an airstrike, to which Tom Cruise says, while they have no guns, I should mention, they've dropped them at this point. Tom Cruise says, did you call in an airstrike? He says, yeah, yeah, I did. And no shit, did he? You're both going to die. Of course he called in an airstrike. <laughs> You're surrounded by a load of guys with guns firing at you. How the fuck are you going to get out of this situation surviving without an airstrike? So yeah, they both survive. And then the military captain comes in, who's the big black sergeant, uh, who's, you know, seen it all. He's uh, grumpy. It, it's it's Winston from Ghostbusters. At the same time, a archaeologist introduced uh, Jennifer, who is the most generic stereotype of the academic, pretty, I-need-no-man girl I've ever seen in my life, who begins the conversation surrounded by both Vale and the sergeant saying, I slept with this man three days ago. It was a bit rubbish. He stole something from me. Who who talks like this? Who begins a conversation around the military saying, I slept with this man? Fucking Tom Cruise and his giant ego needs to have 30-year-old women say, I slept with him. Yeah, to be fair, from everything that I've heard about Tom Cruise, yes, he does think he does need that. I think his own list of wives fucking shows that perfectly. Uh, yeah, they uh, find a giant hole in the ground which any points I gave for them chopping artifacts in two and sending them off in two directions is pretty much all snuffed out the window here because this place is the least secure and worst kept area in the world. Uh, the giant hole for one is the most obvious thing imaginable, this cavern. Why would you yeah, make it, it obvious? I think the airstrike hit there and then that's what it, that's what that is. Oh, the airstrike hit that random location. An airstrike wouldn't push up. it down that far. It blew up the surface, sure. An airstrike doesn't fucking drill down. This is an actual proper cavern. Yeah. To be uh, to be fair, it looked... I think what they were going for is like, oh, it blew the roof off this place. It all fell down. And then they can go into like the actual tomb proper. Still a giant cavern. There's no way they could have shot that much rock off. Yeah. I'm saying with utmost certainty that the the guys who buried the mummy were stupid enough to use a giant fuck-off hole or a giant fuck-off cavern with a slight roof on it. Uh, so they all go down the hole ordered to by the sergeant because this is military-based stuff, obviously. This is necessary to the war effort. Uh, he sends the guy who slept with the girl down because that's a good idea as well. He sends two random grunts, surely. Just two Yeah, idiots. you wouldn't you wouldn't send the two people that have gone A wall for god knows how long. But you'd send obviously you'd send the archaeologist just in case there's anything of actual value down there. But you wouldn't send the two people that have gone A wall for the last god knows how long. The archaeologist who's by herself. I'd imagine most archaeologists who work in teams for stuff like this have bodyguards if they're in this kind of area. 
have all sorts of stuff. It's ridiculous. Especially this girl who is, we find out later, is part of the organisation that Russell Crowe runs. For some reason, Russell Crowe decides she's good enough on her own. Fucking why? Just send her with someone. Uh, So they go down this giant hole, rappel down. They have a look around. They see uh, statues of Set kind of looking inwards. Statues of Ibis, possibly. Could never remember all the gods or horrors. The one with the wolf head looking inwards uh, against a pool, which the uh, coffin of the mummy's in. It's the most over-elaborate shit ever. For a woman who was disgraced, she's buried in a fucking nice-looking hole. Uh, and as they walk around, they hear that there are some, is it bogies, uh, insurgents above that yeah. are going to attack shortly. And so Nick decides, uh, obviously smartly, to repel up the hole. Uh, no, he doesn't. He shoots a random fucking rope for some reason, and it sets everything yeah. off. Yeah, he he kind of looks around, notices that like a large chain is what the the thing that's keeping something buried under mercury. Um, yeah, he keeps something encased in mercury. He shoots this fucking uh, large chain. It sets off like a reaction that obviously brings the um. Sarcophagus up out of the mercury for everyone to see, and that's when like a load of camel spiders start coming down and crawling over all over everyone. Yeah, one of them bites Vale. Uh, you'd like to find out it's a lot more deadly than they realise, but at the time it sounded like it was it hurt, but it's not an appropriate response yeah. to then shoot like a fucking madman. Yeah, he did. He. Uh, it, uh, uh, Nick Tom Cruise's character obviously even says it's not even poisonous just chill out just relax sort of thing and then yeah once again sarcophagus no defences they'll stop it being opened nothing as the spiders but they'll kill you eventually they won't kill you immediately they won't stop you from taking the thing out giving it to someone else the sarcophagus being buried in like the liquid mercury kind of the Egyptian they they say in the film that the Egyptians thought that mercury was like a a ward to keep evil spirits out or keep evil spirits encased oh yeah certainly that would have worked to keep the mummy in uh won't work for random twats dealing with the rope and taking her out of it which had no defences uh so they leave with the mummy repel back up which should take some time. Be fair to get all the way back up, as presumably infidels are shooting already. Uh, but that's glossed over. Not mentioned again. They get to a airbase, looks like, and start getting on ships to be transported away with the uh, mummy coffin. Uh, Vale looks like shit. At this point, he, he's pale. His eyes fucked up. No one mentions anything to him. They just say, oh, you look a bit ill. Is no one going to say, Jesus, you look like absolute shit? What the fuck happened to you? Yeah. 
Like at this point, hit like the veins in his neck and like the side of his face are turning black. Like this, his left eye is starting to go white. Loads of weird shits happening to him right at this point. Yeah, can we get him in fucking quarantine, please? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they go up on a ship, begin to uh, transport the uh, coffin as well around in a separate helicopter. Uh, and this is where the uh, trailer kicked in with no sound on. Uh, all of it done in zero G, which I think they did. There's a famous um, there's a famous plane thing that you can do where you fly up in the air and fly straight back down. It gives yeah. you zero gravity. Tom Cruise and um, Alison... Sorry, not Alison. Amelia Wallace. Tom Cruise and Amelia Wallace were the only ones to not throw up. Everyone else did, including the camera crew and the boom mic operators, which must have been fun. Uh, Vale goes nuts and goes to kill Cruise and uh, Amelia Wallace with a knife. Yeah. Uh, Shot by Tom Cruise as Tom Cruise holds the pistol back kind of level to his head sideways and fires which would break your fucking wrist into a million pieces yeah it'd break your wrist and it'll give you fucking tinnitus and tinnitus because you're fucking firing literally next to your ear i know he's immortal all that doesn't stop fucking tinnitus idiot Uh, yeah i mean vale has uh, he's starting to cut the ropes off the uh, sarcophagus when the corporal or whatever the fuck he is comes over to kind of uh, like admonish him for it he stabs him in the chest and then starts to walk towards uh, Tom and um, I think he was going to kill Jennifer his Tom obviously can't be killed yet uh, because the uh, he's working, Vale's working with the mummy an extent for all this and yeah, uh, shoots Vale the mummy sends off a flock of birds to send the plane down. The uh, plane goes into zero gravity. People you know, fly about a bit. The uh, plane ends up crashing into the middle of nowhere. Uh, somewhere, I think, where was it? Somewhere in England, I think. Yeah, I don't know where. Uh, I didn't pay much attention, to be fair. Somewhere like fucking Kent. I don't know. Uh, not in London. It's in a middle of nowhere forest kind of thing. Basically, the plane starts kind of pulling apart. Everyone's seen this bit, or at least they should have, because it was a fucking hilarious uh, trailer. Um, yeah, the plane's starting to fall apart, like a large chunk of it's fallen, uh, uh, being pulled off, sorry. Um, they managed to put a parachute on Jennifer and uh, they're both next to the giant hole. He pulls the cord, she flies off, um, and then you see out the giant hole that the plane is getting closer to land, and when it hits, obviously it cuts to black. The next scene is literally him waking up naked in a morgue, and him acting like, ha, that's weird, I don't know why I'm here. Uh, and then, at sacrilege, they try to do a homage to American Wealth in London, or just try to rip it off. 
uh, with Vale as a body, uh, still looks fucked up as he did before, uh, appearing to Nick, appearing to Tom Cruise, I'm just going to refer to him as Tom Cruise, appearing yeah. to Tom Cruise as he gets up from the morgue and starts telling him about the curse. It took me a while because it structured very similarly, obviously, to the American Wolf in London scene where uh, you seen it. No. Shit, okay. So basically two mates, Americans, are walking around uh, kind of buttfuck middle of nowhere country, somewhere outside of London, I think. And they get attacked by a werewolf. The one guy is savage completely. Like his throat gets ripped to shreds. His uh, face is done in, all sorts of stuff. His arm's broken. He's absolutely battered. And the one gets a scratch, the werewolf's shot, and he gets infected. And the infected one has to die so that all the ghosts that have been caused by the werewolves and are caused by the guy uh, can live eventually. And so the friend appears to uh, the werewolf, the new werewolf, as a corpse, just walking around as this ghost. And he's still like he's as battered as he was before. He's got blood everywhere. He's completely skewered. Looks like absolute shit. Far worse than they did in this one. Looks just like a shit uh, Grimdenwald. And he, yeah, he starts off the conversation with, can I have a slice of toast? And just keeps it as casual as possible. Meanwhile, his mate's shitting himself. Seeing this body going around. It's very similar in structure. Almost the same. Uh, I'd imagine purposefully. And I think the reason, two reasons why it's far, far better in the American Wealth in London version. For one, uh, the acting, just of the uh, dead friend. Vale's just shit and boring. The dead friend in the other one's great. And I think that the fact that for one the jokes added on to in the American World of London version, so he kills other people and the ghosts appear to him as well. Some of them hate him, some of them smile and wave. You get like little girls who've been horrifically ripped to shreds and they smile and go, Good morning. How you doing? Then you get the odd fifty year old who's been ripped to shreds by the werewolf who fucking hates him. It it's brilliant. Uh, yeah, the friend's just so matter-of-fact about it in American Werewolf, and the other one, the werewolf himself, is always so fucking petrified. It's just done better. It's hard to quite put into words, but the tone's better, the acting's better, and the writing's just better. Uh, I do love how Nick's body was found, of course, in the morgue, but the mummies wasn't. They fell off the same plane, right? Mummy's body never recovered while they were looking for Nick's. Not mentioned. Yeah, I, I. The worst thing is it's it was strapped down. I know he started cutting at the ropes, but he didn't cut any of them. He literally got stuck before he even cut one. So, I don't know where the sarcophagus could have gone. Apparently, it wound up in like a church. So, whatever. But. I'd understand his body being found in a different part of the uh, wreckage, because obviously there was a giant hole. He's not strapped to anything. He could fall out of fucking any time and still die, so whatever. But if something's strapped down, even if it is fucking rocketing towards the ground, it's it's going to take a lot for it to come loose. 
And even if it does come loose, it'll probably be during the impact where it'll literally just fall somewhere inside the wreckage anyway. I don't know. No, well, no, yeah. Uh, so with all that, Jennifer phones up Russell Crowe, tells him about the whole situation while talking to Tom Cruise, finding out he's alive. No one asks Tom Cruise any questions, really. He's just allowed to go. I'd have thought, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah we're going to take yeah. you to the government and you're going to immediately tell us how you fucking survived a plane crash. Yeah, we registered you as clinically dead, so how the fuck are you alive sort of thing. Um, how did you come back to life? Whatever. How have you got literally no broken bones with no fucking parachute, no nothing? After after all that stuff, after she finds up Russell Crowe and it all goes through this, a quick scene with the mummy to kind of keep you up to date. She has escaped, uh, kills two police officers who for some reason are looking over the wreckage, two just uniformed, uh, not plain clothes, just, yeah, uniformed officers walking yeah. around, not keeping the police line or anything, walking around a presumably quite dangerous plane crash. Great police here. Uh, she kills both of them and then just retreat over to the church. Meanwhile, uh, Nick, again, go through more rubbish homage to American Werewolf and terrible attempts at jokes. He's in the girl's bathroom. Isn't that funny? He shouldn't be in there. Also attacked by terrible CGI rats in a shit dream sequence. Oh yeah, I remember that. Stuart Little and the army of shitty Skaven. Just swarming over the poor prick. I'd say it's... Yeah, no, it actually does look like Stuart Little from the film Stuart Little. It's that bad. And with all that, Tom Cruise, he's more or less got a, uh, a homing beacon onto the mummy at this point. Uh, he doesn't want to find her, but he finds her kind of regardless at any point during this, even if he does want to find her. Uh, his mate Vale has told him to end the curse. You need to find the mummy. And you can deal with it from there. And so he goes to find the body of the dead mummy, hopefully, within the church. Uh, mummy looks all right. I'll be fair. Besides the face, which looks a bit weird, a bit enchantressy. If you've seen Suicide Squad, came out a few years back. I don't know which one came out. I think Suicide Squad came out first. And it, it's. It's almost lawsuit level similar. Uh, but the mummy does look alright. She's got uh, kind of similar to Boris Karlov's little bits around the edge of her face. Uh, kind of decrepit and decayed. Her fingers and hands are all shitty. Uh, she's got a black tongue which she licks Tom Cruise with occasionally for some reason. Apparently she's the tongue fetishist. Who knew? Uh, yeah, Tom Cruise gets in there, gets strapped down onto a table by her and her uh, merry band of ghouls that she's resurrected from the police and I think some church staff, priests and the like. Yeah. Uh, the bad guy has the dagger up in the air, ready to drive it down. And the guy, Tom Cruise, can't do shit. She has it ready. And then Jennifer just happens to walk in, says a word, screams, looks there and muttering, Tom Cruise says something, and uh, the mummy decides not to 
stab Tom Cruise instantly, but instead go for Jennifer because that's far more important, apparently. She can't do that after stabbing the guy, clearly. Uh, I think she realises that the gem isn't in the pommel. Oh, right. So she's, like, without the completed... Well, then why the fuck was she going to stab him originally? Eh? I think, basically, she... It's very heavily... It's Well, I say heavily hinted at. It's basically told to you that the mummy basically wanted the plane to go down there. Yeah, I I got that. She can get out. No, she wanted the plane to go down in... Uh, by the church because that was where the knife was oh right she, yeah of course she she made sure that the plane went down there so she could get the knife finish the ritual but when she basically claimed the knife and went to stab him with it she realized as she was about to go stab him that it wasn't complete and then she needs to find the other part well she's just an idiot then no two words about it. She uh, she could have yeah, ended... It, if Jennifer hadn't have come in there, Tom Cruise would be dead and she'd feel really silly. Yeah, because it's, again, later in the film, even then found out that, oh, she she can sense where these pieces are. So even if she fell out of the plane, even before she fell out of the plane, she knows it's in two pieces. But she still goes to stab him anyway. It's like they they took seven writers to go, okay, yeah, this is how we do it. This is blah, blah, blah. We'll have a little scene here where she goes to stab him, but she can't. But later on, she'll need to find the other gem and she'll just need to know where it is. So she'll know. No wonder it like, feels so fucking convoluted. It took, it took seven writers to not see this plot hole, so... Uh, so the mummy proceeds to have her ass handed to her yeah uh, gets a candlestick in the face uh, Tom Cruise hits her it's just a bit of a shit show for her not a great thing to have your lead monster beaten that easily and this many fucking times she, she's meant to be scary there's meant to be you know a, a force the hero is meant to do something to I'd understand this little bit because obviously she's not back at full power. So I'd be like, okay, she's still fairly weak. She hasn't like reclaimed most of her energy sort of thing. So I'll let this butt off. She is literally full power later on and she still gets fucking like bitch slapped. And yeah, there's, there's a fight that basically uh, breaks out. Uh, Tom Cruise drives away in an ambulance was going to abandon the girl and then she makes a joke about it but all I could think was wow our protagonist is a complete piece of shit I don't care if he lives or dies anymore yeah that's another thing literally I know that they've made the antagonist to be a piece of shit but they've made the protagonist to be a piece of shit just so they can go yeah but he sacrifices himself in the end it's like, no. I mean, could be taken two ways. He either sacrificed himself or he wanted to claim as much power as he could so he fucking stabbed himself. Yeah. Spoilers. 
though you don't need it, I advise you heavily not to watch this fucking film. Uh, Mummy, once again, beaten with an inch of a life. Once Tom Cruise drives back to her, finds it, and then she beats the ambulance down and is grappling hooked by Russell Crowe's guys. Which is, uh, again, don't let your main monster get the shit kicked out of her. Again and again and again. This is meant to be the hero's journey kind of thing. They get the shit kicked out of them, then they overcome the odds, not the other way around. And then Tom Cruise and Jennifer are led to Russell Crowe's uh, little haven, which kind of like, um, was it SCP? Containment? Yeah. That kind of stuff, like a shit version of that. Mm Mm-hmm. They've got nothing really in there. Uh, it said Russell Crowe playing Dr. Jekyll, See, Mr. Hyde. There is a slight hint that this might be in the same universe as the Brendan Fraser ones. Cause oh, the, they have the, the golden book, book, don't they? Yeah. The Golden Book of Amun-Ra. All They've that got stuff. the Book of the Living. They've got like a vampire skull. They've got fucking... Uh, like... Um, the amphibian hand they, they've they got loads of weird shit that are like oh but this could be a thing but let's face it that's dead in the water now so it's yeah well it definitely isn't now <laughs> as I said uh, I think Russell Crowe given the right material could be a really good Jack on Hyde a Jack on Hyde uh, less akin to a giant monster that goes around fighting stuff and more akin to like a Millwall fan drinking six cans of Stella it just becomes a prick yeah. Uh, which is it's great in the original book. It's watching a meek man uh, turn into a complete psychopath. And that's half the fun, watching this guy kind of break down as he realises what he's doing. You don't need a monster to show that. You just need the worst of humanity. That's the whole metaphor of the thing. Uh, but no, they just turn him into a giant monster. Nothing beyond that. Uh, Jennifer turns out to be part of Russell Crowe's... Uh, Jennifer finds, Tom Cruise finds out that Jennifer's part of this whole organisation. Looks a bit pissy, but of course they won't tell you. Uh, And then Jennifer gets confused when they say they're going to kill the mummy. They go, yeah, we're going to kill her and dissect her. And she goes on about, oh, aren't we going to learn more about Egypt from her? Aren't we going to go through this, that and the other? No, she could end the world. We're going to kill her now. Yeah, she wants to revive a god in human form and you want to talk to her about a fucking Egypt. I think there's more pressing issues like, I don't know, stop her plan. Yeah, and there's... Otherwise, there's about like 10 minutes of exposition here that tries to set up the rest of the universe. Uh, and it it goes back to the same thing with the Marvel Universe. The first Iron Man had nothing to do with anything else. Yeah, it was literally Iron Man. It's an Iron Man film, for fuck's sake. It was like, yeah, we're just going to make sure that this is a good fucking film. Then we'll, if anything, we'll add extras on later. And what do you know? Happens to be the best film of the fucking whole thing. The first Iron Man. By far the best film of the MCU. Because it had nothing to do with the MCU. Uh, because, yeah, it's just a good film. That's what you need to kick everything off. You need to get people excited for everything. You can't build shit up when the product you're trying to sell them is terrible. Uh, if I had a chocolate cake shop 
and I gave you a shit cake, but it had an advertisement on it for a vanilla cake, you're not going to eat the vanilla fucking cake? Yeah. Yeah, she's going to be frozen liquid mercury, uh, like the Egyptian side of stuff. Uh, the mummy tries to gain sympathy from uh, Tom Cruise, uh, giving away a plan as well. Really should have just been in a flashback or something. Uh, but again, she killed a baby. Killed the bitch. I don't know if she just didn't show Tom Cruise that side of things and she just went, my father didn't love me. Uh, I swear I didn't kill anything else. Just fucking kill her. Uh, so the mummy talks to Jennifer as well. Sees the gem in her eye or something. There's a, a weird scene or Jennifer sees the gem in her eye. Yeah, something like that. Regardless, there's more communication between them. Uh, she speaks in English, which kind of takes away the mystique a little. I know it's a minor nitpick, but, you know, speaking Egyptian, if you're going to be... Uh, I, I know in the first one, the Boris Karlov one, obviously, uh, he spoke in English, but that was, you know, to facilitate the type of film they were doing. In this one, when you've got an actual monster, have a speaking Egyptian. Refrew. Uh So she prepares her escape. The... Recruits in this place. Yeah, recruits in this place are fucking terrible. They get taken over by the mummy and start. One of them starts uh, letting her down, starts removing the mercury stuff. And they don't stop killing her just because Tom Cruise said so. Why didn't Russell Crowe turn, turn around and say, you know what, no, fuck off. She's dying. At any point, he could have quite easily. He clearly runs the place to some extent. He could have. Said, no, we're not going to listen to some random prick that's just come here. Kill the bitch. Uh, Jekyll actually talks about killing Tom Cruise to his face, which is a good idea uh, to give away your plan to the guy you're going to try to kill. Uh, during which Hyde actually takes over. Yeah, I do want to point out, they know that he's immortal at this point. And we're like, yeah, we'll kill you. And they're like, it's never like ascertained to the fact that he cannot be fucking killed because her will is the thing that's keeping him alive. She's the cho- He is her chosen. But it's like, yeah, yeah, we'll kill you. It's fine. Like, uh, okay. Until Hyde takes over and then offers to uh, partner up with him. I don't know why Nick at no point just went, yeah, sure, I'll partner up with you. Why not? Yeah, exactly. Like, at this point, Hyde can't escape the room because like, uh, there's like a handprint um, scanner. And obviously, for some reason, he has a different handprint to Dr. Jekyll. Oh, no, I think they just don't let Dr. Jekyll out. Oh, no, they do. Shit, they do, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, he Dr. has a different handprint. yeah. Dr. For... Jekyll uses that same thing earlier to kind of leave the room. But Hyde puts his hand... Well, uh, Nick puts Hyde's hand there and it doesn't read it. Because apparently the disease they changed his fingerprints yeah. as well. Yeah. They don't let me out, as he says. And then decides to thoroughly beat Nick up while saying, hey, we can be partners. Uh, yeah, which 
No, I think you are right. I wouldn't have minded this version of Hyde so much if Nick hadn't have then basically beat him. Yeah. And shoved a thing in him. Uh, the uh, inoculator. He's got, I think, a, a disease. Uh, yeah, basically cure. how how it's dis- how it's said in this is Hyde is basically like a, a a disease, a virus that is constantly trying to take over Doctor Jekyll, and he's made like this immunology, like a like a temporary kind of immunization against him taking over for a short while. He's always having to top up this immunization. You think he'd have it ready? Yeah, he'd have like fucking five vials like, of stuff on his person at all times. Like, like the you see him inject himself for like ten minutes or twenty minutes before this, and he's misplaced the injector. If this was literally the only thing that would stop you from turning into this like fucking psychopath murderer, whatever. You'd pretty much keep it close by at pretty much all times. You'd remember where the fuck it is. Like, I don't walk out of the house and go, where's my wallet? Because I already know where it is. Maybe that's just the person I am, maybe. But whatever. Well, if I compare uh, the vial that turns you back to normal from being a murderous psychopath to a wallet... Yeah. I think they're they're different fucking ballparks, mate. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I keep if I ain't got my money, vial. I'll fucking murder someone. Nah, what? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, so during uh, Hyde being turned back into Jekyll by Nick, uh, the mummy's released because one single button stops all the mercury stuff. There's no code or anything. There's no. Are you sure? You know, like the two key situation you get in um, yeah. nuclear four. Like, I'd want that. I want like I yeah. want like five fingerprints before you let out the for an destroyer ancient of worlds. Egyptian mummy that could bring about the world's destruction. Yeah, I think I think I'd want a bit more than a single button press that fucking shuts it down. In fact, I'd I'd want to go for one button press. It kills her. Expedites the fucking process. There's no yeah. button to stop the fucking thing. You do yeah, that, she's li- just dead. Li- yeah, the exact same thing. I know I'm bringing up the Avengers again, but fucking when Loki's in that fucking prison, like, oh, you touched the glass, dead. You fucking, I hit this button, dead. Fucking anything like that, fine. But it's like, no, nah, no, nah, this button lets you go. You fucking sneeze, we'll let you go. Oh, that bit with Nick sorry. Fury and everything. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, that's what Hyde was meant to be, wasn't he? The Nick Fury of... Oh, that's terrible. That's just awful. Right, so yeah, the mummy escapes. Uh, and Nick and Jenny head out into London, uh, which is currently a big CGI mess. Someone's kicked over a sand pit and there's dust going everywhere around it. It looks terrible. It, yeah, It's just basically, fucking dreadful. They're like, oh, glass is made of sand hey, it's imported sand from Egypt. Literally every pane of glass is sand from Egypt. So let's uh, shatter all that and turn it back into sand and have it chase people. Well, you know. be unfortunate, wouldn't it, if she went down the wrong street and it was just Moroccan now? Oh, fuck. 
Just running yeah, street use... to street trying windows. No, no. We use no. acetate for our windows now, you fuck. Yeah, uh big CGI mess and Nick led towards the stone through all this mess. Why is a mummy film set in London? Why is it not set in Egypt? I, I don't get this. I know the nineteen fifty nine one was, to be fair, set in an English setting, but again, far more subdued. No real big spectacles. Why the fuck would you not set a mummy film with all the pyramids and the sphinxes and the really interesting stuff? Um, because 2017? I mean, I know why. It's to set up the rest of the universe, but... Yeah. I think it's literally to go, hey, look, we're in a modern setting. We're doing an ancient mummy in modern times. Yeah. Doesn't work. No, not at all. So, uh, Mummy goes down into the underground, wakes up all the Crusaders, which I think were like Egyptian soldiers or some shit, it said. Or they no, went to they, India. They are, this no, they are literally uh, Catholic Crusaders. That oh, had well. went to e- they'd, they'd went to Egypt, grabbed the, her fucking dagger and shit, and she's just using their corpses. Okay, so she unleashed a load of crusaders to kill everyone. Uh, Try to kill Jennifer as well. Fail, clearly. Uh, For some reason, the mummy, after having her ass handed to her time and time again, by a candlestick, a grappling hook, uh, beats everyone. She She wins now because, you know, the plot needs her to. The plot needs her to get the uh, MacGyver, MacGuffin. The plot needs her to get the MacGuffin of the jewel. And so bullets do nothing now. Nothing else does anything to her. She's not bothered. And she can just waltz on through. Is it a thing where you get close to the jewel and you're more powerful? Nope. The only no. The only thing I could... If this was a smarter film, which I am not giving it that much credit, but if this was a smarter film, I would give it the benefit of the doubt that she was like, if I get captured, they'll take me to where they're going. They will keep me close to where the things I need are. So I'll either catch a glimpse of what I need or whatever. So eventually I will come across my jewel. I will fucking break free and then I'll fucking go get my shit. Which but, would make sense if yeah. she hadn't had... If she didn't need help getting out and everything. Yeah, she, that's, she, that's why I'm saying if it was a better film. Could she locate film, everything anyway? It's heavily hinted at that she knew where the fucking dagger was. That's why she made the plane go down there. But if she knew where that was, she knew where the jewel was. So, why she would go to stab him without the jewel being in it when she knew where it was? Why she'd fucking want to get captured when she knows where the jewel was? I don't know. There is literally nothing that in this film that makes fucking sense in my brain. And the more I think about it, the more angry I get. Because I genuinely didn't... Well, when I second the second time I watched this film... I was like, okay, I'm watching it, sort of, 
I'm not enjoying it, but I'm not hating it. But now that I'm talking about it, it pisses me off. That's what the show does here. It yeah. drives down your will to live. And you start <laughs> giving less of a shit and giving less of the benefit of the doubt as it forces you to go through it. Uh, but expediating through towards the end because there's a terrible fight sequence and very little of any relevance happens. Uh, so Cruz gets a shit kicked out by the mummy now who's all powerful and wah ha 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 and uh, has a jewel that she can use in her dagger. Uh, the mummy licks Cruz's face for some reason. Don't know why she does that. It's a bit weird. I'd imagine Tom Cruise wrote that bit in himself. Yeah, most likely. The 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 thing I know she wants to basically waken the god set is because basically she's gonna be his like queen, whatever. Fine. It's not Tom Cruise yet. It probably won't ever be Tom Cruise, let's face it. But um yeah, Jennifer's dead at this point. She's been drowned in the subway tunnels that have been connected to the Thames. Fucking. Um, Cruz has had his legs broke. Uh, he's had his leg broken because the mummy was like, "Yeah, I'm not dealing with this shit. Just fucking stay there." Um, she's grabbed the jewel. She's put it in the hilt of the, or the pommel of the dagger. Sorry. She picks him up by the neck um, to basically get ready to... Well, I don't know what she's doing because she keeps the dagger down to her side. That gives him the chance to kind of reach down and, like, palm the fucking dagger off her, even though it's in a clenched fist. I don't know what was going on there. It is a terrible pickpocket thing takes yeah. the dagger because he was a known thief and he stole something off of a sleeping woman a few days ago so clearly he knows how to pickpocket perfectly yeah and then I think he punches her or something or goes to she doesn't even flinch she throws him across the room he has the dagger in hand obviously um I'm literally just gonna like zoom through this because it's really <laughs> annoying me so if you want me to start no, at any no. point, just go away. Me. Okay. So throws him across the room. Fucking he looks across the room at obviously uh, Jennifer's corpse. It's like, yeah, I could, if I'm set, I can bring her back to life. Stabs himself in the chest, throws the mummy about, kisses her. Obviously Tom Cruise fucking getting off on his ego again. Um Kisses her, she reverts back into a corpse, um, kind of shouts at Jennifer's corpse to basically bring her back to life, stands in a fucking shadowed corner because I'm dark and broody now. Um, when she starts to get closer, he's like, no, don't do it. And he does it in that stupid fucking voice. Um, and then... He disappears when Hyde and all his fucking recruit goons come in. And then the last scene is him and his newly revived Vane, or whatever the fuck his name was, 
um, riding across the desert plains with a sandstorm coming from his horse. Yeah, the uh, shittest of the four horsemen of the apocalypse there, the uh, slightly annoying sand, Anakin's Bane, I think it's called. And there you have it, the end of the named mummy films. Uh, A roller coaster of good, good, really good shit. Like a fucking log flume. Sorry, it just really got to... I, I don't know what to say. It really got to me. As as we were talking about that last film, it progressively got me angrier and angrier, and I didn't know why. <laughs> but that's exactly how I'll describe this series. It's, it is a log flume, right? So you've got the first two films, which is the anticipation, the kind of intelligent bit, where you're yeah. starting to come up the hill, you're looking forward to the big splash... Uh, really enjoying your time at that point it's uh, all kind of psychological it's proper horror stuff the 1999 film is the big splash it's a load of fun it's uh, the big payoff it's great wonderful and the 2017 version is really long you have about f- realizing you have about four hours left in the theme park you're soaking fucking wet and miserable yeah pretty much uh so ordering them from worst to best. I I think we both agreed on the 1999 version is the best. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's is that sacrilege to say that it's it better prob- than Hammer House. It probably is at some point, but let's face it, everyone's got their opinion and this is ours, so fuck them. Yeah, 1999 version. It's not even a fucking competition. Probably, I prefer the 1932 version over the 1959 one. Marginally. I think they're both very good. Yeah, I'd be the opposite way. I'd be uh, 1999, 1959, and then 1939, and then this trivel. Yeah, yeah, we both agreed at least on first and last. I think Boris Karlov just did such a good job in the 1932 version that just about elevates itself over the 1959. Peter Cushing's excellent, of course. Uh, as is George Pastel. It, it, I think I have to have a little bit in there for respect-wise for the original. It, it's one of the first proper monster movies. Yeah, It's a real progenitor with amazing camera work and the like. And I, if I can still feel... It feels like a movie. It's one of the first of the original films, all the way back then, monster films, that I can watch still and enjoy. Uh, and it's only 75 minutes, which I always appreciate. Yeah, that's fair. Especially for this fucking show. Well, yeah. It's... So, a couple things before we go on. Actually, just one thing. I think about it. Next film series we're doing, uh, lovingly suggested by a viewer, a film called Joyride, which we're going to have a couple guests on for, actually, from a podcast. Managed to actually pull people in from a show called What's Your Least Favourite Scary Movie? Yeah, sounds like it'll be fun. At least from what I've heard, or from what I've seen, the first one's supposed to be air, and then it goes downhill from there. When does it ever go uphill? Well, this one slightly went up and then it very quickly went down. 
if if we watched this one first and then watched the others, it would have been a progressive up. You're not allowed to fucking move the films around in preferred order. We're not allowed to I do mean, that. We've got to go for our misery last. We're not allowed to look forward to shit in this job. Nothing yeah, we're allowed to do for fun. That's fair. That's what we do for you guys, you fucks. <laughs> and with that, uh, have a good one. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Ta-ta.